Two balls and a strike to count on Taylor. Reyes fires. Swing and a drive. Deep left field. This is way back. Walk him off. Chris Taylor. Taylor with the moment of his life and he's had some big moments a walk-off home run his sixth career postseason homer and Taylor a struggling hitter delivers in the clutch he didn't start in this game Brian because he was eight for his last 72 that was Chris Taylor's walk-off home run on Wednesday, which let the Dodgers go on and face the San Francisco Giants in the next round of the baseball playoffs. Dodgers, despite winning 106 games in the regular season, which is their, well, tied for their best mark ever, they didn't finish in first place because the Giants finished one game ahead of them. They were the best second place team in baseball history. They had to play a one game playoff against a much worse team in the St. Louis Cardinals and just barely pulled it off with a ninth inning walk-off home run. So that happened on Wednesday. Since then, there have been two games in San Francisco. Dodgers lost yesterday and they won today. Neither was particularly close and they moved back to L.A. on Monday. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff-Wittellas. You are listening right now live at 10.01 p.m., or maybe you're not listening live. You could be listening to the archives, which, in fact, is uh, more likely since that's where most of our listener base is. And we were off last week, not intentionally, but uh, what happened was I caught a cold from my son, Benjamin. He brought it home from school. In fact, we're going to discuss this in our COVID segment of the show this week about COVID and about what I think about the way it is or isn't spreading among kids and how that differs from the common cold, which did spread in Ben's classroom and then came home and spread to me. It was a kind of difficult cold that lasted a while. In fact, I couldn't even do the show last night because I had some lingering effects from it, and I started to feel a sore throat. So I said, you know what? Let me wait one more day because I can't start radio with a sore throat. I mean, I, I pretty much get a sore throat from every show. I'm not even kidding that at the end of every show, my throat kind of feels a little bit sore, but it's better after I go to sleep and I wake up. But I can't start with a sore throat with all the talking I do on this show. I mean, I talk for like six or more hours straight with very little interruption. So that is not an easy thing to do. If you think it is, try it yourself. You will see it is pretty tough. And I need to start out with my throat feeling normal. Otherwise, I can't really do this show. We have a lot of topics to discuss, as you might guess, given that we were off the air for 15 days now. And the World Series of Poker is going. It's in full swing. It started on September 30th. Today is October 9th. Right now, it is 10.03 p.m., if you're listening live, we do have a free roll. We have a free roll that uh, you may want to get into because we're giving away $50 this week on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. 
can find it near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. You need a separate account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, and you need to understand the rules by going to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, and you can understand the qualification requirements. They're not difficult, but you must know them. And we do give away money each week in cash, which I can send you a variety of ways online, including cryptocurrency. So just think of ways that you can receive money online, and I can probably send you the money that way. I won't even bother to list them, but you can probably figure them out. And to claim your prize, PM me on the forum. That's Dan Space Druff on the forum, Dan Space Druff. Or if you really want to, you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudler.com, or you can text me at the number I'm going to give out shortly, my text number, which I give out to the public, and which you're welcome to text me at any time for any reason. So the free roll began at 9.50 Pacific time. The field will be small tonight because the show was delayed, and also the show didn't have a definite start time because the start time was whenever the Dodger game finishes a little bit after that. That was the start time. I said it'll be around 9.30, ended up being around 10, whatever. At least we got the show started tonight. At least we are back after a 15-day hiatus, which, as I said, was not intentional. And we're going to cover a lot of stuff tonight. Hopefully, Trader Ruski will join us during the second half of the show. I told him yesterday that we were going to have a show. Then I told him we're not going to have a show. Uh, probably not going to have Brandon tonight. Maybe we will have him in a uh, subsequent week here. Oh, he's calling here. Hmm. There is another co-host I didn't really think about that could possibly be around right now, just because of the late hour where he is. But lo and behold, here he is. Calwat, hello. Hey, Druff, how you doing? I am surprised you're up. And I'm happy to have you on here for as long as you want to be on, whether it's a minute or an hour or 10 hours. Yeah, you're not the only one who's surprised. I was I was actually up uh, watching the uh, Deontay Wilder-Tyson Fury fight. Yeah, see, a lot of people were watching that, and I was not interested in that. I was interested in Dodgers-Giants, which is the first time those two teams have ever played in the playoffs in the long history of those teams. So that's what I was watching. I was aware of the fight, but I just didn't have much interest in it. I hear you, man. It was an amazing fight, though. It was incredible. That is what yeah, I'm hearing. I'll, I'll be here for a little bit, but yeah, I'm I'm kind of out of it too. I want to tell you something. Yeah. And this is amazing coincidence. I also have been down and out with a cold that I also was brought home by my son from school. Yeah, I, it's happened to a lot of people, not just around here, but I, I am hearing people around the country are getting colds and go, oh, colds, I forgot about those. Yeah, we have yeah. those too. Yeah, it kind of sucks. I haven't had a cold in, in literally a year and a half, two years. Yeah, that's the story with a lot of people. I've actually gotten two of them prior to this one since COVID began, which is less than my average, especially having a kid. So uh, I had one in March of 2020. I had one uh, about a year later in March of 2021. And then uh, I just had this one now. And this is the worst of the three. But Does the uh, audio sound alright? This is my new headset. I don't know how. Yeah, it, it sounds okay. Works. Yeah, it's fine. All right. All right. Yeah, cool. good. Well, that was a pleasant surprise. I, I thought I'd have to wait till Trey Drewski calls in at like four in the morning. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll hang out for as long as I can. Hopefully, Trey Drewski can tap in real soon. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. But you know, whenever you can't stay up any longer, just uh, you yeah. can just drop off. I and mean, pe- people fall asleep on the show. People just disappear. I, I understand. It's just uh, when I just stop hearing from them, I just hang up on them, and we go on. 
So, okay. Anyway, we have a lot of stuff to cover this week. Uh, free roll, as I was saying just before Calwalk called in, uh, you have a little bit of time to get in there till 10.15 with late registration. It began at 9.50 Pacific time. $50 from Shoeshine Box. Actually, who gave 100 but I decided to split it 50 and 50 So 50 will be this week. Thank you, Shoeshine Box. Very nice guy, a uh, poker dealer who has dealt to me many times at the World Series. And uh, I got good luck every time he dealt to me, except when I needed it the most with Hossein Ensan to my left two years ago at the main event. That's the one time I did not get good luck when he was dealing. So I guess uh, the power of the eventual main event winner overruled the power of Shoeshine Box's luck for me. But I appreciate uh, him always being uh, just really nice when I see him and always you know talks about the show, actually recommends the show to people at the table. It's pretty cool. So he gave $50 this week and uh, 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. That's the free roll, which probably will not have that many uh, participants this week, if I would have to guess. I have not taken a look, but I'm sure it does not have that many. We do have a chat room, which works on all devices. It looks like it's from 2007. It is from 2007, but it still works. And in fact, it works on all devices. It's not a flash chat room, which uh, delights Calawatt, who uh, got on my case about that for a long time. We have a few people in here right now. Don't bother to go in if you're listening in the archives, but live, yeah, you can go in and talk to the other people who are there, or you can type in something, and I will catch it at some point during the show. You want to call the show? 775-FRAUD55 is the phone number. 775-372-8355. Same number can be texted. 775-372-8355 before, after, or during the show. If it is during the show, I may read your text on the air unless you ask me at the beginning not to do so. The call to listen line is a line you just call up and listen. It's great. It does not freeze. It does not buffer. It just works. It can be called with any phone that can dial the United States, and if you can make a free call to the U.S., then it's free. Unless you have T-Mobile, then it's one cent a minute, but what can I do? Phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or the alternate call-to-listen line, 641-741-1095. They both work the same way. If you forget any of these phone numbers, just go to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com near the top of the screen, and they will all be listed there for you. Here is the agenda tonight, and then we will get going. We have week one and partial week two news since the World Series has been going now for 10 days and a lot of different stories. I'll try not to take too long on any of these because it'll make the show drag out like 12 hours. But uh, we, we are going to cover a lot of different World Series topics. Uh, pretty much any topic you can think of that was of interest in the World Series, we're going to touch on, except for like who's winning a bracelet here and there. Like That's not what we do on this show. But I, I will even cover a little of that of some people who are of note, including... We now have a double bracelet winner who regularly listens to this show. We didn't before, but we do now. So I'm going to give congratulations to him when we get to that segment. Non-World Series topics. I have an interesting story, if you haven't read it already in the forum, but it's an interesting story that happened this week. 52 custom chocolates that were in a banquet room at Resorts World. That was a banquet to take place on October 16th, 2021, that's a week from today, to honor the CEO of Genting, which is the parent company of Resorts World. And some kids, some kids of some people I know, actually got into that banquet room and destroyed some of those chocolates. 
More than some, 52 of them. And it was tracked down who their parents were. And one of the kids' parents was staying at Resorts World. So what happens at that point? Who's responsible and how much money is the right amount to charge for destroying 52 custom chocolates in a banquet hall? So we're going to discuss this weird story. Poker Paint was an NFT, a non-fungible token. Those were all the rage in 2021. This is the first uh, poker-related one, to my knowledge. And uh, people were pretty excited about it. It was a uh, poker-related NFT with uh, pretty cool-looking art uh, of various uh, well-known poker pros. And people were all ready to buy these uh, fairly expensive NFTs until a story came out that uh, got some people pretty angry. And that was the pictures were not original art. They were stolen from poker photographers without their permission. Uh Uh-oh. So this created a pretty big controversy, and the poker community got very mad. So I'll tell you what happened there, and I'll tell you the response Poker Paint gave. And I even got in the fray, because why not? I always do. I have an update on the... Jenny Savage Leong story. She claims she is going to sue Andy Stacks. That, remember, she's the one who allegedly owes him money. She's going to sue Andy Stacks, she's claiming, for defamation. So we're going to get to that uh, update. She posted another update on Twitter. Won't spend too long on that one, but got to give updates on that running story. She's actually in direct communication with me. Not, not very often, but she goes on to Poker Fraud Alert every so often and sends me a message. Cosmopolitan, this is a big story. I don't know why we're covering in the middle, but uh, Cosmopolitan, the operations have been bought by MGM and it's going to become an MLife property fairly soon. So that's actually a pretty big deal. Cosmo not going to be an independent property for much longer. Bally's Las Vegas, this is not certain, but there's a good chance Bally's Las Vegas will cease to exist, at least in name. It is planned to be renamed to a brand that is familiar to Las Vegas and to the World Series of Poker ahead of the 2022 World Series. This is from Vital Vegas, who has not verified this, but says that it's a pretty strong rumor. And he's been uh, batting for a pretty high average recently. So I would uh, say that I think he's probably correct on this one. An an elderly man, or semi-elderly, I mean, I'm I'm not that far from there, so I can't say elderly without feeling bad, but uh, a 66-year-old man was arrested for stealing casino chips. And apparently he has been doing this all the way back to the 1990s. So we'll talk about that. A man committed suicide from... Where's a place you would think that you could jump from in Vegas if you want to really make sure that uh, you're not going to survive? What, what would you think? Stratosphere. Cal? Right. That's, that's where it was. Now, it's called the Strat now, which is stupid. I refuse to call it the Strat, but... Uh, That's what it's technically called. But yes, the strat, the stratosphere, a man has jumped off the stratosphere, a 30-year-old man. And as you might imagine, he did not survive. We'll talk a bit about that. Another place you could do it is that Ferris wheel, right? Well, the, the, the Ferris wheel uh, may... There and you decide you just want to end your life, you jump right off that thing. I was going to say, you can uh, commit suicide involuntarily on the Ferris wheel if it just the doors kind of open up while the car's tilted. So anyway, uh, 18 NBA players have been arrested in an idiotic scam uh, for uh, claiming dental and medical reimbursements when they didn't actually go to the dentist or the doctor. Very sophisticated plan. 
and uh, it didn't work out for them. So I'll tell you which NBA players were involved. Some I'm sure you heard of if you uh, were following the NBA in the 2000s or early 2010s. None of them huge stars, but they, uh, nevertheless, I'm sure if you were an NBA fan, you know some of the names. And I'll tell you a bit more about that scam when we get to it. A young poker pro named Juan Rao has been accused of angle shooting and using real-time assistance programs online. And in fact, uh, running a stable where he would direct others to uh, play on some of these app-based poker rooms and also use those same real-time assistance programs. He's uh, taking a lot of heat here because some thought that he might be the next uh, young poker phantom, kind of like uh, another Fedora Holtz, but... uh, Now it is looking like uh, there's a lot of baggage. So we will talk about that, and we'll talk about whether he really does have any poker skill or if really he's just uh, relying on these programs to give him success. Finally, we're going to do some coronavirus news again. I know I skipped it last time, but uh, in honor of the cold I got that was not COVID for my son, which he picked up at school, and which has ripped through his classroom. Like like a lot of the kids in his class have this cold. I'm going to tell you that I think it is likely that kids either don't or hardly transmit COVID, unlike adults who transmit COVID a whole lot. And I will explain why I feel this is very important for us to know and to take action upon that information, if that's the case. It's not proven yet, but there's a lot of evidence that is mounting that that's the case, in which case we need to treat the kids differently, not just in the COVID danger they're facing, but also their ability to transmit, which seems to be different than the rest of ours. And I'm talking about young children, not uh, teenagers as much, though, but also teenagers as well. So that is our agenda tonight. Uh, I saw someone just tried to call. I want to get going here, so uh, we're not taking calls right at this moment, but at the end of, uh, in, bet- in between segments, you can call in, and I'll take your call. If it's really important, you could text me 775-372-8355, and uh, maybe I'll take your call if it's uh, like pretty important. Okay, so let's get going here. Want to get to some World Series news, because we have a lot of topics to cover. We always seem to. Whenever the World Series starts, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. Calwatt, have you followed much of the World Series this year? I have a little bit, because I've, if you don't mind me saying, I've got a buddy of mine that I played poker with uh, quite a bit that uh, won a bracelet this year. Hmm. Yeah, Michael Perone, he won the event number 10. The, uh, it was one of those crazy 1,000 super turbo bounty or whatever. But... Hmm. Uh, Shout out to Mike, man. It's really cool. Glad yeah. Good for him. Good. I, I don't really know who he is, but good. Congratulations. It's always uh, very exciting. And you, did you have a, a big piece, a small piece? What kind of piece did you have there? No, no, no. I had no piece. Oh, yeah, no piece. Oh, it's just someone you know. Okay. okay. I got yeah, confused. Just someone I, I played poker with him for oh, okay. years back when I was playing. He's a local around here. Okay. So, yeah, that that changes a little bit. But I still, you know, if it's someone you know, that's cool. And uh, you, you always want to root for someone that you know and you don't dislike compared to the yeah. kind of like randoms in the field. I, I, I felt that too when I'm watching things. In fact, there was someone I was rooting for who listens to this show that we're going to talk about in uh, one of the World Series segments. Now, but, have you ever actively rooted against someone, Drew? I, I have, but I'm not going to say who. But yeah, <laughs> so there have been people that I'm, I'm watching, that more than one. I mean, it's, it's been a number of times where I'm looking at the results and I'm hoping that the person's chips are going to go down and they're going to be out yeah. soon. I, ha- I have said to myself, don't let this dickhead win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I will say when I busted from the main event two years ago, I did say, you know what? I don't really know anyone in this field. I kind of like know of some people, but there's no one I know well or really care about winning. So, you know what? This Hossein Ensign guy to my left, he seems pretty cool. I, I, I hope he gets it. I mean, he was doing well, so it wasn't a big stretch to think that he might win. But it was still 128 people left, so it was by far uh, nowhere uh, near a done deal for him. Okay, so first of all, some good news about the World Series. And it's something encouraging to me. Because I was fearing with the World Series that it was going to be a COVID disaster. And I have seen it's the opposite. I have not heard of one case with the World Series where uh, there's COVID, where, where someone got COVID from the World Series. Now, doubters will say, well, yeah, but how do we know? Like, uh, there's got to be people who, people who got COVID and just aren't announcing it anywhere. We just haven't seen where they've announced it. Like, just because someone gets COVID, like if just some random gets COVID at the World Series, we probably won't hear about it. Okay, fair point. But if there were a lot of people getting COVID at the World Series, then we would have heard about it by now because there would be some known people or even some people who are not known who would have announced it in some way and it would have gotten around Twitter. So the fact that we have not seen a single World Series case is a good sign. It's a really good sign. I'm happy to see that. And uh, it makes me think that maybe I even made a mistake by skipping it. Because if nobody's getting it, then the whole reason I was skipping it is pointless. Like, uh, and I didn't know this. I can't say I did something stupid by skipping it so far and skipping some events I would have liked to have been at. But I am happy that this hasn't occurred. I'm not saying, oh, man, I wish everybody got sick from COVID so I could feel like I did the right thing. No, I'm actually happy to see that the poker community is not getting sickened by this. Because let's look at some facts here. A lot of people got the Pfizer vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine has been proven to wear off after five months. And it's been more than five months for a lot of people. And you would expect that with the breakthrough infections we've been hear about, hearing about, I know people personally that have gotten breakthrough infections that we would have some breakthrough infections at the World Series, and we're just not seeing it. I'm not saying there's been zero, but I've heard of zero. And if I've heard of zero, then it really means the number is very low. And that's a very good sign, because I was very worried, as I've been saying, not just for myself, because I didn't go, so I have nothing to worry about for myself at the moment, but I was worried for the community that all these people in the room, thousands of people in the room, 12 hours a day, day in, day out, that there's going to be a lot of breakthrough COVID infections. And there have not been. So what can we conclude from this? Well, first of all, and this is going to get some anti-vax people mad, but you know, I, I tell the facts on the show. It does appear from this, from what we can see, that the vaccine probably does prevent at least a lot of transmission. I'm not saying all transmission, but it does look like that if you are vaccinated, that you are probably transmitting a lot less if you do get COVID. This may be because there has been a theory that, and this goes way back, this goes way back to the beginning of the discovery of COVID. Like they even noticed this on the cruise ships at the beginning. That people who are asymptomatic, there is some suspicion that they were not transmitting or they're transmitting at a much lower rate. The original belief about COVID transmission was that the people who are most contagious are the ones that were known as pre-symptomatic, meaning you don't feel symptoms yet, but you are destined to feel 
symptoms that are pretty significant. Not necessarily ones that's going to kill you or put you in the hospital, but but more than just like a, a mild case, kind of like a, a moderate or higher case. If that's what you're destined to have, but uh, you don't feel the symptoms just yet, that's when you are the most uh, contagious. And then uh, asymptomatic people, there is a belief, though it's never been proven, that they either don't transmit or barely transmit. And since the vaccine at the very least, is a big-time symptom reducer, then it may follow along those same lines. So even if there are some breakthrough uh, cases where people are getting COVID at the World Series but not feeling symptoms, then they may not be transmitting it. So whatever the reason is, the transmission is far lower than I would have expected by now. And, And I've waited a little bit before saying this because the World Series just began on September 30th, and you have to give it some time. And, and time's passed now, though. We, we've had 10 days, and we're not seeing it. So that's good news. That's great news. And I, I was really thinking that this could have been a very dangerous thing for people to do, especially given that one of the major vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine, has been wearing off for a lot of adults, including a lot of adults at the World Series, including me if I were to be at the World Series, because it has now been five and a half months since I got the Pfizer vaccine. So, uh, th- and most of the people there did not get a third shot. Some did, but most did not. Most people at the World Series got either two shots or they got the one shot of the Johnson & Johnson. But that's, that's really what most of those people got that are currently at the World Series. Now, there are... There's, there's s- other good news too, Druff. What's that? The other good news is, even though you're, you're correct that the Pfizer vaccine, they've shown that the effectiveness wanes in terms of preventing infection over time. What doesn't wane is its protection against uh, COVID, like serious cases of COVID. So that remains, even after six months, you've got a 90% shot of, you know, if you, even if you do get it, it's not going to be anything serious. Yeah, that's true. And that's actually another factor which makes me more willing to consider going in the later stages of the World Series because I know that the risk of dying or ending up on a ventilator or uh, even hospitalized is much lower than it was prior to when I was vaccinated. So uh, while I don't feel the confidence I once felt that uh, I'm just not going to get sick from COVID like I felt in May and June, yep. uh, I, I, I do have a lot more confidence that I'm not going to be one of these unlucky people that gets killed from it, where before, even though it wasn't that likely that I would die from COVID at my age, it also wasn't such a a, a major outlier to where it, it was it would be just about impossible. So... I, yeah, it's important, though, because it, even though it de- does degrade in terms of absolutely preventing you from getting it, like you said, you still have a really good shot that even if you do somehow get it, it's going to be real mild and you're not going to end up with one of those horrible hospital ventilator cases, you know? Yeah. So yeah. so that's that's some good news about the World Series, and I think that does speak well for their decision to require vaccination there and i know what some people are saying oh you know that's uh that's not fair to do or uh, hey what, what about the dealers they're not required to be vaccinated yeah but the dealers were incentivized to get vaccinated so even though some chose not to i don't think the number is very high because they gave them cash bonuses to get vaccinated and and even if a healthy percentage of the dealers didn't get vaccinated which i don't believe is the case but even if that is the case it's still a very small percentage of overall number of people there because it doesn't matter if it's the dealer or the players. It just matters 
how many people are in that room that are unvaccinated? That, that I think, is what really matters. And I don't think that number is very high. And, uh, yes, it sucks if the dealer at your table is unvaccinated and is pre-symptomatic. And, uh, yeah, that makes it the highest chance that you're going to get COVID. But there's also some belief that uh, COVID hangs in the air and that it really is more about being in the room for a long period of time where COVID is and less so much about uh, someone breathing on you or coughing on you or sneezing on you like it is with a cold or the flu. Again, some of these things haven't been proven, but these are some theories that, that have been gaining steam over the time that uh, COVID has been studied. So what you really don't want is to be in a room with thousands of people of which many are transmitting COVID. Then you're in bad shape. Even if they're not right next to you, you're in bad shape in that situation for 12 hours a day in that room. And that's why I didn't come, even though I got fully vaccinated five and a half months ago. But uh, And think about it, Druff. Like even forget about the cash incentives, which is a good reason for someone to get vaccinated anyway. If you're planning to work at a job where you're going to be stuck in a room with thousands of people, I would think that most people are going to be like, you know what? I should probably get that vaccine if I'm going to be dealing, you know? Yeah, that's probably also one of the reasons people got vaccinated who were uh, dealing there that otherwise weren't very pro-vax it's kind of like the very old people who get it at a much higher rate than young people because they're just in more danger so whether they really believe in the vaccine or not uh, they can't think you know what i'm really in danger of this virus so i'm going to get it anyway where if you're 25 it's easier to say hey i I don't need it but if you were it is a numbers game too right so even even if you're a dealer and you're unvaccinated if you're stuck in that room and all the players are required to be vaccinated, you have a much lower chance, even if someone is carrying it somehow, you have a much lower chance of getting it, you know? Yes, that's true, too. So it may actually be a lot safer at the World Series regarding COVID than I originally thought it was. And I think that uh, this is a good experiment, not an intentional experiment, but kind of an unintentional experiment for how effective the vaccines are at preventing transmission. Now, I brought this up on Twitter, and a lot of people, especially anti-vax types, attacked me and said, this isn't a good experiment. Where's the control? Where's this? Where's that? What about the fact that people are going and doing other things besides being at the Rio? What if they go out through other parts of Vegas, too? How do you account for that? Like, okay, look, it's not a perfect experiment, but this is the closest thing we have to people being indoors for that many days in a row, and then people go, wait, 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 wait. Not everybody is there for the whole World Series. A lot of them only come for a few days. Yes, but collectively, we have a lot of people there for a lot of days, and some people there the entire time, and they spend most of their time there, and that's where you would expect a lot of the exposure to be. And if you're not... Don't don't make rational arguments about this, because if someone has already decided that they are anti-vaccine, I think you're going to have a hard time having a rational argument with them. Yeah, I didn't go back and forth with them much, but I, I just... There's no point, man. I'm saying this is the best test we have of like putting a lot of people in a really dangerous-looking situation for COVID that would have been a disaster prior to the vaccine. Like, if we did this a year ago, it would have been a disaster. And we're seeing, like, no COVID cases that we know of. And again, I'm not saying zero COVID cases. I'm saying zero that we know of, which must mean it's very few. There's no chance there's like a major COVID outbreak there, and we're just not hearing about it. We would hear about I it because... I don't think you made a bad decision, though, man. I, I, 
I have no desire to go there. Well, that's I'm that's glad the, the experiment is going on, but that, that's the problem. Is I'm still a little kind of iffy on the whole thing because it just kind of feels yeah. <laughs> feels weird to go do that. It just you just walk right in, and especially I had the Pfizer. It's been five and a half months, and. Um, I, I, I was even going to research about the possibility of, of getting a booster, and uh, I couldn't even do that because I have this cold, and you're not even supposed to get uh, these any of these vaccines when you have a cold. In fact, I uh, proved that to myself 11 years ago when I got the flu shot and the Tdap shot right after having a cold, and I got shingles, which uh, oh, is pretty likely that came from the Tdap shot and the cold and the flu shot altogether. So that kind of uh, freaked me out as far as uh, ever getting vaccines again right after a cold. I, wa- I want to put a little distance between when the cold is finished and when I get the vaccine because I already had a bad experience with this. So anyway, good I'm, news, I'm though. I'm eligible for a booster on in five days. Oh, wow. And uh, I'm probably going to get it. You know, I don't, I don't see any real downside to it. I'm probably going to get it. Yeah, I, like I was starting to look into it, and around here, there's some places that are very hard line about the six months have to pass since you got the vaccine. Other places are less hard line about that. I, I didn't fully look into it because I had a cold anyway, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to do it even if I am eligible until the cold goes away. So uh, once this yeah, here is here, it's six months, and six months is October fifteenth. Away I go. Yeah, mine's mine's only a little bit after that. So yeah, uh, but the problem is if I get it, then really the whole World Series is going to pass by the time the two weeks pass after getting it. Even if I wait one week, it's you know there's not going to be much time left. So I, I got to make some decisions still. Uh, it, it did pain me to cancel the hotel rooms for the first half of the World Series, but I have I've canceled them all. It, it kind of felt funny to just go and hit can- cancel on those hotel rooms. I, I haven't had to do that before. Now, Druff, I have it's a, a, a quick tangent. I don't want to derail you, but you just reminded me that I ha- I have talked to my wife about some of your escapades in. Uh, Correcting the the wrongs against you at the various uh, hotels and dining establishments and stuff like that, and something like that kind of recently happened to my wife, and mm. she said, "I'm going to go channel my inner Todd and take uh, care of it." <laughs> I'm glad she took care of it. Like I, I was afraid this was going like in the direction of her uh, judging me and, and and speaking badly about me that I do this, but the the fact that she's channeling me is it's much better to hear. I'm happy, I'm happy yeah. to hear that. Now, you should. You know, the reason you should do this is because um, it's for the principle of the matter. Businesses don't deserve extra money of yours that they shouldn't be getting because they made a mistake. Or if you paid for something and you didn't really get what you paid for, then you should stand up for your rights as a customer because you should be getting what you pay for. And uh, you shouldn't make up problems in order to angle for free stuff. That's that's unethical and you shouldn't do it. However, if something really happens, then, yeah, speak up and... and uh, I, I've talked about this before. There's nothing wrong with it. And it's been shamed somewhat in recent years. They call people who do that Karens, and I, I don't agree with any of that. I, I think that uh, if you're just not getting the service or the product that you're paying for, then definitely say something. Or if uh, a service employee is mistreating you. Now, you should not mistreat them. You should treat service employees with respect. But if they don't treat you with respect, then yes, you should say something about it because they should not be doing that either everybody should treat each other with respect in fact it's more important for employees to treat customers respect with respect than vice versa though i think it's important both ways and i i don't like seeing customers who mistreat service employees and i've seen that before too and i don't like seeing it and and i'm not that guy but at the same time i'm not going to let them mistreat me and i'm also not going to let them just dismiss my concerns and just say tough luck then I, I'm, I'll have to speak up as well. And when well, I do thanks. speak, 
What was that? Well, thankfully, this wasn't a case of being mistreated. It was more incompetence, you know, like, um, what is it? Uh, there's some razor, but never ascribed to oh. uh, maliciousness what can more easily be exclaimed by stupidity. Yeah, yeah, that, that's uh, Caesar's razor. And Yeah, <laughs> right. No, I, I forget that it is Hanlon's razor is what it is, Hanlon's razor. But this was a case, it's kind of shitty because I, I bought my wife a gift card for her birthday. So it's supposed to be like this nice thing that she could use, and it turned into like this big hassle for just an employee that didn't know what they're doing, screwed up. But they were they were good about it. There was no anyone okay. trying to, to pull anything. But she did. She buckled down. She said, "I'm gonna pull. I'm gonna channel my inner Todd." And she walked off to go talk to him. That that is nice. I'm I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad I'm a, having a, an influence here. So I, I I guess I've had some influence here in your family. I I got your wife to complain about a consumer matter, and I got you to get a colonoscopy. <laughs> we both took it in the ass here. oh yes all right <laughs> so um moving on here uh one more thing about the covid situation that i kind of listed as a separate topic but it's kind of the same topic there is a bit of a hole in the world series of poker safety plan and i wasn't aware of this until someone informed me of it and i said yeah that is a pretty big hole and that is even though Players are all required to be fully vaccinated and present proof in order to take a seat at a World Series event. Visitors and spectators are not. (laughs) Now, in a little bit of the World Series defense, number one, technically, they are required to be fully vaccinated. And there's a lot fewer visitors and spectators than there are players. However, apparently this wasn't enforced at all. And I heard from numerous sources that said that they are making no attempt to verify the vaccination status of non-players. So if you just want to walk in and watch tables and watch the action, no one gives a crap and no one has any idea if you are vaccinated or unvaccinated, which is kind of a middle finger to the players who are required to be vaccinated to play. Because there are some who are not playing the World Series, such as uh, Kristen Bicknell and Alex Foxen, because they refuse to get the vaccine and therefore they can't play. And I don't disagree with the rule. And it's looking like so far that was a smart rule. But it is kind of crappy that spectators are not held to the same standard, even though they claim they would be. So that is a bit of a hole in the whole thing. Apparently, it hasn't had a negative effect yet. Maybe there's not enough spectators and visitors coming to where that can make that much of an impact but uh that is kind of a crappy thing like with the dealers i understood more because number one you just need dealers and if you just don't have dealers there's no game so if there's not enough vaccinated dealers then there won't be a poker game and number two there apparently are some labor laws in nevada that prevent it at least that's what i've heard so okay if that's the case that's the case but with the spectators there's no excuse with the spectators they could have a similar situation where they have to uh, get some kind of wristband or something to prove that they are vaccinated in order to enter the room and they're not being required to do so from what i've been hearing so that is a bit of a hole in the covid security procedure it's stupid and it is a bit of a slap in the face to the players who are being required to get vaccinated or stay home. So they kind of messed that one up. So far, it hasn't been a big deal, but it is uh, worth noting, and I wanted to bring it up. And as usual, even when Caesar does something right, they do something else wrong. 
Well, the other thing to keep in mind, Ruff, is while there are a vocal minority of people who are anti-vaccine for a variety of reasons, none of which I think are any good, to be honest with you, there are probably a whole lot more people that are feeling a whole lot more comfortable about coming to the event because that requirement is there, you know? Yes, and really this is kind of a one-two punch because not only are there the people who are coming because that requirement's there, but there's also a separate and sometimes uh, separate and sometimes not separate group of people who are coming because there is no mask requirement. There are some people who yeah. were not going to play just because a mask is uncomfortable to be in all day, and they just found it unpleasant. Not even necessarily anti-mask people, but just ones who just don't enjoy wearing them and did not want to uh, voluntarily come and do that uh, all day, every day. So once they eliminated that requirement, I think that did bring in some more people that otherwise were going to stay home, and that was made possible by the vaccine mandate the World Series has put in. So as I said, I'm not against that uh, vaccine mandate, especially if that is the main factor in why we have not had a major COVID outbreak at the World Series. Now, there could be one other factor, and that is Delta is starting to wane. It has really declined in California, but Nevada is right next to California. Nevada has a lot of visitors from California, and in a lot of areas of the country, including Nevada somewhat, there is a decline in uh, new COVID cases, really just from uh, Delta starting to uh, decline, and it hasn't really been replaced yet by anything else. There are other variants out there, but uh, Delta has been suppressing them because it's much more contagious and the others just can't take hold. I am a bit worried about some of these uh, more troublesome variants, the ones that can just bust right through the vaccine, kind of like that, like the Lambda variant is one of them, that the only reason they haven't been a big problem is because they just can't outdo Delta. Delta just uh, dominates them and they can't go anywhere. But if Delta disappears, uh, what will replace Delta? Maybe nothing will, but maybe something will. So we will have to watch for that. But that's probably not a concern during the World Series because uh, the World Series only goes for about another, what, five to six weeks. I don't see a major change by then. And if there's a change, it'll probably be a positive one in that we'll be seeing uh, declined, uh, declining cases of uh, new COVID. So, and that could also be the same reason, Druff. I mean, it could be that one of the reasons why Delta is declining is because of the vaccinations that are going on, you know? I mean, it, it, it may be, they may be related, is, a, is what I'm saying. It might not be entirely separate things, but do you, do you remember I was talking to you about maybe wanting to go fly over to Amsterdam for a conference that was going on in yeah. September? Yeah. So I ended up deciding not to do that. And then just after that, uh, I had already decided not to go, uh, Amsterdam changed, or the entire EU put, uh, their recommendation was that uh, Americans should no longer be on the safe travel list. <laughs> so they, they left the judgment up to individual countries in terms of whether to allow them or not. And that was largely because of the flare-ups in Florida and some other just really horrendous places where it was sur- surging. So the Netherlands... Uh, they took counsel on it and they decided, okay, yeah, we agree. We're going to ban, not ban, but we're going to require that Americans are going to have to quarantine and do all this kind of stuff. And that effectively caused them to cancel the whole conference, right? Mm. Well, you don't feel bad then. Then the whole thing got uh, canceled and you didn't really miss it. Well, I do kind of feel bad because I know the people that are, are running it. I'm kind of involved in that ecosystem because technically the event could still go on. 
because if you're from the Netherlands or from some other place, it would be no problem for the conference to continue. They none of the cancellation insurance or any of that stuff kicked in. So they had to eat everything. They had to oh, eat absolutely yeah, that's everything. That's pretty bad. <laughs> they canceled the conference, right? Ten days later, after they canceled the conference because of all of this, the Netherlands lifted that restriction on Americans and actually loosened up some other regulations too. They really just took it in the ass. Yeah, they did. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, at least you didn't miss out, though. At least selfishly, you can say you didn't miss out. Yeah, they they transitioned it to an online conference that actually still hasn't happened yet. But yeah, I actually kind of wanted to go to Amsterdam, to be honest with you. But, you know, that's the way it goes. Yeah, um, that's the way it is these days. A lot of things get uh, changed and canceled, and you just got to kind of deal with it. I, I sympathize with you know, people who don't want to sit at the World Series wearing a mask all day, because honestly, one of my my biggest consideration was I don't want to get stuck somewhere if there is some kind of a lockdown, which it turns out, like, potentially could have happened. But, I, you know, the, the idea of sitting on a plane for all that time, having to wear a mask, and then having to sit through the conference wearing a mask, I'm like, you know what, I'll just stay home, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's the safest option, to, especially if you're traveling somewhere. It's the last thing you want is to get stuck or be in a quarantine. Or well, it's I, more of an annoyance thing. I'm just like, you know what? I, I don't want to go so bad that I want to deal with that. You know what I mean? Just forget it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I, I totally can relate to that. So I was curious about the World Series of what type of numbers they would be drawing this year compared to two years ago. Of course, two years ago was before COVID started. So it was a normal World Series year. Did very well. In fact, the main event fell only a tiny bit short of the all-time record from 2006 of attendees. All the other events did very well. So it was a good year for the World Series in 2019, but lots changed since then. So the question was, how many people are going to show up for this? Number one, that it's not in the summer. Number two, that there's a vaccine mandate. Number three, that there are some people who are just uncomfortable with the whole thing, including me. So how many were going to be like me that stayed home, even if they were vaccinated? And I wondered this, and I wondered how many others would stay home because they didn't want to get the vaccine. Or if I have no idea on any of this, but I'm going to take a wild guess that the people that wanted to stay away were outweighed by the DGENs that were just dying to get in on some World Series action that they've been missing out on for a while. I'm going to guess it was actually pretty good. It actually uh, hasn't been anywhere nearly as good as in 2019, but it hasn't been a disaster. So I'll give you a good example. The World Series of Poker uh, 10K Limit Hold'em event, which is going on right now. It's heads up right now between uh, two people you probably heard of, one from poker, one not from poker. You have uh, Angry John Manetti, you probably heard of from poker, good player. And then Nate Silver is the other one, nearly even in chips for the 10K Limit Hold'em event. But yeah, there but were... in fairness, isn't that the uh, demographic of people most likely to get COVID, the people that are playing Limit Hold'em? No, 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 no. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, there were 92 entrants to this event, and... That's a pretty low number, even for this event, which doesn't get the a, a lot of entrance for $10,000 limit hold'em. I haven't seen under 100 in this 
for a long time. So uh, taking a look here at the number of entrants for the uh, 10,000 limit hold'em. Now, now in your mind, Ruff, because if the attendance is lower for this event, in your mind, does that put an asterisk next to the, the people that win the bracelets for this year? No, because it's not that much lower. So I'll tell oh. you what the oh. difference was. It was uh, 118 in 2019 and uh, 92 in 2021. So, okay. Yeah, so it's like 8% or something? No, no, it's a lot more than 8%. It's, it's uh, close to 20% down. But still, it's, uh, it's not like it's 50% down. Mm, it's not like okay. it's 70% down. 20% is substantial, and we're, we're seeing this in a lot of events. Uh, another one that's uh, more significant, because this one is uh, typically a, a much bigger field, uh, the 1500-08 event, which I'm sad that I missed. I, li- I like that event. But uh, the 1500-08 event in 2019 had 853 entrants. And uh, in 2021, they had 607. So you're seeing the pattern. It's like 20-something percent lower every time. Yeah. So this, I mean, this, this is not a coincidence. If there was no COVID, then we would be seeing similar numbers. It's not like 08 to dying game. Hold'em events? What about limit hold'em events? No, what about no limit hold'em events? Oh, no limit. So let's go to no limit hold'em. Okay. Yeah. So now, well, okay. So that's that's gets kind of more complicated because there's all these different gimmick no limit hold'em events that yeah. are not comparable completely to previous yeah. years. So there was this one that uh, they had called the reunion that started on October first. In fact, we had a few poker fraud alert people playing it, but I believe they got like twelve thousand something entrants. This is not unique entrance. This was uh, just entrance because it's almost 13,000. 12,973. It's almost 13,000. You can re-enter in this. Now, compare this to the Big 50, which was two years ago, which was very similar. Both were $500 buy-ins. Both were at the beginning of the series. And the only difference is that the Big 50, the first bullet was rake-free. So some people like that gimmick, and that probably drew more people. So it's not an apples-to-apples comparison. Still, it had fewer than half the people, or half the entries at least. Oh, wow. There were 28,000, roughly, entries to the Big 50 in 2019. In fact, that's how I ended up in that awful uh, warehouse, if you remember. And uh, that was brutal in there with a non-working air conditioner. But anyway... The funny thing was, with the six-hour lines that people had to register for that thing two years ago, they could have broken 30,000 if they didn't have these giant lines that were dissuading people from re-registering when they busted. Because if you just stood in a six-hour line, and you sit down and you bust on the third hand, you're not going to go sit on another six-hour line. Even if you're big to gen, you're probably just going to bounce. So I have to imagine that they lost a lot of potential entries on that that probably would have pushed it over 30K if they had a, a better situation there with the lines. So while they had an issue this time around, of course, like they always do with the lines and they mismanage the whole thing once again. So I guess there's some comparison there that Caesars was incompetent both times. But still, we, we had fewer than half the entries in the reunion versus the Big 50. And both of them were $500 re-entry, no limit events near the beginning of the series. So Shouldn't they be experts on this by now? Isn't this literally what they do? Um they should be, but they, they are not. So they, the biggest boneheaded mistake 
and I, I we saw this again this year, the biggest boneheaded mistake is at the beginning of the series, especially this year when you have all these people having to do this additional step of proving their vaccination status. The, when they have the few days leading up to the World Series, or even at the very beginning of the series, leading up to a giant field event like the reunion or like the Big 52 years ago, you would think that you would open up every cashier station 24-7 to make it to where the lines will be the least possible. What you don't do is leave one person manning the cash register to buy in for these events. But that's that's what they did in 2019, and that's what they did here. So what would happen is you'd go during the main hours, and it's just like a tremendous line because everybody's going at the same time, and you'd think, okay, I'll be smart and come back at 3 in the morning. You come back 3 in the morning, they have uh, one station open. <laughs> so, so you can't win. You can't win. So a lot of complaints about the beginning of the series with terrible lines, but you can't even say, oh, it's this year. Because it wasn't just this year. It, w- it, was, it was two years ago. It was the year before that. It was the year before that. They just have a very hard time at the beginning of the series with these big field events. They just can't understand that, that the day before that a lot of people are going to show up and they should hire more than one cashier to work the graveyard shift. It's crazy. Like they can't hire some additional contract employees to do this. It's, it's really not very much money they have to pay these people. And uh, you can say, well, it's hard to find employees because of COVID. Okay, yes, but what about two years ago? Where was COVID then? What about three years ago? So it's not a new thing. If, if it only happened this year, this would be the one time I would believe the COVID excuse. <laughs> but this happens every time, so it's not even about what, COVID. What, what about joining the rest of the world and you know being able to whip out your phone and as soon as you bust out, being able to just tap a button that says rebuy? You know, you know that's a good question, and I have an answer for you. All right. 14 years ago... They brought forth a very revolutionary concept. And I'm not being sarcastic here. It was revolutionary for 2007 that you could pre-register to the World Series of Poker events you wanted to play and pretty much get almost everything done. And you only needed to do like a last step by going to a kiosk to print your seat card. Some, Some very minor last step was required in person, but the rest you could do remotely. And some people were very excited about this because they knew about the lines at the beginning and they thought they would avoid it. And people asked me, are you going to pre-register? And I said, no. And they said, why wouldn't you do that? Do you like standing online? I go, no, I'll just show up at 2.30 in the morning and, and I'll register for events. And, uh, you know, if I stand on a small line at that point, then whatever. They said, well, I don't understand. Why don't you pre-register? And I said, because I don't trust them. I'm afraid there's going to be a tremendous fail and I'll be locked into it. Well, that's exactly what happened. There were six-hour lines for these kiosks because they were buggy, they were slow, they were crashing all the time, and once you started the process, you couldn't just back out and say, okay, you know what, I don't want to stand on this line, forget my pre-registration, let's just do regular registration. You couldn't do that. Once you started it, you had to complete it. So people really had to wait six hours to complete the registration for events they had already paid for. They They were really just ultimately pot committed there. So what a disaster. And ever since then, whenever they have a kiosk, there's more fail. Year after year after year, there's fail with the kiosks, including this year. Though I, I guess this year they finally improved after the first uh, few days, but there were kiosk problems again this year. Anytime I hear the word kiosk with World Series, I cringe and I just can't do it. I'd like to do it, but I can't do it. 
Now, I just have a hard time with this draft because there's so many businesses out there that you can do a, an incredible variety of things online, on your phone, just by tapping a couple buttons. I, I refuse to believe that the problem is so complicated that it couldn't be solved if they actually put you know, a, a decent team to work to attack it. Yes, that, that is all true. But with Caesars, it's much easier said than done. If Caesars, if, there, if there's a way to fail, they will find it. And I, I've, I've learned that over the years. And what I have learned is you don't, you don't join anything new that they're doing. What, what you do is uh, you stick to what's old and working as much as you can. And that's, that's the best advice I can give someone about the World Series is anything that sounds cool and new to do, uh, wait, wait some time for them to get the bugs out. Because uh, you you don't want to join in it as good as it sounds, it's going to end up really frustrating you. And Man, year after I, I year, people... food online, I ordered my car insurance online, I even bought my car online at a couple wow. of clicks. Like, how can they not? I mean, give me a break. <laughs> just give me a break. There's just tons of fail. What can I say? I, I wish back to what we're talking about before about the the different events, like the thing. And this may be an incorrect perception, but I kind of feel like. Events like Limit Hold'em and 08 and, and those kind of non-no-limit Hold'em events are more people that are in the industry, you know? And I look at the recreational part of it as no-limit Hold'em for the most part. That's why I was curious about what those no-limit Hold'em events look like. I guess we have to wait until we have some more data, huh? Yeah, but I will say that uh, the belief that like Limit Hold'em is, is mainly just people who've been like in the industry, that's that's not quite true. There's a lot of recreational players who joined the game a while back, but are definitely recreational players that enjoy Limit Hold'em. In fact, yeah. uh, attorney Eric Benzamokin, who's who's no poker pro, you know, he's a great attorney, but he's not a poker pro by any means. He uh, he likes playing Limit Hold'em. In fact, he is uh, planning to show up for one of the, for the last uh, Limit Hold'em event. He told me, and uh, so it's a, he's an example of someone who's a uh, a professional, a middle aged professional who just enjoys poker and and goes uh, a little bit back with the game to where they just got to enjoy Limit Hold'em and uh, he plays No Limit too but uh, I'm just like, it, like it's appealing for him to play No Limit or Limit Hold'em and uh, in fact when I sit at Limit Hold'em events especially the ones that are uh, like like the 1500 I, I see a lot of uh, recreational players there who I, I, you know, a lot of them are older players it's not like 20-year-old, couldn't be 20, but 25-year-old recreational players. You don't have that many of those, but you have plenty of middle-aged recreational players that just uh, got to like Limit Hold'em over time when it was a bigger game and, and still like to come out and play it. So, And you also get your uh, poker pros or yeah. people that are you know want to be poker pros that are good at No Limit that they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll register for this Limit Hold'em event. I know this game, you know, and you, you love it when they sit down. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, what's funny is they're always so dismissive, too. They're, they they think it's yeah. just so easy and it's so simple and they make all these boneheaded moves. I'm like, okay, that's a, this person is probably going to be dead money. Because I used to play tons of horse and seven game and that type of thing. And we, we just absolutely loved it when No Limit and other Pot Limit uh, Omaha uh, players came over to sit because they would just get decimated in some of those other games. It's yeah, no, it's it's uh, that that's a problem. Is sometimes the no limit holdem players can get arrogant and they think that if they're very good no limit holdem players and if they understand the other games, that's all it takes. They're just going to be naturally well, good at the other games because they they're not used to being limited in terms of what they can bet, and they just they go on this really interesting variant of tilt i've noticed well yeah and and also they 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 misunderstand some concepts like that it's harder to bluff when the person clearly has a strong hand 
or, or that you know, the slow playing isn't as uh, big a thing as it is in uh, No Limit Hold'em. So there's, there's yeah. the value betting is is much bigger in limit games. So these these are all concepts they kind of miss. So yeah. and they don't realize it till it's too late. But uh, anyway, getting back to our uh, World Series discussion here, the numbers are definitely down so far, and I expected them to be down. I would have been shocked if they were very close, but they're not as bad as they could have been. So this isn't a disaster. Good man. Yeah, that's kind of what I think. Like, I I see them down. I go, okay, it's definitely down, but it's like this could have been really terrible. Like they they could have been getting thirty percent of normal crowds, and that would have really sucked. So if they're getting seventy percent, seventy five percent, eighty percent, okay, you know, there's a lot that has happened in the last two years, and it's a different time of year. That also, it's very possible that if you move the World Series in a year that had nothing to do with COVID, let's say there was no COVID, and just for some reason they couldn't hold it in the summer this year, and they moved it to the fall, there's a possibility we would have had lower numbers anyway just from that. So that's uh, another reason you can't quite compare them is it is at a different time of year as well, and this time of year may be less convenient. In fact, uh, if you have kids in school it can be less convenient because what will happen is uh, when one parent leaves to go play the World Series, it leaves the entire burden on the other parent. And then that can piss off the other parent. I'm going to go play cards for the next couple of weeks. Right. And that (laughs) it really can cause a problem. So that's that's something to consider as well. And and there are a lot of players in that age group that have school-age kids. So there's a lot of different factors that could come together here that would make people not even want to show up in the fall, even completely ignoring COVID. So I think they're doing okay so far, numbers-wise. And I think this is about as good as they could have hoped for. I, I really didn't see it being much better than this, even in kind of like a best-case scenario. I just I just didn't see a world where we're going to have very similar numbers in these events to 2019. It just didn't look likely to me. But we'll see as it goes on. Maybe it'll change, but so far I'm kind of seeing across the board reduced numbers. So I want to talk about a nice thing that happened. I always root for people who listen to this show or who post on the forum, anyone who has any kind of a poker fraud alert association. Now, like band users, I, I, I don't root for them, but uh, everybody else who has any kind of a PFA association, I root for them when I, say they're, when I see they are doing well in the World Series. Now, we don't have all that many top poker pros who listen to the show. We have some, and we have some who listen irregularly, but uh, I know that uh, we have two very regular listeners who are very good players with a track record of success in tournaments, and that would be uh, Matt Glantz and Ari Engel. And I'm pleased to report that both of them made a final table. Uh, Matt Glantz, unfortunately... Uh, he uh, did not get that close to winning because he came in with a short stack and he was uh, out ninth in his event. I, and I, I sent him a text when I saw that he made the uh, the final table, and I, I wished him luck and I, I said I hope you uh, hope you take it. But at the same time, I was like, well, he's going to need some luck here because he's got, he's a short stack. Which uh, you know, it's it's uh, still always very nice to make the final table at the World Series, even if you are the short stack. I think he was the second shortest coming in. But uh, this was at the 25K horse, which is a pretty prestigious event. So this wasn't like just some uh, uh, low buy-in event. I mean, this this was a 
25k buy-in event with a very tough field as you might guess you're not going to get a lot of recreational players plunking down 25k to play horse so uh matt glance uh, did finish ninth place and uh so far cry from the first place uh, prize of a uh, 500 552k uh matt glance cashed uh, 52k he did finish one spot ahead of daniel negranu who finished 10th uh, there were 12 cashers in this. There were 78 people who entered this event. And uh, at that final table was one uh, Phil Helmuth as well, who finished in sixth. So anyway, I know that Matt Glantz was hoping for better than ninth once he made that final table, but he was short-stacked. So still a very nice uh, accomplishment there, though, at that uh, tough event to make the final table. And uh, then we had uh, our other prominent PFA listener who's in the poker world, uh, Ari Engel, known to some as Bodog Ari. He's been around forever. There are some people who don't realize that Ari is homeless. And I kid you not, he really is homeless, but not in the traditional way of being homeless. He is voluntarily homeless. He's not living under a bridge and, uh, and trying to get his next drug fix. That's not Ari Engel. Ari Engel is a religious Jew who travels around the world and plays poker and has decided just not to keep a permanent home. Yeah, now, that ain't no homeless person, Drew. That's someone who's on permanent <laughs> vacation, okay? So, so Ari, I, you know, I couldn't do this, but uh, yeah, Ari, he seems to enjoy it, and he goes around and plays tournament, tournament after tournament. And at the World Series, I guess that's the most stable home he has because of the length of it. But uh, Ari really likes 08 tournaments. And uh, I actually played with him before at an 08 tournament, and he mentioned how he, uh, he really liked that. In fact, I, I think we had played the day before at a Limit Hold'em tournament, and he said that uh, he didn't like having... I'm, I'm forgetting if he was at my table there, but I know he told me at the 08 tournament, when we were at the same table, that uh, he wouldn't like having me at the Limit Hold'em tournament with him at the same table, but that with the 08 tournament that... Uh, he feels confident against anybody because he, he really, really likes those tournaments and he really feels he has a good shot at them. Well, he definitely proved that here because at the tough 10K08 tournament, he not only made the final table, but he got down to heads up for the bracelet. And I was rooting for Ari very much throughout. And at one point, Ari was dominating and it looked like he was going to easily cruise to that bracelet because with four left, he had about like 60-something percent of the chips and nobody else was close. It was like him and then everybody else was, was much shorter than him. So I thought Ari's just going to crush everybody and cruise to it. But a lot of times in tournament poker, it just doesn't work out that way. So the three opponents, he entered into day four with uh, five people left. It was him a person named Zachary Milchman, I've never heard of before, uh, Andrew Ye, Eddie Blumenthal, and one Phil Helmuth again. He's popping up, Mr. Helmuth. But uh, it was uh, Phil Helmuth's second final table. But once again, he finished in the middle of the pack. Helmuth was the first one out, finishing fifth. Then Blumenthal went, and then Ye went. And that was all pretty quick. What was not quick was the heads-up battle. Ari could not get... He, he couldn't end this, but at the same time, he wasn't getting ended either. So he and Zachary Milchman, for the most part, were staying even 
for hour after hour after hour. So not only was this taking forever to complete, even though the blinds were escalating, but I wasn't seeing a lot of movement. It was amazing. Like the one, the, Ari would win a pot, then Zachary would win a pot, and go back and forth, back and forth. And uh, the best I ever saw Zachary get was uh, about a two-to-one advantage over Ari, but Ari quickly recovered from that and, and drew about even again. There were times that Ari had Zachary very short, only to have Zachary come back and pull the even. But for the most part, every time I looked at the damn thing, they were very close to even. There were 8 million ships at this uh, uh, final table, and they were both very close to 4 million most of the times I looked. It was pretty amazing. Anyway, this went back and forth, on and on and on and on, for six hours. And finally, Ari put him away. My God. Finally. Ari. That's amazing. A six you know hour. What? Do you know if they, they made a deal? Hopefully no, they make a deal I, I don't. That, I have a feeling he didn't. Or anything. Yeah, I have a feeling he didn't. That's just kind of my feeling. I have no knowledge of this, but I, I have a feeling he didn't. But boy, six hours, that's very stressful. Even for, for a guy like Ari who plays so many of these tournaments, this is for a bracelet. Ari has a bracelet already, so it wasn't his first bracelet, but it was for his second bracelet. I'm sure he really wanted it. And he also said that he really wanted the 10K08 bracelet because if you remember what I just said, Ari really likes... 08 tournaments. He feels very confident at 08 tournaments. He's very excited to play these. And there aren't that many of them out there. So he really wanted the 10K 08 bracelet, which is called the 08 Championship. So he really wanted an 08 Championship bracelet. And here he's dominating everybody with four left. And this Milchman guy, who's not even a known player, this is now he has some results, but I've never heard of him before. I looked at this picture, I didn't recognize him. I don't even know who this guy is. I'm not saying he's a bad player. I'm just saying I don't know who he is. I don't know if Ari knew who he was. But uh, this guy hung in there, and, and they played and played. It took six hours, and it must have been grueling. And the whole time, you know there's over 100K on the line because uh, first place was 317,000, and second was 195. So there's more than 100K on the line. And the bracelet for this 08 championship event. It now, takes a lot of focus, Druff, to be able to do that for six hours. Heads up, man. That's really good. Yeah, yeah. So not only wow. that, but uh, uh, this Milchman guy, apparently uh, he's good at 08 as well. So even though I didn't know who he was, uh, he does have a history in 08 where uh, he previously uh, finished second in an 08 event, and he also finished uh, sixth in an 08 event at the World Series. So in 2014, he was second at the 3K08, which is now defunct, but uh, back then it existed. And then he got sixth in the 2016 1500-08 at the World Series. So obviously this Milchman guy can play 08. And he's probably a cash game player too, I'm sure. Yeah, he probably is. So so uh, it's not like Ari was playing a fish there. He was playing a guy who probably was pretty tough. And... Uh, and just he had to hang with a guy for six hours, but he finally did it. And I, I, it was after midnight when I saw this happen. And I was wondering if it ever was going to end. It just seemed like they were constantly stuck at around four million, four million each in chips. Finally, Ari did it. He took home the three seventeen k, provided there's no deal, and and the bracelet, his second bracelet. So congratulations to Ari. Very happy to see. You won that. By far, that's the event that I was paying attention to the most so far in this World Series, and uh, by far the uh, um, biggest uh, rooting I was doing for someone. Uh, no offense to Matt Glantz. He just uh, 
wasn't at the final table very long because he came in short. So uh, Ari was there for all those hours. So I, I spent a lot of time refreshing and uh, hoping that Ari gets it. So yeah, we have a uh, multiple bracelet winner now who uh, won. How about a little applause sound effect for there, for Ari? Huh? I, I don't you have it. Cue, cue that one. I, up? I guess no? I, I guess I can quickly bring one up. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was that that was tough. And the last hand. Uh, there, there's a little discussion on Poker Fraud Alert about it, and the last provided that Poker News reported it properly, which is a big if. But uh, it was described that uh, Milchman called when he had eight eight four two with a four and two being suited, and there was some discussion between me and another poster on the site of whether that was right to do, or if when you're that short stacked, you just go in with the eight eight four two with the 4-2 being suited. And I know some of you probably don't really know Omaha 8 or better, which is a high-low game, but uh, both me and the other person believe that that, w- that probably would have been the right approach to just put it in at that point because there's a lot of ways you can end up splitting the pot. Uh, there's ways you can scoop the pot. There's just You have a pretty good chance to at least win half the pot here against like just some hand any hand that someone would be raising from the button heads up, which could be a very wide range. So 8-8-4-2 is, is pretty good there. And uh, but that's not what he did. What he ended up doing was he called, and then when the board didn't come down very well for either of them, then uh, uh, Ari bet, and then at that point he decided to put it all in, and they did. So the, the good news for Zach Milchman was that no matter what way he chose to play that hand, he would have gone broke. So if he put it all in with Ari pre-flop, it would have run out the same way, or if, if he just waited till the turn to, to bet that it would have all gone in somehow and he would have still lost. So it, it, that part didn't really matter. But uh, someone remarked in the thread that they, that this Zach Milchman didn't play that last hand very well. And I said, look, it's after six hours. It's <laughs> six hours heads up for a bracelet and, and Zach Mil- Milchman was short and it probably was in his head, oh shit, I'm going to finish second again. How which, many blinds did he have at that point? Uh, not not many. It was it was it was one which he really didn't have much post flop play, play left. So was he in for the big or, or was he small? No, he was uh, he was the big. So uh, Ari raised from the button and he chose to just yeah. call instead of put it in. And I think they had like three bets left on the flop or four bets on the flop, and that was it. So I I kind of would rather just put it in. That's what I would do because eight eight four two has a lot of especially with a four two being suited. There's a lot of ways you could squeeze out at least a chop on that one and and very well scoop it. So, I mean, well, because, what are you going to do? Are you going to call and then fold? That's like, the problem. Like, like king like, queen uh, jack board or something. Well, then that's what happened. The board's like jack ten six, and you didn't quite know what to uh, do. Yeah, yeah. So, and Ari didn't exactly hit that either. But like, uh, like it's it's hard to fold for that many blinds left. So you might as well just put it in. So at least if your opponent completely misses, then you're you're going to double off him instead of. Uh, yeah, just having him yeah. fold. So, but but you know what? That's I don't want to be the guy. I've heard rough. <laughs> yeah, I, like I don't want to be the guy who criticizes the final hand of the guy who's like about to again finish second yeah. in '08 after a six-hour heads-up match against Ari. Like, I, yeah, you're going to make some mistakes at that point. So, um, it's a lot easier for me or other forum people to just read the hand and go, "Hey, I would have played that better." Yeah, but not after six hours of heads-up for a bracelet. So, well, even forgetting that they've been playing for six hours, that short stacked, you know, I don't know. I, I've seen people make far worse plays. I've seen people actually 
fold in situations that are a lot worse than what what he did so yeah yeah whatever i've seen that too yeah so like it wasn't awful it was just it, you know he I, I the correct play would have been a little bit different but on again in his defense uh it would have ended up the same anyway and he would have been playing for six hours heads up and uh all that so can't be results oriented rough come on I know. I'm just. I'm just saying. He can't even go. Oh man! If only I played this one differently. Why did I mess up the last hand? Like it's a lot easier to live with yourself yeah. when you mess a hand up when it would have ended up the same anyway. Yeah. So anyway, uh, good for Ari. Very happy for him. He did this. He now uh, leads me in bracelets. I'm a bit uh, resentful about that, but nevertheless, I will give him some applause. There you go. There we go. You know what my strategy for winning a bracelet is, Drew? My strategy is I'm just going to wait until some pro that has won a bracelet goes broke, and I'm going to buy one from a pawn shop somewhere. My strategy is actually to wait for the World Series to get so greedy where they let you actually buy in at the final table. There you go. <laughs> I don't think that's too far off. I bet like in 2025 that'll be uh, something you can do. Yeah. So anyway, uh, glad to see Ari won that bracelet. Glad to see Matt Glantz made a final table. And uh, hopefully uh, there will be more winning among uh, PFA listeners and maybe even uh, forum members. So that was a nice thing to see there. I want to talk about uh, the Kelly Minkin controversy. That's uh, something that just happened over the last few days. Have you heard about this one? I have not heard about this Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yes, I did actually. I actually read... The thread on PFA and oh. I read some of the tweets on it. Yeah, okay. I did. So, Kelly Minkin is kind of an interesting girl, and the whole like, the whole story surrounding her, I don't quite fully understand. So, Kelly Minkin brings a lot of positives to the table. She's attractive. She's a good poker player. She's done very well in the main event. She uh, is obviously very smart. She has, like, a like a few college degrees and is a lawyer and uh, a lot of, uh, and, and from what I hear, she seems to be pretty nice from what I've heard from people that uh, know her. And she hasn't done anything like shady. There's, re- there's really not any bad stories about her. So in, in all those senses, uh, there's a lot of good things to say about Kelly Minkin. At the same time, there's a few oddities I don't quite understand. Number one, uh, she is currently a partner in Mac Verstandig's law firm, which is not a big law firm, which is a little bit weird to me because I've never seen her practice law. And it's one thing to kind of join on, you know, in case she wants to uh, work with Mac or something within, in one of these poker cases. But uh, from what I've seen, and I, I've seen, like I've, I've semi-followed like what Mac's been doing because we cover it on this show. I've never seen that she has actually worked one of these cases. Now, maybe there have been, and I just haven't seen them. So I'm not claiming she hasn't. I just, I just haven't seen it. So you got to do something to become a partner. That, that's what's weird. Is like, how is she the partner? <laughs> I would understand like if she's just one of the associate attorneys there. But every time I see that Mac's firm is handling a case, it always seems to just be him. And uh, so maybe she's doing work in the background. But uh, I, I was really surprised when I saw partner. And she didn't originally, she wasn't like originally part of the Mac for Standing firm. She joined later. And I, I didn't even know if she had any prior experience as a practicing attorney. She's obviously licensed to practice. But that, that's one oddity to me. Like, how, how is she a partner there? And I, I've never attempted to find out. Like, I'm, I'm not going to be that nosy or, and it doesn't matter that much to me. It's just kind of an oddity I noticed. 
A second oddity about uh, Kelly Minkin is she has some, some sort of uh, obsession with hip-hop when she's like the least hip-hop person I've ever met. Well, maybe a little more hip-hop than I am, but uh, not by much. But uh, she just doesn't... If you meet her, if you, if you see her personality, like it just doesn't fit. And she did this weird shuffle-up-and-deal thing two years ago, and I was actually present for it, where she did like a rap, and everyone's kind of like staring at each other, going, what? What's this like 32-year-old white girl doing rapping to us? It was really strange. And, and I don't understand it, because she doesn't need to do anything like that. Like she, she has enough going for her where she doesn't need to be the, the, the hip-hop uh, poker girl. It, just, it doesn't make any sense. It just, that, that's not yeah, exactly... Maybe it's her thing, man. It just doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit, in my opinion, from what I've seen. I mean, she can do it, but it just, it just got a little bit odd to me. So th- there's some oddities with her. But uh, overall, she has a good reputation. Overall, there's respect for her in the poker world. Then there was a controversy this week involving her, which is really the first controversy that I know of that she's ever been involved in. Uh, she has kind of a soft-spoken personality for the most part, so she's not one of these really brash people who's looking for drama. She's, she's not a Kate Hall. And uh, she, she will sometimes put her opinion out on Twitter, and sometimes it'll be like semi-controversial stuff, but she's, not, she's really not someone who's looking to inject herself into controversial situations. And as I said, she doesn't do anything bad. She doesn't scam anyone or cheat anyone and doesn't angle people. And she, you know, she doesn't seem to do crappy things. So she just hasn't been part of controversy. And that's to her credit. That's, that's good that she hasn't been part of controversy. However, this past week, she was part of controversy. And it's a little bit of an odd situation. So uh, it's a little bit hard in this whole situation, even though I know all the details now, to say exactly what the right thing was here for all parties involved. So the whole thing started when someone called something out on Twitter and didn't name the person they were talking about at first. So a guy named Adam Hendricks, uh, who's on Twitter as Adam Hendricks 10 posted the following on October 8th. He said, I was informed yesterday, referring to October 7th, a well-known pro, upon sitting down for the WSOP 6 Max, asked the floor to be unregistered. The floor said they would not be able to re-register the same event. A few hours later, the player was seen in the same event, floor notified, and no punishment given. This is alarming for, from both the player and the WSOP. As well, who knows how many times this has been done by others, let alone this certain player. Now, for those of you who don't understand what this guy is trying to say, everybody has the right one time per series to unregister from any event they've registered in for any reason, provided they have not actually played a hand yet. So you can even unregister after the event began if you haven't shown up. So let's say uh, you, you go on a drunken bender and you, you oversleep the event and you just don't show up. You, go, you wake up and go, oh my God, I, I just registered for a 5K event and I didn't show up and I probably blinded out by now. I didn't, I didn't think I told you about that. I was trying to keep it a seat. I said, let's say. I didn't say you. But again, the cat's out of the bag now. But anyway, uh, if Calwatt were to uh, panic and think he just pissed away 5K, he'd get the good news that provided this hasn't happened another time that same series, that he could go and get a refund. Now, if you play one hand or more than one hand and then say, ah, you know what? Uh, I don't like how I'm doing so far. I went on registry. Can't do that. But if you have not taken your seat yet, 
you are allowed to unregister one time for any reason. It really can be any reason. You don't have to give a reason. You say, I want to unregister, and you can use your one time. In fact, if you want to be an angle shooter, you can even do it if uh, you don't like the starting table you were given. However, as you might guess, something that definitely shouldn't be allowed is re-registering the same event. Otherwise, you could angle that way, especially towards the end of the series when uh, you know you're probably not going to need that one time, and you might as well use it to unregister and re-register and get a better starting table. So there supposedly was a rule that you could not unregister and then re-register in the same event. That once you unregister, you will get a refund, but you cannot re-register in that event. You can play other events, you just can't re- play that event. And that is to prevent people from leaving a table that they don't like and get assigned to a different table, which would be a big vulnerability if this was allowed to be done. So, Adam Hendricks was complaining that a, quote, well-known pro, I'm sure you can guess who that is, given the intro to the segment, a well-known pro sat down to a six-max event at the World Series, six-max no-limit event, unregistered, and then re-registered and was at a different table, and then when people complained, the floor said, nope, we're not doing anything. So Adam Hendricks did not call out who this player was. However, this player called themselves out, and that was Kelly Minkin. Kelly Minkin quoted the tweet and said, he's talking about me. For some reason, she deleted that tweet, but the rest of her tweets on the matter are not deleted. So she's not trying to cover it up, but for whatever reason, that's deleted. But uh, I, I maybe because it's a little bit confusing because she quoted the tweet but didn't elaborate further. But then if you click through to look at her account on Twitter, which is the illest, the underscore I-L-L-L-E-S-T, three L's, the underscore I-L-L-L-E-S-T, which Man, again is... Kidding. She is into that hip-hop thing, huh? She really is. She's the, she's the illest. But anyway, uh, if you click through, which I didn't do at first, but uh, someone told me to do, and then I did, and I was like, oh yeah, she did explain it. So she did give an explanation. Here's what she said. I was seated at a late reg table, meaning just a new table they start up after the event already began, three-handed for um, approximately uh, 25 minutes with two people I didn't know. Or I was seated, not I was sitting at. That was, Sitting at means that she would have played for 25 minutes. But she, she was seated at there um, with two people, but they hadn't, basically she's saying she hadn't started play yet. Even though the, uh, the event had already started, they hadn't started at the table because they, they were waiting for more players at the table. So it's her and two random she claimed she didn't know. A player who has harassed me in the past and stolen money from me was seated at the table next to me. Since play hadn't started, I asked the floor if I was able to unregister because of this. He said that was totally within my right. I registered hours later. The sensationalism for likes in these, quote, guess who tweets from the poker community is played and lame at Adam Hendricks 10. So he's trying to shame Adam Hendricks for bringing this up, which I think is kind of crappy because he had every right in the world to bring this up. This is a real concern. He didn't even name her. So it's not even like he was trying to uh, shame her. He was nice enough not to say her name. She outed herself. Then she went on to say, uh, according to Adam Hendricks, he, quote, checked his sources but didn't clarify with the actual players at the table. PM'd him for clarification and got left on read, meaning that he read her PM and didn't respond. So she was pissed at him and trying to make him look bad for calling this out, which I, I think was inappropriate. I think had, he had every right to call it out, especially because he didn't call her out. He just mentioned a player did this. So anyway, let's talk about what she did there and whether it was okay. So she had not played a hand. 
she was waiting for a late registration table to have enough players to start going, but was sitting here with her stack and hasn't been dealt a hand yet. Two other people at the table. Remember, it's a six max table, though, so it is half the table there. They're waiting for, I don't know how many to start, maybe four, maybe five, but they're at three. And then she notices a dude sitting down, not at her table, but the next table over, who has, quote, stolen money from her and harassed her in the past. She felt uncomfortable around this guy and decided to unregister. Okay, now, up till this point, I'm totally with her. Why? Because you have the right to unregister at any time for any reason. So you could just be sitting at the table and go, you know what? I'm just not feeling it today. I, I just don't want to play today. And, and leave, and that's completely fine. If that's within the rules, which it is, then you can do it. And I will not hold it against anybody. That's something they offered everybody. But the re-registering part, she went and re-registered hours later, ended up at a different table, and played on, and people are mad about this. So, do I think this story is true? Yes. I don't think she was angling. I think, I do believe, even though I can't verify, I do believe that she probably was at a table with two randoms, and she didn't know if they were good or bad, had not played a hand yet, wanted to unregister, and then came back a few hours later to do it. Now, she's claimed since then, because some people asked her if she was aware that this was against the rules to re-register, and she said actually she wasn't. Uh, Now, this is where the story gets a little hard to understand, but uh, Joseph Cheong, you know, who made the World Series of Poker main event final table at one point, he said, out of curiosity, the floor said you can register again later seems very angleable. And she said, he didn't say I could or couldn't. So that does show that when she, when she re-registered, it does seem to indicate that she just went and did it and hadn't been told she can or could not. But then she also claimed that uh, someone looked into this. So she said, uh, it actually in response to a tweet I wrote about the matter, she said, it also wasn't just the floor's decision. He radioed and asked his superior who okayed it. So I don't know if she meant okayed the re-registering or okayed the unregistering. The unregistering should have been obvious. So I don't know why he'd need to get a uh, supervisor. Maybe because it was a late reg table. But uh, as far as I know, if you haven't played a hand, you can always unregister. Or haven't been dealt a hand, that is. Well, when you re-register, the floor is not even involved. Right. right. That's the other weird thing. So it, and then, so, uh, then Joseph Chiang also said to her, also, everybody knows you can't re-register. How, is that a, how wasn't that a question that was asked immediately if the floor didn't address? Curious who the floor was as well. So basically, Joseph Chiang saying, how could you not have known this? And if you did know it, why didn't you ask? Why didn't you ask, can I do this? And she said, I didn't know that. I've never unregistered a tournament for any reason, hence why I asked the floor. So what's kind of unclear about this is whether she means that she asked the floor if she could unregister or if she could re-register. Because here it kind of implies she was asking if she could re-register, and he radioed and asked if she could. But then she also said in an earlier tweet that she wasn't told she could or couldn't. So I, I think if I can kind of put all this together, I kind of think that they radioed and asked if she could unregister, maybe because of the late registration situation. And they said she could, which is the correct decision. And then she just kind of went back and re-registered a few hours later for whatever reason the World Series didn't catch it. And maybe they don't even have... Because I've I've never had the floor involved when registering for anything. Yeah, right. So, no, the question is, did she say this before she left? Did she say, hey, if I want to come back later and re-register, can I? And then is it possible that they asked and said yes? and did something to the computer to allow her to re-register? Or was it just the World Series computer shit the bed, or it doesn't even have 
any feature in there to prevent this from happening. Maybe there is. It ain't so, Druff. Are you saying that they may not have had a technical failure? Yes. Is that what you're saying, Druff? It's possible this was never even programmed to prevent. That would be really yeah. scary if that was just people could just do this all the time. So anyway, uh, I do believe a few things. I believe that her story about why she wanted to unregister is true. I believe she was not angle shooting. She wasn't trying to get away from these two players who she thought were great players. I do believe that uh, she probably was ignorant to the re-registration rule, having never done it before, and just kind of took the shot. Now, it is possible that she thought it may not be possible and was kind of like, don't ask, don't tell. It was kind of like, okay, I'm going to go up and see if it works. And if it works, then obviously they're letting me, but I'm not going to ask permission specifically because maybe they'll say no. But So if I do it and they accept it, then obviously it's okay. We'll just leave it at that. Like It is possible that was her approach. Because let's look at this here. This is not a stupid person. This is a, a, a person who is an attorney. It's a person with multiple college degrees. This is obviously a bright girl. It's hard to believe she's like the one poker pro who, who won't even like stop to think that maybe re-registering isn't okay. I, I am willing to believe that she didn't know it's like really frowned upon and supposed to be not allowed. But uh, I, I might believe that she thought it could possibly not be okay, but thought that the way she'll test it is just to go up and try it. And if it works, it works, and didn't expect that people would notice this. But th- that's kind of a thing that she should expect is going to happen, because she is someone that people are going to notice there. There are not that many females in the Six Max No Limit events. She's a known player. She's a pretty girl. Like People are going to notice when she's there, and then she's gone, and then she comes back. It's not like there's some dude unregistering no one's going to notice. Like th- This is someone who is going to be noticed. So I have a question for you, Drew. Yeah. Get a question. So her whole reason for wanting to unregister is she noticed a guy at the table next to her that had harassed her and stolen money from her. What changed in that half hour or whatever between her unregistering and registering? Wouldn't the guy still be there? Wouldn't the the reason for her not wanting to be there still be there? I don't. Well, yeah, she never really addressed that. So some people assume that maybe the guy busted by then. Some people assume that she got put at a table far away enough from him that she just didn't want to be like right next to the guy, like one table over. You never know. I mean, you could get put at a random table. Tables get reshuffled. She easily could end up with the guy again. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's possible she could have walked the floor and looked if he was still there. And he was just yeah. gone, and she felt safe How to re-register. How long passed, did you say? It was a few hours later. So oh, it was a few hours. Okay. But, but here's my question about the whole thing. Why didn't she just go to the floor? If she had this concern about this guy, why didn't she go to the floor and say, hey, there is a guy here at this next table. He hasn't started with me yet. Because notice he didn't harass her in this event. He didn't say a word to her. She just noticed he was there. So why didn't she go to the floor and say, hey, there's this guy who's harassed me in the past and stolen from me, and I'm scared of him. And uh, um, can you watch? And if I call you over, it's probably about him. So can you just kind of make sure to get over here pretty quickly and, and protect me if he's going to start up? I'm sure the floor would say, okay, what are they going to say? No, you're, you're, you know, you're going to have to defend yourself. Of course, like some, some girl says she's worried about some creepy dude that, that's going to harass her in the event. They're going to say no. Of course, they're going to say, yeah, sure, we'll help you out. Don't worry. If he starts up, we're going to boot him. Like, I, I can totally see that's exactly what they would say if she brought that to their attention, like quietly, not even getting, not even letting the guy hear. And, and, and second, she could even say it to the other dudes at the table. Like, if this guy were to start with her, if she were to say to the other dudes at the table, hey, this guy is harassing me all the time. He stole from me. I'm afraid of him. You know, I'm sure there'd be plenty of dudes at the table who would stand up for her. 
So I, I think she was worrying about this for nothing. I don't, it's not even like he was at her table. It's, it's one thing to be at the same table with someone that's harassed you and you just don't want to be like right there with them there. It's just so unnerving to her. I could see her wanting to get out. But this was a little bit weird with him being the next table over and not even saying a word to her yet. But fine. Again, it is up to her if she wants to unregister and not play. So if you have the right to, uh, to do that for any reason, then this qualifies as any reason. So I can't question that part. I just think it's a bit weird for a reason. But some people did bring up something that was a fair objection. And uh, I do have to wonder myself if uh, this might be a factor. Some people said that they can't picture that this would have been allowed if it involved a dude. Especially not a dude who's like a well-known pro. Like we're not talking about Phil Helmuth saying that someone was harassing him. I'm telling you that just some random player at the World Series, even just kind of a, a semi-known pro, but not any kind of big name, a male. If if a dude said, hey, there's a guy who stole money from me here and has harassed me before, um, I want to unregister. I mean, if you haven't unregistered before, they'll say yes. But if you want to come back and say, hey, uh, can I re-register now? Because uh, that guy's gone now. I bet they'd say no. Now, it does kind of sound like that she just went and did it without asking permission. But again, there's some confusion about that. But even if she went and did it, I think they probably would say something, or at least a good chance they would, to anybody else. But with her, they may have made an allowance, maybe because she's a pretty female, maybe because she's a well-known pro, uh, maybe because of both. There's definitely favoritism at the World Series, and and not even just gender-based favoritism. There's massive favoritism for very well-known male poker pros at the World Series, like Mr. Phil Helmuth like yeah. Phil Ivey. So there is a lot of favoritism that goes around there. I've seen it. I've seen it right in front of my face. And in fact, when I've seen it in front of my face, it's been involving other dudes. So this isn't even like a gender thing. But uh, this may have been a case of favoritism where this was not uh, acted upon at all. And do I think this was a good reason to let her unregister and re-register? No. I don't think that's a good enough reason. I think that uh, unregister, yes. I would even say that uh, maybe I could understand if she already had unregistered previously in the series and wanted an exception for a second time here, if she convinced them that you know this guy really is uh, someone who's really harassed her and really, really, really making her uh, upset to be there right at the table next to him, I, I could understand on a one-time basis letting her unregister a second time. But even there, I'd probably say no. Because you've got to have some standards for these things. Because as Joseph Chung correctly said... This is angleable, even if she wasn't angling. And I don't think she was angling. I believe her story. And I'm not just saying that to be polite. I believe her story. I don't think she's making up BS here. But I, I think the World Series just shouldn't allow this. I think that uh, you can unregister, but you just absolutely should not be allowed to re-register, except if either nobody has taken their seat at your table yet, or maybe if there's one other person. But definitely if there's two or more, you shouldn't be able to unregister and re-register because this can be exploited if you see two players at the table, especially ones with position on you that give you a hard time, not like in a harassment way, but in a poker way where you just have, where they just beat you a lot. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with you. I wouldn't even make an exception. I would just say you cannot re-register. But, I mean, we don't know the details of the harassment. And I, I agree with you that there absolutely is favoritism, especially among quote-unquote famous pros at the World Series. Like, it says, 
pretty undeniable. But I, I also wonder, you know, given that she is a pretty female, it, it's also possible that the we don't know the details of the harassment, but it, it could be due to that, too. You know, so kind of double edged sword. She may get some favoritism, but it's very possible that the harassment she received is because for the same reason. She's a pretty girl. Yeah, yeah it, it is. And uh, like I, I feel for females who have to deal with creepy guys in poker and uh while females get some advantages in poker because guys will do favors for them and soft play them and a lot, it's easy to get loans and stakes There's a lot of things you can exploit by being a pretty female in poker but then there there are some downsides such as guys constantly hitting on you and and creepy guys harassing you or stalking you There's a lot of things that will happen that will or could happen to you as a female poker player especially a pretty one that that is unlikely to happen to you as a male poker player so easy to get a stake though easy it, to get a stake it is it definitely is so <laughs> uh, i just think that they have to have some pretty strict rules as far as the unregister and re-register thing otherwise it's a slippery slope when they have to start evaluating the reasons for it and uh yeah just and, no just no yeah just yeah. no you, you and, and i could the only place i'll give a little leeway maybe is if if it's a really good sounding reason, let someone on a like a one time basis uh, re- unregister a second time. But the re registering is the big problem. Otherwise, you're really going to have people, especially ones who are like very stuck in the World Series and really need to, you know, really their backs against the wall. They've, they, this is their their case funds. They've really got to do well in this one, and then they get a crappy starting table. Like ah shit, this is the, this is my last event I can afford to enter. I can't play at a table like this. I'm going to get crushed. Okay. Um, I'm going to unregister for some BS reason, and I'm going to come back in in three hours and see if I get a better table. Like, you, you just can't. You can't allow this. And believe me, there's been some starting tables I've gotten that are awful that I would have loved to have switched if it were possible. But uh, it's not. That's the nature of tournament poker. And sometimes you get placed at a good starting table. Sometimes you get an okay. Sometimes you get a terrible one. And that's just the way it goes. Like, I at the 2014 main event, I couldn't believe it. I got a terrible starting table... And then it broke. I think, oh, good. Finally, it broke on day one. Move me to, would you believe, an even worse starting table. I probably had among two of the worst starting tables in the whole room, and I got both of them. It was, and not even like big name pros, just a lot of good players. There was like, weren't soft spots at either table. This is the main event, which is full of recreational players. And I've had other years where I'm placed at a table, like just full of fish at the main event. To start off with so to get two really tough tables on day one sucked big time but i couldn't do anything about it that's the way it goes nor did i feel it was unfair it was unlucky but it wasn't unfair because it's the luck of the draw so you should not allow people to circumvent that and uh you you have to look at that and you can't just say oh this is a girl you can picture her being harassed and some creep that she's uncomfortable being around y- you can feel bad for her situation but that's, that doesn't justify allowing this because then uh, you're going to have all kinds of excuses people can make when they don't like the starting table they get. Even though I don't believe that's what she was doing here. And I want that to be real clear. I'm not just saying this to be polite. I'm not saying this uh, to avoid getting sued because she's a lawyer. I, I really do honestly believe that her story is all true or very close to true and that she was not angling at all. But it still shouldn't have been allowed. And it may have been accidentally allowed. It may have just been that the computer didn't catch it, and then they didn't want to do anything about it after it had already occurred. Maybe out of embarrassment somewhat that uh, that this had occurred, and they didn't quite know what to do. Because I don't even know if it would have been fair at that point to force her out of the event if they, if they accepted her registration. 
Nah, Drell, there's no way that crack team at Caesars could have made a mistake here. Come on. <laughs> By the way, you, you you don't sound as good as you did before. You kind of have like the tunnel sound now. Oh, really? Yeah, like for the last 10 minutes or so. I just, didn't, just wanted to not ruin our momentum here. But, uh, all, right. all right, all right. I mean, I'd rather have tunnel, uh, tunnel calwatt than no calwatt, but still. Uh, it would it, it sounded much better prior to about 10 minutes ago. Okay, so moving on. Nate Silver... Let me take a look at how he's doing here. It was heads up, as I mentioned, with uh, angry John Manetti. And I'm not being derisive to John Manetti. That's really what he calls himself, is angry John. And he kind of does live up to that name sometimes. Like He does get in a bad mood easily. No, it's not even over yet. <laughs> this, is a, this event, it wasn't the heads up that was dragging so long. It just This event was taking a very long time three-handed. Uh, this... 10K Limit Hold'em with 92 entries that uh, I probably would have played if I was at the World Series, uh, but I'm not. The 10 people who made it, this is out of 92, were Nate Silver, and yes, that Nate Silver, statistician Nate Silver, who correctly guessed all of the states in the 2012 election of the for the president. Angry John Minetti, they're the only two left. Eric Kurtzman, who's a mostly unknown player who uh, finished third. He hung in there for a long time, but uh, he finished third. Terrence Chan, who uh, roared out to a chip lead after coming in below average stacked, but then just roared out to a chip lead and was dominating and was like double everybody else's chips at one point near the beginning. He kind of stagnated and then people caught up with him and then he, uh, he hung in there but then busted fourth. Jason Somerville, not known to be a uh, limit hold'em expert, nevertheless finished fifth. John Raisner, again, someone who's not uh, known for limit hold'em, but uh, came in as the chip leader at this final table, finished sixth. Scott Tuttle, who I haven't heard of before, from Indiana, maybe a recreational player, finished uh, seventh. Christopher Chung from Irvine, probably play- played with him before at Commerce. I looked at his picture, don't really recognize him, but possible I have. Uh, he finished 8th. Kevin Song, a veteran uh, limit poker player, finished ninth, And another veteran limit poker player, Ray DeCargani, finished 10th. So, were there some names at this table that were probably uh, pretty tough limit players? Yes. But uh, was this a tough table by 10K limit hold'em final table standards? No, this was not. This is one of the softer ones. You're never going to get a super soft final table at the Limit Hold'em 10K event. But uh, as far as who ends up making the final 10, uh, this is a pretty good field to be up against in this event. I'm not saying these are all fish. They're definitely not. (laughs) But uh, I'm talking about in Limit Hold'em. I'd much rather have this group of people than like nine other Limit Hold'em All-Stars there. Now, there were some Limit Hold'em All-Stars, including... uh, Mr. Terrence Chan and uh, Ray Dekargani and Kevin Song. I mean, th- these three guys definitely uh, have a lot of Limit Hold'em experience and are very good players at Limit Hold'em. Yeah, but there wasn't no Dan or, you know, Todd Whittles at the table, right? No. <laughs> you didn't have that. the magic guys. Not, not a single magic guy was there. I, I had three magic guys at my table. <laughs> really? Oh, hey, I got uh, some breaking news about the uh, that event yeah. that you're talking about. Is uh, apparently... It was a re-entry event, which is why the computer might not have caught it. In other words, it was an event that you could re-enter in. You could rebuy into it, 
but you probably still shouldn't be able to unregister and then re-register. Oh, okay. I thought you meant this 10K limit hold'em. I'm like, what? No, Re-entry. No, no. No. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got a, I got a text <laughs> from uh, from the Hanson kid. Okay, okay. The, the breaking news. All right. Well, anyway, this is still not over. As, as we speak right now, Nate Silver and John Minetti are almost even in chips and have been battling for a while here. And as I said, for a while before that, it was uh, three-handed. And uh, I mean, good for Nate Silver. He is not a poker pro. He's obviously a very smart guy and gets all the concepts. And he said before he takes his poker seriously, but he's been playing for a number of years and has never cashed more than 4300 something dollars at any World Series event. And he doesn't have that many caches overall. So this is going to be by far his biggest cash. Even if he finished 10th, uh, this would have been by far his biggest cash. But here he's getting either first or second. And the uh, remaining prizes are a 245K for first and 151K for second. So uh, this is going to be uh, a nice accomplishment for him either way, whether he gets first or second. And uh, Nate Silver is interesting in that uh, this is a guy who is a lifelong liberal who has angered the left over the past year or so because of things he's tweeted about COVID. He actually first angered the left a lot of years ago, first when he came into prominence in uh, 2012, uh, it came out pretty quickly that he is openly gay. So the left and the mainstream media were very excited about the fact that uh, this superstar young statistician who correctly predicted all states in the 2012 election through uh, statistical analysis and was really the only one that was known to successfully do so, and uh, put it out there beforehand to where it could be verified that uh, that he was also gay. So they, they interviewed him, and they tried to push the fact that he was gay and uh, ask you know, how he feels being a role model for, for other gay men and other gay statisticians, and he got really mad about this. He said, no, 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 no. I don't want to be known as Nate Silver gay statistician. I want to be known as Nate Silver notable statistician. And, I know I've got a number of friends of mine that are gay that feel the same way. They don't like, I mean, everyone's different, right? But they don't want to be known for this thing that they can't change. They want to be known for the thing that they're good at. And that's what he said. And, that's, and he said that uh, I don't feel that g- being gay is part of my identity. It just isn't. He said I, it's not something that I think is significant as to who I am. It just happens to be... Uh, what I'm attracted to and who I date, but uh, to me, that's just all it is. And beyond that, it's not part of my identity. And the the left and the media were very upset about this because they wanted him to be Nate Silver gay statistician. And he said, no, I'm Nate Silver statistician who happens to be gay, but doesn't really care about it and doesn't care about the fact that that this is unusual at all. So he... I I think his view on it is healthier, to be honest. Yeah, it is. And and, uh, and they didn't like that and they... uh, there wasn't much they could say, and they felt like he made them look foolish by saying this, because here they're trying to play identity politics, and he wasn't having it. So that was the first thing that irritated them. However, uh, over the years, they kind of got past this, and then he started to be targeted. When I say targeted, I don't mean anything bad like that happened to him, but people, a lot of bashing, I should say, in social media by people on the right who felt that he wasn't giving Trump enough of a chance to win the 2016 election. And then when tw- when Trump won, then uh, a lot of them were saying that he was a fraud and just got lucky four years prior. He defended himself by saying that he didn't say that uh, Trump had no chance, just Trump had a, uh, what, like a 
9% chance or whatever what he gave. And he said that just happened to come through. That happens sometimes. But uh, I, I felt they were treating him unfairly because uh, just because he didn't predict that Trump was going to win, uh, he did give Trump more of a chance of winning than most of the media did, even though it wasn't a high chance. Like I think the New York Times is like 98, 99% Hillary. And uh, so I, I felt they were too hard on him with that. But uh, a lot of the, on the right were attacking him for this. And so for that reason, the left got to like him better. But uh, if my the, memory is correct. That's something that everyone got wrong. Right. The, the, well, except the, the, the lot of people on the right who wanted Trump to win were saying he's going to win, and then he won. And well, then the, oh, okay, <laughs> that's just cheering for the home team. I'm talking about statisticians. Like everything I saw, I didn't see anyone that was calling it for him. You know? No, there, there wasn't. So anyway, in in late 2020, Nate Silver really pissed off the left because he he couldn't keep silent any longer. He was very upset with a lot of the things the left was doing and the mainstream media was doing that he felt were anti-science and not following the science like they were bragging about doing. And what finally made him speak out was when they had this idiotic plan at the end of 2020, which ended up not really being implemented very much. And, and I'll tell you why in a second. But there was a plan at one point that was suggested by the CDC, which technically was an organization that was under Trump, but it was it was run by left-wing people that were technically under Trump's executive branch. So uh, they, they put out this outrageous recommendation that the vaccine should be distributed with the priority on racial equity rather than age, which was insane because age was the real need. The, it was old people who were dying from COVID overwhelmingly. And the older you were, the higher your chance of dying was. So every other developed country was distributing the vaccine by order of age. And the U.S. was planning to do it by a combination of age and racial equity, which was insane. New so, Zealand was actually considering doing that, too. They didn't end up doing it, but they were considering doing that, too. Oh, I didn't hear about New Zealand. But okay. A- anyway, uh, the reason this didn't happen very much in the U.S. is because the peak of COVID death and new cases occurred in early January of 2021, which was only a few weeks after this. So then everybody went into panic mode that we better not do this. There's going to be a, a, a tremendous backlash if we have a lot of old people dying because of this dumb racial equity plan. So we better not do it because people are getting real pissed off that there's a lot of old people who can't get their vaccine. So, so that was scrapped in most places or mostly scrapped in most places. So uh, that's why we didn't have that much of that. But that was the original plan. And Nate Silver, when that plan came out in December 2020, he could not bite his tongue any longer. That's what he tweeted. He said, I've been biting my tongue for a long time, but... It's getting to really bother me that the party that says that they're the party of science is doing and saying a lot of anti-scientific things. So first, he totally ripped the the racial equity plan, and then and then and explained why it, it, you definitely should do it by age and by no other criteria. And then he also went on and ripped some other things that he felt the left said about COVID that either were inaccurate or were exaggerated or were leading people to believe the wrong thing, and was showing various studies about uh, how people believe crazy things about the danger of COVID that just simply aren't true because of what the left and the media are pushing and that, uh, that they need to stop and that uh, he, he was really upset about this. And he kept putting out tweet after tweet after tweet that was bashing the mainstream media and the left for their handling of COVID and their, and their messaging about COVID. And this is guy is a, a lifelong liberal who uh, definitely wasn't trying to wave the flag for the right. And at the same time, he did criticize the right and their handling of COVID uh, when he felt they deserved it. 
and, and then when the anti-vax stuff started, then he went off on that as well. So it's not like he was backing the right the whole way. But boy, he got a lot of the people on the left angry because he was one of them. And he's saying, no, guys, you're, you're not following the science. You're not following the math. A lot of times you're doing what you feel promotes your agenda. And I, and I don't like it. And I can't stay silent because I think people are going to die because of what you're doing. And I respected him a lot for this. Because he was going against his own people. He was going against his own side. And he was angering a lot of his own fans. Because a lot of people on the right already didn't like him because he said Trump didn't have much of a chance in 2016. And then Trump won. And they were all bashing him for that. So it's not like he had a lot of fans on the right. So here he got the people who liked him angry. And I thought that that took a lot of balls to do. Even if he felt this way, he could have kept quiet about it. And he did keep quiet about it until December when he felt he could keep quiet no longer. And it wasn't just about that. He kept on, since then, calling out what he felt was incorrect about COVID that uh, either side was pushing. Again, if I think they- that's what you have to do, though, Druff. I mean, I, you can't just be a mindless cheerleader for whatever political party you happen to like. I mean, you, you have to go by what really, what you actually believe and what, you know, the, the, I know this is trite, what the science is telling you, but not even just science, just you, you shouldn't always agree with a party just because you happen to mostly align with it. You know, he sounds like a, a man of conviction. I definitely re- respect Yeah, that. I respected that a lot too. So I said, you know, I may not agree with all of his political viewpoints, and, and I may uh, not even agree with all of his COVID viewpoints, but uh, a lot of times I do agree with his COVID viewpoints, and I especially respect that he was willing to come out there and strongly say this and strongly criticize those in his own party that he felt were doing wrong, when the easy thing to do, the lazy thing to do in December 2020 is just say, oh, the left is following the science, the right are a bunch of uh, stupid hicks who, uh, who don't know what they're doing. And, and, and how did we get to the point, Druff, that if we disagree with someone, we don't like them? You know what I mean? I don't understand. I disagree with people all the time. It doesn't change my opinion of them. But, right. Know? I don't understand that either. And that's why, like, I've never once blocked anyone on social media because of their politics, ever. Not once, nor would I ever. I just, that would not ever be a reason I would block someone. I don't block many people anyway. But if I did I, block I someone... I people because I'm tired of their bullshit. You know? <laughs> I really don't block many, but I've never once blocked someone because, oh, I don't like this person's politics. It's different than mine and it offends me. I, never. I just... Uh, um, they can say what they say. I may completely disagree with it. I may even argue with them. I'm never going to block them. So I think disliking someone or blocking someone because you disagree with their politics is outrageous. And I, I think with COVID that there shouldn't even be politics in this. You really, It really just should be trying to determine the correct thing to do and the most responsible thing to do and the true danger and everything else. And, and uh, it, it should not be aligned with any political party. And that shouldn't inform any of your decision-making or views on the subject. And I was glad to see Nate Silver was one who was not uh, allowing that to do it. Now, he's not a super left-wing liberal, so it's not like this is a guy that was hard left and then went against his own party. But, uh, but he was a lifelong liberal, who kind of like a lifelong moderate liberal, who's just decided that uh, he had enough and had to speak out. So I respected that, and uh, as I was... Speaking about him here, he also went on a little run. He now is winning uh, about two to one over uh, John Minetti in the 
event, and, and nothing against John Manetti. I mean, I've, I've played with him a few times, and uh, he, he seems fine. It was funny one time that uh, one of the, actually a different 10K Limit Hold'em event from a different year, he was sitting next to me, John Manetti, and someone came up to me and said hello. Someone who wasn't in the event saw on the rail came up to me and said hello. Uh, somewhat known poker pro. And uh, the guy walks away, and the angry John turns to me and said, you must be the only guy in poker he doesn't owe money to. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's actually correct. He said, yeah, that, otherwise there's no way he would have gone up to you. That's great. <laughs> By the way, is my audio better now? Yeah, it is better. All right. So we'll see how Nate Silver does. I'll update you through the uh, show. I have this window up, and I'll see uh, if he does manage to pull off the bracelet win. That'd be kind of cool if uh, Nate Silver wins a bracelet. Okay, so uh, there was a massive outage, a massive computer outage that shut down total rewards for uh, part of the day and delayed the World Series because uh, they basically could not access any accounts of anybody in Caesars. And that was uh, a big problem, obviously, for something like the World Series. So this is one of the worst computer crashes they've ever had. I still don't know the reason for it. Probably just typical Caesars fail. But uh, you know what, Drew? I think I'm going to apply for a job in uh, Caesars <laughs> IT department. I really, I, I'm just, I'm getting this feeling that the bar is low enough that I could do pretty well there. I yes, just got the feeling. October sixth, this occurred. It, uh, the World Series posted due to a massive computer outage, and again, this was Caesars wide, not just at the World Series, not just at Las Vegas, not just at the Rio. It was everywhere. Due to a massive computer outage, all events that have yet to start are postponed by one hour. Registration is not currently available at this time. And then they went on to say, this means events that were running before the outage, like the 9 a.m. Seniors Deep Stack and 3K No Limit Freeze Out are still running. The 1 p.m. 250 Daily Deep Stack is postponed till 2 p.m. More updates when available. Well, they actually uh, delayed it even more. So some things got canceled, some things got uh, delayed, including some day two restarts had to be delayed. And eventually they got everything going. That was a bracelet event. There were some uh, cancellations, I believe, of smaller events that were not bracelet events, which which is fine. But they they did have to delay some of these restarts and some of the starting times of bracelet events. And I can't blame the World Series for this because, again, it was a Caesars-wide outage. Uh, I like to say maybe I caused it because this occurred right when I picked up the phone to cancel my rooms. <laughs> and that's just my luck. You know, I, I call up to cancel my rooms, and that's right when the outage occurred. That really was like I was on hold when I saw the updates that an outage just happened. So I actually hung up. I didn't even wait for them to get on the phone because I knew there'd be that nothing they could do That would be impressive if it was you that caused all this. <laughs> so, anyway, there, there was an outage, a Caesars-wide outage that shut down the entire system. There was no way to access any player accounts anywhere in the Caesar system. And delayed World Series events. I don't know what happened as far as people like playing slot machines or whatever. They didn't get their tier credits. I didn't really hear about the consequences of that, if there were any. Uh, it must have been a pain in the ass for people who were trying to get some kind of comps or whatever that they were just told, 
No, you can't do it. Uh, this is for several hours, by the way. This wasn't just for like for 20 minutes. It was like a several-hour thing going on on October 6th. In fact, I'm surprised it didn't disrupt Caesars more than it did. I mean, the World Series more than it did. But I think they were lucky in that this occurred in the morning. And most stuff at the World Series doesn't happen in the morning. So fortunately, by the time they got to the early afternoon, I think this thing got corrected. And then they were able to uh, resume everything again. So I think things were probably delayed like two, three hours that were scheduled for that day. But nevertheless, it's uh, it's notable that this happened. And it shows you what type of havoc can be caused by one of these type of outages. Uh, apparently, this is the uh, worst computer outage of all time for Caesars. It uh, lasted for several hours and took their entire uh, reward system down. Their t- any player's account was just completely inaccessible. They couldn't just... It wasn't just they couldn't change anything. They could not access anything. So uh, A lot of people had a fun time there. I'm yes. sure the staff was thrilled with all the complaints. <laughs> That's, what a disaster. So this People were saying that uh, maybe they were uh, following uh, Facebook's example because the day after it happened with Facebook, I believe, when Facebook... And Instagram were down for uh, you know a lot one of, of the, the, the funniest things about the Facebook thing is because they used all of the their own systems for everything, they were even physically locked out of some buildings. <laughs> like, oh wow! They, people at Facebook. <laughs> oh yeah, like I, their their whole access, like everything, everything. You know that's part of the reason I don't like those type of uh, locking systems. I, I, I sometimes you, you like to have just a, a good old fashioned key lock where you turn a key to get in somewhere. At, at least as a fallback. Yeah, at you least you have that as a backup, yeah. right? That's yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's got to be tilting. You can't get into your own building. You know, I I had this situation in the mid '90s where my badge at the place I worked at was used also as a key card to uh, open up the doors to the security buildings where I where I worked, and. Uh, I remember one time, for whatever reason, my badge just it stopped working, and I I couldn't get in. <laughs> and then I'm like I I couldn't even figure out what to do because I couldn't get in anywhere to even report this. Every single building is locked, and there's nowhere like you just like knocking, have someone let you in. So I just kind of stood around until uh, someone entered the building. And fortunately, it was someone who recognized me, so they didn't question why I was coming in. I did have the badge to show I should be there anyway, but. Uh, so they let me in, and then I went to my office phone and called them up and told them to come over and replace my badge. But I thought, what a pain in the ass that this badge acts as an electronic key that just stopped working. And I was just kind of sitting like a chump there outside waiting to get in my building and hoping my boss wasn't wondering where I was. I think, I was, I think it was like after I took a break, and I just couldn't get, back, couldn't get back in the damn building. No, I hear you, man. I'm in the tech biz. I'm deeply steeped in tech, but the locks on my doors are all mechanical. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Maybe I know too much. I know about how easily things can fail. I just, uh, I, I would, I would be so mad if I was locked out of my house because of something stupid. Like right. That. I, I would be furious about this too. I, yeah. I couldn't take it. Okay. So final World Series topic. We're actually getting through this. Uh, I wouldn't say fast, but we did a lot of topics here. We're almost done with the World Series topics. Final World Series topic is about the flippament. This is getting a lot of people mad. The flippament. Do you know about the flippament? I. I saw a tweet scroll by from you that said something about a monkey test, so I'm assuming okay. that you were talking yes. about that. Yes, okay, so yeah. the okay. monkey test is a term I came up with. I'm proud of it, though. It's a term I like. I came up with a 
term called the monkey test regarding World Series events and whether they have been poorly designed. So the monkey test is very simple. If a monkey could be trained to either surely cash in the event or have a reasonable chance to cash in the event, then there's something wrong with the event. Then it's a poorly designed event. Every World Series event should be designed to where a monkey would have almost no chance of cashing. But that has not always been the case. For example... I was going to say, Druff, I've seen a lot of people cashing in events that I might term monkeys. Yeah, there's probably some that aren't even as smart as monkeys. (laughs) But uh, there was a problem with the late registration where some of these events you could enter so late and the busting was happening so quickly that people started to theorize that it might be possible to register as late as you can and then blindly fold every hand and make the money. There was actually a prop bet. I think it involved Mike Matisau, but uh, I can't be sure about that. But there was a prop bet made between two poker players for like 3K or something that one said they could, one said they couldn't. The one who said they could was actually the one entering the event. But a guy said, I bet I could enter this event and fold every hand, and I will promise to fold every hand, no matter what happens. I won't even look at my hand. And I think I will cash. So there was a bet made. The guy registered as late as he could. He folded every hand. He almost didn't make it, but yes, with 200 in chips left, he cashed. Folding every single hand. Oh my god. So that failed the monkey test. Because a monkey could be trained to sit there and fold every hand and put his ante out every time, and that's it. Like that's a, a monkey could definitely be trained to do that. So a monkey could have cashed that event. Not exaggerating. A monkey totally could have. So just hire 10 out-of-work strippers from COVID, put them in the event, <laughs> tell them just fold every hand. Right. I, I mean, they came close, but that's amazing that could have been done. So then we now have a new monkey event, and that is the flip event. And I, I said I didn't like this as soon as I heard about this, but it's worse than I thought. It's worse than a lot of people thought. The flip and go, which some people are calling the flip event, the WSB flip and go is actually taking place on Sunday, October 10th, which it is now in all U.S. time zones except for Alaska and Hawaii, because now it's after midnight in L.A. and in Vegas. So it is a Sunday tournament, Sunday the 10th. But you can play the first table in advance, which we'll get to shortly. But the way it works is it's an eight-handed event, and you are required to go all in on the first hand. When I say you, I mean everybody at the table must go all in on the first hand. However, you are dealt three cards. Even though it's a hold'em event, you're dealt three cards, like pineapple. And then you see a flop. Remember, you're already all in pre. You see a flop, and then you were to discard one of your three cards. And that's the only place there's any skill here. Because you're required to go all in no matter what your hand is at the beginning. And then you see a flop, and then you get to toss away one of your cards. You have no, to toss away one of your cards. This is a pure degen event. I saw this happening at a lot of uh, underground card games I used to go to. Like, a lot of the, the DGens there wanted to start off the night by playing exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so you... Th- in, ca- in cash game. Yeah, so you throw away one card, yeah. and then it runs out the board, and then you have two two cards left in your hand, and it's just straight hold them at that point of just uh, seeing who wins. And if there's a chop, then those remaining players will do another hand in the exact same way. And when there's one person left standing, which at most tables is just after that first hand, 
then that person's the winner, and that person has cashed in the event, which is already kind of insane to think about. You'll get a World Series cash for just doing that. So, And everyone else is knocked out now? Yes, everybody else is knocked oh, out. What a fucking... Oh my god! It's I'm a so mad. It's a $1,000, $1,000 event, too, so you got to put $1,000 into this to play one hand, and you either cash and get a World Series cash on your record, or you've just uh, chunked off $1,000 in one hand. And, I mean, I know you're discarding a card, but are you really playing the hand? No, barely. So, yeah. so this already fails the monkey test, because uh, a monkey, while the monkey could not understand what is the best card to throw away, uh, number one, since there's only three cards to choose from, the monkey will get it right uh, a third of the time. And number two, there will be times where the monkey does the wrong thing and happens to back into the winning hand that way. And there's times where it, it, you know, it doesn't really matter what it's throwing away. So the monkey, while not quite at the same uh, expectation for winning as the human players, because it won't make an intelligent decision for the third card it throws away, you'd be training the monkey just to throw away the card. Like, just pick one of the cards and throw it. Um, still, the monkey would have at least a semi-decent chance of cashing compared to everybody else at the table. Not quite what the humans do, but not all that far from it either. So, again, this fails the monkey test. A monkey who enters this would have a decent chance of cashing compared to everybody else. And that's, again, a big problem. But it gets even worse. Not only does it fail the monkey test, but it also has the issue where deep-pocketed pros can buy a cash and then, by extension, kind of buy a bracelet. So here's the problem. People at first pictured that this would be a thing that everybody gets one shot at and that's it. In fact, some people who believe that to be the case thought, oh, cool, this is going to be a really soft event. So it's worth risking $1,000 because if I happen to be the one out of eight people at the table who gets lucky and moves on, I'm going to be against a bunch of randoms, not what you usually get when seven-eighths of the field is gone, where most of the fish have been knocked out, and the remaining one-eighth of the field tends to be mostly good or at least decent players. Here you're going to have a big mix of people, and you're going to have a lot of fish still in the field, and a lot of the good players are out. So people thought this was going to be one of the softest events in the later stages compared to all the other No Limit Hold'em events. But wait a second. No. Why? Because it turns out that it's not just that there's one attempt you get at this, and it's not even that you get your attempts on the day of the event. That for days before the event, they are constantly running the first table in the pavilion room, which is one of the rooms of the World Series, where you can just keep entering over and over and over in the days prior to the event until you finally get lucky and win to where if your pocket is deep enough... In fact, it doesn't have to be that deep. Then you can definitely buy a cash into this event. My God. And who did that? Who did that? Well, who entered an event 48 times in 2007, which had unlimited rebuys? Negrano. And still didn't cash. That was uh, one Daniel Negrano. Yeah, well, of course he's going to do that here too. So he didn't need to do 48 times this time. It only took him nine times he entered the event and he uh, finally got his cash. So uh, Negranu, even though the event has not started yet officially, has already moved on. He's already made the uh, after-cash stage of this event, and we'll be playing that tomorrow. And uh, guess, so have... Let me guess. I'm, I'm using my psychic abilities here. 
And every buy-in, obviously, there was a rake? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's it's, it's it's just like a, re, a rebuy every time, just like a normal buy-in. So you see why the World Series loves this, because they make yeah. a, a ton of rake, and it, it lasts one hand. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so this is a, a big money generator for them, and it's also a way for deep-pocketed pros or ones that are backed by uh, poker sites like Negranu is, uh, who knows of GG Poker, which, by the way, they have their name on this event. This is brought to you by GG Poker, it says. So they may have been backing Negranu for these nine buy-ins. Not that Negranu can't afford uh, a $9,000 uh, shot at this, what he took, but uh, uh, it's possible that he wasn't even putting up his own money there. I don't care if he was so or it's wasn't. It's easier to spend other people's money. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, the point is here, if, if you are willing to invest however many thousand it takes, which probably won't be that much. You have a one in eight chance, so you're not you're not going to be doing it 50 times unless it gets super, super unlikely, uh, unlucky. And you could even get lucky and do it in the first uh, one or two. So if you are willing to waste uh, several thousand on this, then you can do it. And it's not necessarily a waste because then you do have a shot of getting deep and getting the money back anyway. So I'm not saying this is a smart thing to do, I'm just saying that if you want a World Series cash this way and you have very deep pockets or you have a backing entity that is uh, allowing you to do this, like GG Poker, for example, then you can buy a cash. And that's another place where the monkey comes in. Because if you were to keep allowing a monkey to rebuy over and over and over and over, eventually, yes, the monkey would cash. He'd be guaranteed to cash. So again, it fails the monkey test. So, you're right, Druff. At some point at World Series 2040, you're going to be able to buy a VIP seat at the final table. Yeah, so I mean... The right amount of money, they're going to let you do it. So yeah. the fact that you actually can buy a cash here, th- this is more than just uh, giving yourself an advantage to a cash. This is actually, you can buy a cash because they are running these over and over and over in the days prior to the event. That's how Negreanu is already in. And you can just keep coming in again and again and again until... Luck shines on you there, and you're that lucky one of the eight who wins the hand, and you move forward. So a lot of people are unhappy about this. Uh, DJ McKinnon is one of them. He is uh, a poker pro who uh, will sometimes speak out on these type of matters. He said, uh, probably going to rant about it later, but the fact that anyone can enter all the sit-and-goes in the pavilion room, all they want to qualify for day two is a joke. Yes, it is. I agree. And that's how a lot of people are feeling. And they shouldn't do things like this. I see how they love to generate the rake this way. And it's so easy and fast for Caesars to rack up rake in this event. But the problem... wants to run a sit-and-go when you can just deal one hand. Yeah. And, And I know there's degenerates who like this, but... The problem is it degrades the value of a cash, and it, it, it really starts to make it look like that if you have a lot of money to put into these things, then you can guarantee yourself a cash, and you can guarantee yourself uh, a lot more than the commoners who have to enter normally. And uh, you now may obviously waste... Obviously, you're going to be deeper in the hole, probably, right? Unless you get lucky and happen to win the first one. So you're going to have to get further to actually turn a profit as opposed to cash but like you said that is kind of interesting if the field is going to be in general it probably end up being softer than normal by the nature of the event 
You know? Well, that's what some people are wondering, and that's what Ari yeah. Engel, who, by the way, he was analyzing this after he won a bracelet. That's uh, that shows you, you know, like uh, who's going to be analyzing the value of this flippament here after winning three seventeen k and a bracelet, except for uh, certain people. And I'm not even bashing him because I would be too. If I just won a bracelet, I'd be I'd be analyzing the next day too. But you know, good for Ari for uh, thinking about this stuff before entering it. But he was saying that he thinks that there may be enough deep-pocketed pros doing this, even some not realizing that a lot of others are doing it, that this actually might make it a tougher field that's, that has cashed compared that to normal. That would be hilarious, normal. if it ended up being a, a, a whole lot of pros that were in for like 10K for the event. <laughs> well, I could see this because, see, if you think about a normal uh, No Limit Hold'em event... There's a lot of pros who just don't cash because they don't run well. So in this one, you really can guarantee a cash if you want. So that's a big difference. There's a lot of No Limit Hold'em events that Negreanu will enter that you don't see him after the cash hits because he didn't get there. But now 100% Negreanu is going to be there. 100% others like him will be there. So the question is, will we have enough of those that will make up for the fact that some people who normally wouldn't have the ability to, to cash in a no-limit event would be there. I'm talking about bad players. So I don't know where you're going to have more of the deep-pocketed pros guaranteeing themselves a cash or fish that are getting there because there's no skill. I, I don't know if we'll get the answer to this one, but I do agree with Ari that you can't just conclude that at least you're buying yourself into a situation where there's a, a lot of weak competition in the final stages so you, you can't even count on that here but what a dumb event and if they're going to have this event at least make it where it's not a rebuy because then, then at least it preserves the uh it prevents people from being able to buy a cash you're still failing the monkey test because the monkey could still cash in this but at least the buying the cash element does not exist and in fact they did away with that unlimited rebuy format after 2007 exactly because of what Negranu did. It was a very bad look, and they didn't want people entering 48 times. They felt this is something that they don't want for the series. They didn't think it was healthy for the series or how the series would look. But now they're just abandoning this. Now they're just doing whatever they can to make the most money, and it's sad. So... Is this a huge deal? No, but I think it's stupid, and I think the people who are objecting to this are raising very good points, and I agree with them. And and soon to come is the World Series of Poker Bubble Buster event, Druff, <laughs> where, where when the, the bubble approaches, the big blind is forced to go all in at every table in the hand. <laughs> Some other dumb gimmick, you know? We might need that at the main event, given how long it takes sometimes to get past that bubble. Okay, so uh, let's move away from the World Series. I want to talk about something completely different here, about the chocolates that were destroyed at Resorts World. Have you heard of this story yet? I have not heard about it. This is a local to PFA story, but uh, nevertheless, it's an interesting story. And it involves uh, some people I know. And I, I want to emphasize here, this does not involve me. I'm not using friends here as a stand-in for me or anyone that's related to me. So these people in the story are not related to me in any way. Just want everybody to understand that before we begin. And they're also not me. 
But this is a true story. And I verify it's a true story. So here's what happened. And it's a it's actually uh, it's a little more complicated than it appears on the surface. It seems to be simple story, or sort of, sort of simple story. But then when you really think about it, it's a lot more complex, especially from a legal standpoint. So listen to this. This is what happened. I'm going to change the names of the actual people involved. We're going to call uh, the two main adults in this story Tommy and Brianne. Okay, Tommy and Brianne are a couple. And uh, Brianne has uh, two kids from a previous relationship. And uh, Tommy has a kid who's older and not living with him anymore. But the, the two young kids, who are like uh, 10 and 13, live with them and, were tra- and traveled with them to Vegas. And it was this past week. And they were staying at Resorts World. While they were at Resorts World, Brianne had a friend who I'm going to call Marie, again, not her real name, but uh, Marie lives in Vegas and went down to Resorts World to meet up with Brianne, and she brought her kids. Marie was not staying in their room, which, as you'll see from the story, ends up being an important thing to consider, but uh, did come down there and uh, hung out with them and did uh, enter their room, but uh, was not staying there, nor was it believed they were staying there. Sometime during the evening, the adults decided to go out together and left the kids alone in the room, the, old of, the oldest of whom was 13. Now, Cal White, I know you have some kids around that age. Would, would you leave them alone in the room at this age? For how long? Hours. Uh, unlikely. Yeah, I'd feel a little funny about that too, but th- they did. And they, uh, they left the 13-year-old in charge, who, who is a fairly responsible 13-year-old, but they left her in charge of uh, multiple kids including uh, like either a baby or a toddler. So the no, 13 definitely not. The 13 year old had her hands full and uh, it turned out that this was a uh, it turned out it was very bad decision. That's from NBA Jam. We used to play that on uh, Neverwin Poker Radio. Bad decision. But it was a bad decision because the kids got themselves into some trouble. The kids got bored in the room and announced that they're going to leave. <laughs> they're just going to wander the property. With a baby? No, the baby was going to stay with the 13-year-old. Okay. But the 13-year-old said, no, 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 you can't leave. And the kid said, we don't care what you have to say. We're leaving anyway. You can stay here with the baby. And that's exactly what happened. The the, the kids uh, just walked out. Uh, I'm not sure how many. I know there one one was Brianne's kid. The 13-year-old was also Brianne's kid, the one that stayed back. The toddler was Marie's kid. And I think there were at least two that were also Marie's kids that, that walked out of the room with uh, Brianne's other kid. I think they were all in the like 9 to 11 age range. So uh, they went down to the lobby, just kind of were walking around and uh, looking for something to do, looking for some uh, trouble to get into. And they this found... like a bad idea. <laughs> to have kids that age wandering around Vegas? I'm, yeah. I mean... So they, oh, they found... A banquet hall with all these tables set up for an upcoming gala. Oh, it's over. This wasn't just any gala. I don't know, is it gala or gala? I never knew. Gala. I like to say gala. I think maybe just so I can say gay. But anyway, the gala that was uh, coming up was actually not all that soon. It was for October 16th. I don't know why they set it up that early. This occurred, I think, on October 7th. 
But uh, here's what happened. This was the uh, Power of Love Gala that uh, has taken place in the past, but this is the first time it's going to be at Resorts World. And uh, it's a charity event, and they always uh, honor some people at the charity event. At this particular event, they were going to be honoring uh, Smokey Robinson, Kenny Babyface Edmonds, and uh, KT Lim. KT Lim is the uh, chairman and CEO of Genting, which owns Resort World. So they're basically honoring the CEO of Resort World, as well as uh, Babyface and Smokey Robinson. Are you familiar with Genting? you know where that comes from? It's from Malaysia. It's from Malaysia. There's an area called the Genting Highlands, which is the only legal place for gambling to, to occur there. Ah, I never knew that. So, yeah, I, I, I know they own a ton of things. I know they own cruise ships, and they, they own a lot of different types of businesses, and it's a huge company. And there were, there were rumors of, you know government complicity and favoritism and all sorts of everything that you might expect for them to have a monopoly on everything yeah Yeah. so here they're going to be honoring the ceo and and these two celebrities and i don't know why they set it up so early but it was all set up and all ready to go and for whatever reason this is something i'd expect of caesars but it happened at resorts world uh, they left it unlocked And the kids found it. And the kids walked in and they saw there were these chocolates that were sitting at every table, at every chair. Oh, they're, they're, their eyes went wide. This is fucking paradise. So yeah. these chocolates weren't just like little chocolates like you'd picture like on, on, that they put on your pillow in hotel rooms or, or that you get on Halloween. And, or I'm not even talking about like candy bar size. These were big chocolates. Uh, maybe like eight inches high now it wasn't solid chocolate because it's an event called power of love so it's actually a chocolate that's wrapped in tin foil and gold tin foil that uh, is in the shape of a heart with another heart on top of that heart that isn't wrapped and then there's like a ball which is solid that the heart is sitting on top of and then there's a little base below it that's also chocolate that's uh um that the whole thing's sitting on Man, they're going to eat this until they barf. <laughs> so there's this big chocolate on each uh, place setting there. And uh, Brianne's kid stole a number of them. And in fact, uh, apparently Brianne's kid had the stroller of the toddler. That uh, and The toddler was not in it. The toddler was back in the room. But it was loading up the stroller with the, oh. the candies. But uh, Marie's kids were worse. Not only were they stealing the candy, they were also smashing some of them for fun. They were they were just wanting to be destructive. At least at least uh, uh, Brianne's kid just wanted to steal them. So Marie's kids did both. They were uh, stealing them and destroying them. So uh, they did that, and then they came back to the room and basically said nothing about it. And I think she uh, they they hid the chocolates they had stolen. They, uh, at some point, I don't know if it was in the evening or in the morning, but uh, Resorts World came in and discovered what had occurred. <laughs> they, they were not very happy. They saw smashed chocolate everywhere. They, uh. they, they counted and found that 52 of these big chocolate hearts had either been stolen or destroyed. Power of love right there. Yeah, power of love of chocolate. So... They 
started an investigation to figure out who was responsible for this heinous act. And uh, they pulled up the cameras and quickly saw it was kids. So I said, okay, well, let's figure out who the parents of these kids are and come after them for it. So the problem was, how do you do it? So they followed the kids on the camera and followed them to the elevator and were able to see what floor they went to. Unfortunately, with no cameras in the hallway, they were unable to tell which room they went to. So do you think that they went and did a door-to-door search for these chocolates? How do you think they figured out who it was? I, I have no idea. Well, they did what they would probably do on uh, Scooby-Doo. They actually uh, followed the trail of chocolate. Oh, my God. <laughs> they left a trail? Yes. They, w- they went because they had smashed some chocolates and stuff like that and maybe were opening them as they were walking. Whatever it was, there was actually a trail of uh, bits of chocolate that led right to the room from the elevator. So oh, at, at about uh, 9 in the morning, they, uh, a security went up to that floor. And I, I don't know if they followed the trail at night or in the morning, but whatever it was, the security went to the door at 9 a.m. and pounded on it and said, open up and we want to talk to you. How many security guards do you think they sent for this uh, very, very egregious crime of uh, Grand Theft Chocolate? They probably sent like a dozen or something. You're close. Ten security guards were sent by uh, Resorts World up to this room because uh, kids stole chocolate. (laughs) Why would you need ten security guards? They know who did it. They know it was kids. So what what do they think? The kids are going to resist arrest or something? It's crazy. So uh, anyway, they they had ten security guards at the door and and, and told Brianne what happened. Now, remember, Marie was gone by this point, as were the kids, because they were not staying there overnight. They uh, they left at some point. So uh, they told Brienne what happened. They, they sh- told her that they found, they followed the trail. They also saw the girl that did it right there in the room. So there was no question that she had done it, nor did Brienne deny that the girl had done it. It, it was clear that she had. They told her that because 52 chocolates were stolen and because these were custom, that uh, there's going to be a pretty hefty charge put on their room. That charge is going to be... One million dollars. Actually, it was going to be... One hundred billion dollars. It actually might as well have been either of these because they actually wanted to charge them $2,000 for the 52 stolen or destroyed chocolates. That doesn't surprise me at all. That's what they wanted to charge. Not $2,000 and 13, not, not like $2,013 and 18 cents. It was actually $2,000 even. Brienne objected to this and said that sounds way too high. They said, well, that's what we're charging. There was some arguing back and forth. And uh, I don't know if it was security or management. Eventually... Brienne was told that uh, they're lowering it, lowering it to uh, $1,300, which represents uh, $25 even for each one of these chocolates. So 25 times 52 is 1300 And that was actually placed on their bill for the room. And I, in fact, I saw a copy of that bill that was sent to me. So I, it, this is all true. I saw the 1300 for, quote, miscellaneous. I mean, if there are custom chocolates that they would then have to do a rush job to get remade in time, I'm not too shocked by that. Semi-rush. It is going to be another week till the thing goes. 
or actually at the yeah, time at, at the time nine days. So yeah. there's several questions that surround this. That uh, you know this this all sounds pretty simple, but uh, it's weird, but kind of simple. But it actually isn't because there's a few questions that one must ask about this whole thing. Uh, number one, can they put this on their room? Because let's say they weren't staying there. They couldn't just uh, compel them to pay whatever they say that they owe. They could sue them, but uh, they they couldn't compel them to pay uh, right there or put it on their credit card right there. Uh, they're only able to do that because uh, Brienne happened to be staying at Resorts World. Number two, this damage wasn't committed only by Brienne's child. It was also committed by these other children that uh, were that had a, a different parent and uh, that was not staying there. So why should this be all on Brienne? Because someone else was visiting and doing it along with them. Shouldn't it only be what uh, Brienne's kid did? Another question. Does Resorts World have any responsibility to give them some kind of uh, true and verifiable accounting for their actual expenses here? Or simply put, do they have a right to fine Brienne additional money over the real cost of redoing this? So you can say, oh, I could believe it's $2,000, but if it, let's say it's really uh, $1,200. Let's say it's really $900. Do they have a right to just tack on another, uh, an additional $1,100 j- just out of spite or, or because they think it's a pain in the ass? And No, I, I wouldn't think so. I would think that they would need to justify it. Right, and, and, and they were refusing. They would not justify with any kind of proof other than uh, just this is what you owe. Furthermore, remember they lowered it from 2000 to 1300 so since they did that, wouldn't this almost be proof that they were trying to find them originally? Yeah, Otherwise, it sounds like they made it up. Right, you know? they're either trying to find them or just making up arbitrary numbers. So this yeah. this would give you even more reason to want to see some kind of proof or something that you can check on that uh, shows that this is what it's really costing them. Now, regards to number one, like can they do it? I, I guess it's a question for you. You would know it better than me. The Agreements that you sign when you sign in there, they, you, you're held liable for any damage to the room, but does it uh, encompass anything, you know, on the, the whole property? Well, that's what I wonder, too. And I don't know. I don't ever read it that carefully. And okay. I, I wouldn't because, like, I'm, I, I'm not going to go around trashing the property. In fact, Come I would on, just... I, we're counting on you to have read the damn thing. <laughs> I, I told... I was uh, talking to Benjamin's mom about this story, and I told her, you know what's funny? With all the hotel fail I've had in the uh, decades of my life, the one thing I've never had was any kind of charge for damage, either justifiable or unjustifiable. I've just never been charged once for any kind of damage ever at any hotel that I've ever stayed at in my life. So this is something I've never had to deal with personally. And that's because I don't, I, I don't damage things. And I've been fortunate enough to not be falsely accused of damaging things. In fact, I'm always kind of paranoid. Like if I'm in a room that smells like smoke where they have a fine for smoking, so not only don't I want to be in a, in a room that had smoking before, I immediately tell them, like, we're smelling smoke here. I don't smoke, and I don't want to be charged for this. And also, can you move me out of this room? But if you can't, then at least acknowledge that I didn't do this. But but I, I've never been charged before, but I, like, I'm always paranoid that's going to happen. And the question is here, and it's, it's a good question you're asking, and that was my first question, too. What do they have the right to do as far as charging your card for what I, I think is really just authorizing them to charge you for damage to the room 
and not to the remainder of the property. But maybe there's something in the fine print that you're agreeing that it's any damage to the hotel. But I have a feeling it's not in there because typically that's not going to occur. T- typically the deposit is uh, so you if you trash the room that they have a way to collect from you right away. Uh, I think they kind of figure that the remainder of the property, they'll see it happening, whereas the room, they won't know until you check out. So I, I have a feeling that's not there. It's possible it is. But if it isn't, I would think that they can't bill your card just because they happen to have it on file. The question, you know, these are good questions of, you know, who's responsible. So obviously, someone's responsible. But is, is it all Brianne? Is it Brianne and Marie? Uh, do they have to track down Marie on their own? And, and uh, or is Bri- should Brianne be compelled to tell them who Marie is if she doesn't want to be responsible for everything? That's another question. Can they charge the card on file if the damage didn't occur to the room? Can they charge them without presenting any kind of proof of how much it's going to cost to remake all this? And should they be able to pad the amount at all based upon the trouble they have to go through to do all this? Or or can they only bill them for the actual cost of uh, materials and labor and not for the uh, additional work this takes from an administrative standpoint to uh, to get this all replaced? So, so there's a lot of legal questions here. And in fact, uh, an attorney who reads the forum and listens to the show sometimes, who goes by uh, Jay Jammy, he said, uh, honestly, this would make a really good bar exam question. Have to think about it. Love Resorts World, really nice poker room in the best food court on the Strip. Too pricey for me to stay there, though. Actually, he should check some of the prices recently. <laughs> he may not say that. But uh, I... Pricey I, for a lawyer? That's not looking good. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I did Fuck. find it interesting, though, that he thought this would be a really good bar exam question. I said, you know what? I'm not really familiar with what's on the bar exam, not having ever seen it or taken it, but that does kind of seem correct. Like, there are a lot of legal concepts here that I didn't even really think of uh, from the standpoint that these would be, like, kind of tough legal concepts to figure out, and I didn't really uh, have a complete answer to these questions. I, I had an idea of what I thought was right and wrong, legally and morally, but I did not have uh, a definitive answer on this. Now, we do have a lawyer who uh, listens to this show, and I messaged him about this, one uh, Eric Benzamokin, and this is what he said. He said, uh, the $2,000 number may not be completely arbitrary if the hotel pays union wages to set up and decorate the banquet hall, plus the vendors are usually handpicked by the purchasing agents and get kickbacks or gifts, so that cost is priced into the chocolate also. Second of all, you're probably correct that the standard room rental language doesn't cover damage caused in common areas. However, generally speaking, if the kids were someplace prohibited and not adequately supervised, then mom and dad are on the hook for whatever damage they caused. Uh, I, I would try to negotiate it as low as I could without risking a ban or overall blacklist. So the last thing he said is also exactly what I told Tommy. And I said to him that there's something a little bit more than what they can bill you. It's also how valuable is the ability to go to Resorts World to you? Because if you do not come to some agreement with them and just say F you, then you probably can't ever come back there. You'll probably be banned. I would see that as very likely because it may be a small enough amount of money that the casino might not even bother to try and take them to court. They might just say, screw it, you're bad. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. That's kind of what I thought might happen. Now, that doesn't mean you can't negotiate with them. So what Tommy did right away, seeing what was coming, is he called up and canceled his credit card. 
So that took the power out of the hotel's hands to just take the money from him. So what he did, he still owed about $400 for uh, the room and uh, whatever he charged for the room. So there was a legitimate $400 on his bill that had nothing to do with this. So he went down to the front desk when it was time to check out, paid 400 whatever that he owed other than this. And then the last 1300 on the bill, he said, uh, I don't agree with this, but I'm willing to talk about it. So, uh, you know, have a, have a manager call me. And, that was uh, smart. That was yeah, that was smart. So this way, now the power is in his hands, at least as far as uh, what to pay and getting them to agree to a lower amount. However, it's yeah, not... otherwise, the reverse would happen, right? They would just take the money, and then the onus would be on him to fight it to get it back. Yeah, yeah and, and they're not going to want to give it back, because businesses hate returning money they're already holding, especially in something like this. So definitely the power is in his hands. However, I said I have a little concern that, let's say you negotiate something with them, it's very possible that uh, you will then pay them, and then they're going to ban you right after that. So I told him that whatever he agrees to pay, that this should be contingent upon not banning them over this, that they, they should get something in writing, that if they pay this, that that will satisfy this matter, and they're not going to be banned. Otherwise, uh, if they're going to be banned anyway, then he should just play hardball and say, I'm not paying. Because I, I agree with you, they're not going to come sue him. Especially, uh, uh, he doesn't live in Nevada. So I, they had to come to a different state and sue him over uh, yeah. a relatively small amount of money. Bother. So if he's going to get banned anyway, then F it, just pay nothing. And, I, um, yep. and I, I'm not one who's a believer of skirting your responsibility and just saying, well, I'm not going to pay for damage that my kids caused because I can get away with it. However, on the other end... Uh, because this has never happened before, there, there's got to be some agreement on the other side that if, in good faith, you pay for the damages, that you don't get banned as thanks for paying. So uh, I, I, that, I would use that as a negotiating tool and say, I'm willing to pay for the damage. I'm not willing to pay more than what the damages are. I'm, I want to pay what the damages really are to the penny. And then uh, let's figure that out. I will pay it. But on your end, you're going to need to agree not to ban me um, you know, so I'll act in good faith. You act in good faith. That's what, that, that's what I would tell them. And uh, especially because it was kids doing this. It's not like you got drunk yourself and did this. And they're thinking, I don't want this uh, troublemaker back on property. These were kids. These weren't even teenagers. These were actual kids. So uh, I, I would think. I mean, of, while that's true, the kids were also left unsupervised, right? And yeah. You could justifiably say that the casino doesn't want them back, you know? kids could be left unsupervised again and do something even worse. You know? Well, yeah, and, and, and the, the casino could say that. Casino could just say, look, we don't care if you pay back or not. If you don't pay back, then we'll, uh, you know, we'll sue you, but uh, you're, you're not coming back either way. Like, it's possible to say yeah. that, and of course, that'd be their right to do. But I'm saying before I would send them any money if I were him, I would say this is going to be contingent upon not right. banning me. Uh, yeah. And I would even agree, like, if something happens again, or if my kids ever damage anything again, then, then I'm willing to except a ban, but based upon what happened here, that you're not going to ban me if I pay. So that's that's my suggestion. And my suggestion also was to get uh, a legitimate accounting, and not just a bill, because a bill can say anything, but it's a legitimate accounting that is verifiable in some way, which might be a little difficult, but something that looks like it really is the cost of this, or at least a, a figure that's low enough to where you figure that it's it, 
close enough to being fair. Like, let's say they said it'll be $900. Well, I, I think given that there were 52 custom chocolates and that they do have to reproduce these in nine days, and as uh, Eric said, there could be some union labor involved. And, yeah, uh, they got to clean it up, and then they have to set it up again. And Yeah, yeah so... so there, you don't have to pinch pennies and say, okay, well, does this really cost $900 to reproduce these 52? At that point, you can say, okay, it, it sounds close enough. But the 2000 I did think was high. The 1300 is more reasonable, but the fact that they dropped it so quickly, that was kind of a bad look. I know they were trying to make it more palatable, but all this did is kind of prove that they were either picking the number out of their ass or were trying to just hit them with more money and see if they'll go for it, which is not a good look. It's one of these things where... Sometimes uh, coming down from what you're asking for makes you look worse. And uh, I, I would actually would use that for justification. That's what I told him. I, and I, in fact, I think he told me he did say that to them. That I said that, tell them you can't totally trust them about the number they want you to pay now, this 1300 because they originally said 2000 So if 2000 definitely wasn't right if they're willing to quickly drop it by 700 quickly drop it by like a third. So how do we know the 1300 is right? How do we know they're not just uh, seeing what he can get out of them? So I, I, if this happened to me, aside from being really pissed at Benjamin for this, if this happened to me, I would uh, tell them I'm willing to pay for it. I'm not trying to get out of this. I agree if my kid causes damage that I should have to pay, and I will pay. But I don't want to be fined on top of this, and I don't want to be gouged on top of this. I want to really pay for the actual damage caused and not a bit more and not a bit less. The exact amount. And I've taken this approach with uh, other companies before, not over damage, because that's never a situation I'm in, but I have taken this approach when there's some kind of incorrect bill or some kind of incorrect amount that's claimed I owed and they don't want to fix it. And I say, look, I'm not paying a dime until you make it right. And I don't care if it's only one cent more than the right amount. I'm not going to pay anything. So I'm going to pay exactly what I believe is fair that I owe, not a little bit more, nor am I going to stiff you. But until we agree on something that is fair, I'm not paying you anything. And I will get these pushbacks, like, oh, come on, you know, we're, we're close enough now. I go, no, I don't want close enough. This needs to be fixed all the way. Okay, well, how about you pay what you, what you feel is right, then we'll deal with the rest later. No. You give me a correct bill, then I'll pay the whole thing. You give me an incorrect bill, I pay nothing. And I, I think that's kind of what they should do here, except they do have the ban issue they have to worry about. So they, if Tommy does want to come back there, and if Brienne wants to come back there, they may have to give a little up in order to make that happen. But as I said, get that agreement in writing that they're not banned. And, and writing's important because they can pay and be told orally that it's going to be no ban, and then they're going to try to book a hotel in a month and find out they're banned. And then there's, not, there's nothing you could do at that point. So you got to have it in writing. And I believe if, if it's in writing and then they ban you anyway, there I think you could actually take some action, at least get your money back, because uh, this would be like a breaking a contract. This is the He's paying the amount contingent upon the promise not to ban him. So that is... Uh, the approach I would take in this situation, which isn't too different from what uh, Eric was saying, to try to negotiate what you can, but be aware that they can ban you if they if you can't come to terms here. I, I do think also a strong argument, as I said earlier, 
is that it wasn't only their kid that did it. It was uh, someone else's kids doing it, and that person is uh, getting off scot-free. You could even downplay it and say you don't even know this person very well. That these are just, you know, kind of people you, you you got to know in Vegas the other day and that they came to visit you and then the, uh, they kind of just went around together. Because you are responsible what your kids did, but uh, there is a legal question here is if you have guests that come to the hotel but aren't staying with you, uh, who's responsible for damage that takes place? And you may say, oh, come on, it's, it's got to be them them meaning Brianna and Tommy, not necessarily. I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say a poker fraud alert listener decides to uh, meet me at the Rio and ask if I want to meet him. And I say, sure. And I'm staying at the Rio and he's not. And uh, so we go meet somewhere in the lobby and we talk a little bit and he seems cool enough and I'm in a trusting mood and I bring him up to my room for a little bit and uh you know, we we talk there, and then we uh, uh, I say, hey, you know, you want to you want to go to eat? And he, okay, so we we go we go to dinner. Well, while we're at dinner, he drinks a lot, and he doesn't hold his alcohol very well. And then uh, we decide to uh, go out and play some poker. But uh, when he starts taking bad beats, he starts getting very uh, very very difficult and very uh, crazy. And not only does he uh, damage things in the poker room, but uh, after taking some bad beats, he goes around and just smashes things around the Rio and smashes slot machines and slashes video po- smashes video poker machines and turns over tables and causes all kinds of damage. And then he gets away before the police can arrest him. Now, do you think they could bill me for that? Obviously not. I didn't break anything. I didn't uh, damage anything. Even though he was meeting me there even though he went up to my room at some point, and even though he was there for the purpose of meeting me, I am not responsible for what another adult does on their property in the common area. So they could not bill me for any of this. I'd say he's another adult, go find him, and go after him for this. So similarly, if they have guests there that uh, the guest kids damage something in the common area, I would think that uh, this would be on them to find that other guest and uh, charge them for what damage they did. Now, the difference here is that Brianne's kid did steal things herself. So definitely some money is owed here. But that that's another point you can use in your favor in a situation like this as far as negotiating. Saying, hey, this wasn't... Mostly, mostly it was done by the other kids. So... I'm even willing to take responsibility for, for some of this just for the matter of resolving this, but I definitely don't want to pay this much. So uh, a lot of uh, complicated legal angles to this whole thing. In case you're wondering why I'm putting their private business out there, even changing their names, you know, am I being a jerk, putting out their story as fodder for radio? I asked them for permission beforehand to both post this on the forum and put this on the show, and they said... That is fine. So, that is okay. And uh, I have a question uh, from the 773 area, from a text message I got, uh, regarding the deposit in hotel rooms. Why do they charge $50 per day? So, if you stay six days, it's a $300 deposit. Makes no sense. Damage can be done in one day just as easily as six. 
Well, the answer to that is it's not so much about damage. The deposit is mainly for room charges, and they figure the longer you're there, the more you're going to charge the room. What they don't want is you uh, billing a bunch of stuff to the room, and then they try to run your credit card, and it's already at its limit. So basically what they're doing is they're putting a hold on your credit card, and to, this way they know the funds are available if they need them. And then as far as damage, they'll try to charge it, but sometimes, yes, that could run over the limit and... and the charge would fail, or in this case, like where the person cancels their card. But uh, yeah, mostly this is for the ability to charge the room. And uh, he said back, yeah, I've always turned that off, the ability to charge the room. Yeah, some hotels actually will let you have no deposit if you're turning off charge into the room, but they usually won't. They usually want some kind of held deposit so they can at least get you for something if the room is damaged. I won't say this is a perfect policy with multiplying it by the number of days you're staying, but at the same time, I don't think it's uh, that terrible. Taking a look at some other texts we got from the 801. Druff, my radio player's not working. When I try the alternate link, it tells me to fuck off. Really? Thanks for the call to the listen line. Can you fix it for me? <laughs> this really tell him to fuck off? I don't know. I do have on some URLs on the site where people are trying to visit where they shouldn't. It actually says fuck off, but that shouldn't be clicking on that link. I'm going to have to look into this, but uh, uh, nobody else is telling me that the radio player is having a problem. So from the 801, please tell me what uh, device you're using trying to listen to the uh, radio player on the radio tab. From the 805, I'm at the bike as we speak and it's packed. The COVID experiment in poker rooms has been going on for months. The dealers tell me they aren't hearing of any dealers getting it. Hmm. Now, I don't know if the bike is requiring any kind of uh, vaccination, though. Are they? I haven't been there, but I know they're doing well. I know ever since they took Commerce's business, they're, they're doing great over the bike. So, Commerce is the one struggling, and the bike has emerged from the pandemic as the new leader. Talked about that before. Though there was other rooms that are also uh, doing better than they were before, including Hustler, including Hollywood Park, surprisingly, even Hawaiian Gardens. So we, we have some rooms that uh, have kind of uh, risen from the dead and uh, taken what commerce once had. Okay, so moving on here. Calwatt, have you heard of the uh, poker paint controversy? Hmm, did Calwatt fall asleep? Uh-oh. He may have actually fallen asleep. Well, I'm going to drop Calwatt here. He knows how to reach me if uh, he decides that he's going to call back. But I think we lost Calwatt at right around 4 a.m. Eastern time. It's understandable. Thank him for being here with me for a few hours. But let's talk about the situation with poker paint. This is something we would have talked about on last week's show, if we had last week's show. So this actually occurred about two weeks ago now, a little more than two weeks ago. But uh, it had just been occurring as we did our last show, but I hadn't seen it yet. So this is not quite a current story, but it's one worth talking about. And it really hasn't been fully resolved yet. So NFTs, you've probably heard of them. It stands for Non-Fungible Token. And this is basically digital art that's on the cryptocurrency blockchain. Could be on the Ethereum blockchain, could be on the Solana blockchain, it could even be on a different blockchain. But uh, this is basically art that you own the uh, element on the blockchain. You don't always own the art itself. You sometimes just own 
the image that is on the blockchain, but you may not actually own the actual image, the copyright to the image. In fact, you usually don't. It's kind of similar to collecting something like baseball cards. So think of in the old days, you'd get a pack of baseball cards and you, you find a really rare one in there. Well, you own the card, but you don't own the image of that player. You have no rights to the image of that baseball player, but you do own a rare card, which you could go to a baseball card show and sell for a lot of money. So NFTs are the electronic version of that. So that's, that's the best way to describe it. And there's various NFT projects out there. Some have uh, some sort of utility to them where you can actually play a game around it, kind of like Zed Run, that horse racing game that uh, I own some of those. But most of them, you're not really doing anything with them. You're just collecting them. Again, kind of like collecting baseball cards. So this has blown up huge in 2021. It didn't start in 2021. Some of these go back a few years, but most people had not heard of this until 2021. And in 2021, it's become huge. As a result, the NFT world has exploded and there's all kinds of NFT projects out there which are pushing people to buy into because it's like, printing money. If you can get the public's attention with your NFT project and you can sell them these images, sometimes these are very crudely produced images. These aren't even ones that are made by uh, brilliant artists all the time. Sometimes these are nice pieces of digital art. Sometimes it's just uh, pixelated looking trash that people want to collect. In fact, I even mentioned on a previous show, there were these very crude pictures of rocks that looked like they were made on MS Paint that were going for six figures or in some cases seven figures. So it's crazy. So this really has blown up because a lot of people have a lot of money in cryptocurrency and they don't quite know what to do with it other than just hold it. So they've started investing in this stuff and hope it appreciates in the same way as cryptocurrency has over the years. So this has given rise to so many different projects some of which have caught on and made a fortune for those that either were early adopters or were the creators of the project, or and some which have failed and haven't really gotten the attention of the public. Anyway, in the poker world, I really hadn't seen any yet. I saw people in poker interested in NFTs and collecting NFTs, but I had not seen any that were about poker until Poker Paint. Poker Paint kind of seems like a cool idea. It's uh, art of various poker pros that you would probably know, including some very famous ones, that were supposedly drawn by the artist who started Poker Paint, whose name is uh, Brent Butts, B-U-T-Z. I don't know if it's Butts or Buttes, but uh, I'll call him Butts. Brent Butts, he started Poker Paint, and uh, supposedly he is the artist behind these pictures. And uh, there's one of Daniel Negreanu that he has up on his site as an example, but a lot of different uh, poker players being depicted in action in this uh, art form. And it, it's very colorful. It's uh, in a style where you definitely can recognize who these people are, but uh, it's not like a photograph. It looks like... Uh, an overly colorful artistic version of these players at the table. And, and they're pretty cool looking images and people were pretty excited for the project. And uh, even journalists like uh, David Lappin were 
promoting it just just because they thought it was cool, not because they had any actual uh, stake in the project. I'm looking at this uh, little this tweet that David Lappin sent out, and again, David Lappin is not involved, but uh, I, I see various uh, poker pros being depicted, such as Phil Helmuth, uh, Stu Unger, Vanessa Cade. Uh, I see Joey Ingram here. So I, I see a number of like a, a wide range of these poker pros depicted in various poses, and. I don't know. I, in fact, I do know these poker pros didn't actually give their permission for this, but that wasn't the problem. No one was really objecting to this. And there's even the fan art exception from a legal standpoint, where and this came up long before poker paint. This came up uh, decades ago, of whether uh, someone who's famous that there is some allowance for people to create art of them without having to get their permission or pay them for it. You, uh, you can't just steal their likeness. You can't just steal photographs of them. But, you, but if you were to create your own original art of them, depicting them doing things, uh, th- there is some legal mechanism to allow you to do this, which is uh, what's called fan art. And I, I don't know a whole lot about that, but that's the mechanism that one would use if you were to draw a famous person doing something without having to compensate them for it or get their permission for you to draw them. Like, I, I think, for example, if I were to draw a picture of uh, Kirk Gibson hitting that famous home run in the 1988 World Series off of De- Dennis Eckersley in Game 1, and I were to just draw what I remembered of Kirk Gibson doing this, I wouldn't have to get Kirk Gibson's permission. And if I were to sell my drawing of this, I don't believe I'd have to compensate him because it would be my own original art of remembering a, uh, a celebrity in a uh, famous moment. But uh, at the same time, if I were to uh, use his likeness, just a, like a picture of him to promote uh, Poker Fraud Alert, that I couldn't do. So anyway, I don't want to get too much into the legal aspect of that because that's not quite what this is about. And as I said, the pros who were depicted were not objecting. At least I didn't see any objecting. So that wasn't the problem. But here was the problem. Up until David Lappin was uh, promoting them, just just basically to be nice to poker paint because he thought it was a cool project, this was pretty much ignored by the poker world, even though this has been going on for several months. So poker paint has been around, and it is an NFT. It is were, It was planned to be an NFT. What the guy was doing, he was drawing the pictures first, and then he planned to put it on the blockchain as, as an NFT in uh, late 2021. And he was selling these for up to $1,500 each. So these were not necessarily cheap. This got attention when, number one, David Lappin was promoting it for him, and number two, that uh, Poker Paint made it clear that this is now an NFT. It's no longer just cool pictures you can buy of these poker players, but it's actually uh, 104 different NFTs that were listed on a site called OpenSea, O-P-E-N-S-E-A, which is by far the biggest site where people trade NFTs. OpenSea is not owned or affiliated with Poker Paint in any way. They were just using OpenSea as, as an auction site, like a middleman sales site, 
where you could buy these NFTs on the blockchain from Poker Paint. So Poker Paint was very excited that he now he put 104 of these pictures that he did on the blockchain. The poker community was warm to this, and he thought he was going to make a lot of money. Until some objections were raised, not by the players depicted, but by a lot of poker photographers. You see, the images that were depicted there were not the original art of poker paint. No, no, no. They were actually photographs taken by poker photographers over the years and just taken without permission and converted to this art format. And see, that is a lot different than fan art. Let's go back to my Kirk Gibson example. If I'm just remembering what Kirk Gibson looked like when he hit that home run, or let's say I draw an exaggerated version of the situation. Let's say I draw a version where Kirk Gibson's bat is 10 feet long, representing he has a big bat and uh, was the big bat for the Dodgers that day. Or I draw Kirk Gibson with a really big head, or something like that. Something where it's clearly not a, a, a recreation of a photograph or a video of him, but just either my memory of his or an exaggerated version, a cartoonish version of it. That more falls under fan art. But when you take someone else's art and just convert it to a slightly different format, then that brings up some very serious copyright issues. See, whenever these poker photographers take pictures of these players, whether it's Phil Helmuth or Daniel Negreanu or Stu Unger or Vanessa Cade, whoever is being depicted here, they even have uh, K.L. Cleeton, the uh, wheelchair-bound uh, quadriplegic in one of these uh, NFTs. So it's a very wide variety of players. When people take pictures of these players, that is their art. They actually own the photographs, especially because when these players play in these tournaments, they actually have signed an agreement with the World Series or whatever tournament they're in that they are agreeing for these pictures to be taken of them and that they are not to be given further compensation for it. That's one of the agreements you sign at the World Series of Poker. So basically these photographers who are licensed photographers to, uh, or not licensed, but they're, they're given permission to uh, be the official photographers at the World Series of Poker or at the World Poker Tour, wherever they are, they are creating art. It's not art that they drew, but it's photographic art. And they do put a lot of work into doing this. They're not just going around uh, snapping random pictures. They're looking for the right moment when the player has the right expression on his face and he's in the right pose and he's holding his cards and his chips a certain way. You're trying to get the perfect shot that shows that player in a moment that you're trying to depict. And it's not that easy. It seems a lot easier than it is. So, so there's some great pictures that have been taken over the years, some iconic pictures that have been taken by these poker photographers, some a long time ago, like Stewie Unger, who died uh, almost 25 years ago, and some who... Uh, some which are taken very recently, like the pictures of Vanessa Cade, for example. So whatever it is, these photographers own the art they created. And when Poker Paint goes and makes his version of it, taking the identical photo 
and just changing the format of it to where it's a lot more colorful and and a little more uh, cartoony looking, but it's the identical photo with everything else identical. To me and to many in poker, this looked like theft. Some were also alleging that he wasn't even drawing this stuff, that he was running it through some kind of filter or program to convert it to this format, which is very possible. I'm not saying he did or didn't. I'm saying that this is possible. There are many programs out there that will convert regular pictures into other formats that look like they're drawn. In fact, I've had these uh, spammed to me on Facebook. Oh, yeah, turn yourself into a cartoon. Upload a picture of yourself and we'll make it into a cartoon. And then it does that. So there's some allegations that this guy's not even creating any real art. He's just running it through some sort of filter in 30 seconds and taking somebody else's art and then calling it his. But even if he is actually drawing these, if he's drawing these exactly like their photos and just uh, changing the format of them to be more colorful, then that is probably theft from a copyright standpoint, even though I don't have expertise in that field. That's why I say probably, because uh, I would need an attorney with... uh, either a specialty in that field or one who just has a lot of knowledge in it. Anyway, as you can imagine, legal or not legal, a lot of people were pissed. The photographers themselves were furious and felt that their work had been stolen from them without any compensation because here the pictures they took were now being sold on OpenSea and the money was going to go to this poker paint guy, this Brent Butts. Eric Harkins, who's one of the photographers that had his work uh, co-opted in this way, he wrote on September 24th at 1.53 p.m., Poker Paint has been brought to our attention that you're reskinning copyrighted images, including ours, without prior consent or license. Please cease and desist all sales of images or reach out to the original photographers for license permission. Then, uh, apparently, they also lifted an image from Poker Go footage that uh, some said was exploiting Norm MacDonald's death for profit, charging $1,500 for this painting of him in action that was directly lifted from a Poker Go broadcast, but then put into this uh, Poker Paint format. And uh, it was shown the pictures of how uh, they were basically identical other than having this uh, different format. Unfortunately, the uh, tweet depicting this is now gone. So it's possible this was uh, taken down by Poker Paint. Uh, Poker Poker Go can be very litigious, so it wouldn't surprise me if they have already threatened uh, Poker Paint with a lawsuit and he backed down. Because I see that's all gone now. Poker Paint also attempted to uh, calm the controversy by posting a statement about this on Twitter on the 24th when this all blew up. He said... I understand a lot of you may be upset that I saw a photo on social media and loved it enough to imitate it in a very different style. No, I'm not opposed to giving photographers a percentage of uh, its hard work. Uh, I also challenge you to at least try to draw a similar style before criticizing the project I've worked tirelessly on for the past three years. You can find my contact information on my site if you believe your content was stolen and will be happy to figure out a much more positive approach. So that did not uh, get the best response. The problem here was that 
Number one, the guy didn't seem like he was that apologetic. It seemed like he was more lecturing everybody why this was okay. And that wasn't going over very well. Not just with the poker photographers, but by poker pros who were supportive of the photographers, including one Mr. Daniel Negreanu himself, who uh, brought attention to this matter and said that uh, we should all support the hardworking poker photographers who uh, spent so much time and effort creating these images from every World Series and every poker, World Poker Tour. And, and he's right. Like, it, There's a lot of behind-the-scenes people in the poker world that make everything happen. And it's easy to neglect these people because they're not big names. They're not people that uh, get a lot of the spotlight. But there is someone out there taking these pictures of you. There is someone out there writing reports of events. There is someone out there publishing sites that keep track of poker news. And uh, all these add up to be part of the poker world as a whole. And they don't get the glory often like the players do. At least the big name players do. So people like Negranu, they see what they believe is the exploitation of these photographers and they get upset and, and say, hey, we got to support them. And I, and I agree. And I think that was nice of Negranu to do this and to speak up for them and to try to bring attention to the matter. So people did not like poker paint lecturing the poker world back of, hey, this is okay. Hey, what's, what's the problem here? This is hard to do. And, and you, know, you try redrawing this style. It's a tough thing. And I've been putting three years into this. And, and yeah, if you want, I'll give you a percentage. But yeah, I, I, I don't see why you're all so upset. Let's be positive here. You, you can't really say that. You've, what you've got to do is you've got to correct the wrong. If, if you think you've screwed up here, You've got to figure a way to correct it, not just uh, defend yourself and say, okay, going forward, I'll give you a percentage. It, it doesn't work that way. So uh, Dan Ross of Hold'em Media said back, wrong answer. You absolutely know the images you had prior permission to use. It's on you to stop, delete content you have no rights to use, and follow up with the proper contact from the photographers. If you refuse, it's for lawyers to force the images to be removed. Show an ethical responsibility to correct your failures before it requires legal action to stop you. Joe Girone, who's a, a prolific photographer, especially at the World Series, he's taken a lot of pictures of me, in fact. Uh, Joe Girone wrote, uh, as Dan says, you need to remove all content you don't have authorization to display or sell. Then a process has to start to make an audit and a full accounting of your sales as it relates to the sold works of art from the unauthorized usages of your, of your images to compensate us. Con and then so Poker Paint said back, contact me about whatever images you think are stolen and we will fix it. See, I didn't like that. Notice what he keeps saying. If you think I've stolen your work, get a hold of me and we'll come to an agreement. Well, that to me sounds like a negative checkoff scam. A negative checkoff scam is where you rip someone off and then only if they contact you about being ripped off do you make it right. But if they don't contact you, then you keep all the money. That's what a negative checkoff scam is. I call it a negative checkoff scam because in order to undo the scam, you actually have to take the action to negatively check yourself off the scam. It doesn't just automatically reverse as it should. So those can be very lucrative, and the reason those are done is because the perpetrator of the scam can then say, hey, look, I made it right for anyone who complained, so I'm not a scammer, because anyone who had an issue, I fixed it for them. And they sound like a great guy until you think, wait a minute, why should they have to wait to be contacted? Why don't they just make it right for everybody they screwed? So 
that was not a good answer. It got even worse for poker paint when prolific photographer Haley Hotstetler, who's at Haley Ocho, H-A-Y-L-E-Y-O-C-H-O, Haley Ocho, Haley Hotstelter is her name, she revealed that back in June, Poker Paint actually contacted her for permission to use one of her pictures. So she actually did get contact, and she refused, and the guy used it anyway. Uh-oh. And that was really the turning point in all this that really made Poker Paint look terrible. She said, this account, referring to Poker Paint, reached out for my permission to use one of my photos back in June. I politely declined and explained my reasoning why. A month later, the same person messaged me, having ignored my previous wishes, with an edited image that I told him he couldn't create. He knows what he's doing. I told him no, and he did it anyway. Some people are saying this is a gray area involving copyright. It's not. He's simply stealing other photographers' work without permission, illegally changing it, and selling it for a profit. This is somewhat similar to the recent Poker Go copyright debacle. They get on people for using their clips and tweets. Now imagine being in our shoes, finding out that someone's reproducing and selling content without permission. It's little more than just, quote, not cool. Poker Paint tried to respond and was posting their conversation about uh, what they had said back and forth. And uh, then she responded saying that uh, he left out part of it. He said, uh, you're leaving out the part where I explicitly said not to save or alter the image. And she showed that he wrote on June 19th, hey, do you mind me selling the photo of Landon, that's Landon Teese, uh, so I can make it into another poker paint piece? And she said back, hey, I'm honored that you want to make one of my photos into a piece, but I prefer to keep my photos limited to the company that purchased them, in this case, Solve for Why. This protects me as a photographer, as I've been having a lot of problems with people stealing photos and using them for purposes other than what was originally in the agreement between me and said company. I hope that makes sense and is all right with you. So, I mean, it's pretty clear. She told him no, and he did it anyway. So that really got people mad. It's one thing to use the images and going, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to ask for permission. It's another to actually ask a photographer for permission, get denied, and then use it anyway. So that really got people pissed off. Then Poker Paint was addressing the accusations that he wasn't even making art, that he was simply running it through some kind of automated filter program. He said, the art isn't stolen. It's not a filter. It's not an altered image. It's its own art. So I apologize. I have trouble listening to things that aren't true. Then he said, going forward, I'll be contacting all photographers prior to making the art. He still didn't get a good response to that because people still weren't happy that he just seemed too much like, okay, what's done is done. Going forward, I'll get permission, but up till now, it's cool. Like People didn't like that attitude that he was displaying here. So he thought about it for a few days, especially as there was really a lot of outrage about what had been done to Haley Hotstelter and that Negreanu was getting involved and he, he knew it was going south for him real fast. So he decided to put out a statement which got some mixed response. This is what he said on September 27th, three days later. I would like to apologize for not representing myself, my brand, and the poker community in a professional manner. Looking back over my tweets, I realized that I allowed the frustration I felt towards a few people taking pot shots at my art to influence my responses to the community at large, and I apologize for doing so. I want to apologize specifically to the content creators whose legitimate concerns I did not acknowledge quickly and respectfully enough. To that end, I want to briefly address the allegations of, quote, stealing. 
I'm a 25-year-old poker player and artist, and until 48 hours ago, my knowledge of copyright law was essentially non-existent. Or rather, it was my sincere belief that based on my extremely limited understanding of copyright law, that there was nothing wrong with basing a hand-drawn piece of pop art off an original photograph pulled from social media or otherwise freely available on the internet. I was clearly ignorant about copyright laws and got defensive when it was brought to my attention. Okay, that's true. He goes on to say, Now that I've realized to what extent I was wrong, I want to make it right and continue doing business in the correct way moving forward. I need to educate myself on the law to make 100% sure my work at Poker Paint is not infringing on anyone else's rights, and I want to assure everyone out there that I'm in the process of doing so now. Once I confirm with legal counsel what aspects of my business model are and aren't compliant with copyright laws, I will do whatever is necessary to make up for past mistakes and I will make sure Poker Paint's business model going forward is fully compliant with the law. Please understand that this is a steep learning curve for me, but my promise to the community and any affected content creators is that it will make this right as soon as I possibly can. In the meantime, I have pulled from my website and social media accounts all pieces that have received complaints. If I've overlooked anything, please let me know and I will take it down immediately. Anyone who knows me knows that poker paint is a labor of love, and I hope to continue to bring memories to the poker community for years to come. I promise I will do the right thing in a way that is transparent to the poker community that I love and that I'm so grateful to be a part of. Poker paint. I still didn't love that statement. On one hand, I can understand how a 25-year-old may not have realized that he was doing anything wrong, though I don't understand his excuse for using Haley's picture after she said he can't. I mean, there, there he can't plead ignorance. I'm willing to cut the guy some slack. I'm willing to chocolate up somewhat to ignorance of content law, especially because he's pretty young, and to wait to see if he does the right thing. However, this plan of his doesn't go far enough. It's too much like a negative checkoff scam. He knows exactly which pieces, if any, were originals, ones that he really created on his own. And he knows which were unauthorized copies of photos. He also knows if there's any authorized copies of photos, ones where he did get permission. So anything that he has permission obviously is fine. Anything he did himself that was his original is fine. But anything that was an unauthorized copy of the photo, which he admits now in his own statement he shouldn't have done and is illegal, like he's admitting right now these people were right and he shouldn't have done this and he didn't have the legal right to copy their work like this. Okay, he knows which ones he did. He can go through his entire collection, which I think is 104 of them, and take a look. Okay, I had permission for this, or okay, I did this as an original. Oh, okay, and this one, either I was told not to, or I never asked. He knows. He knows for every piece which ones he had permission and which ones he didn't. So why is he saying, hey, if you notice that I'm using your work, let me know and I'll stop? What? How about just you go through it yourself and you take down every piece that you know you did not have authorization to copy? Why can't he do that? Every response of his does not involve him doing that. Every response of his is basically, show me how I've wronged you and I'll make it right. Not, I will figure out how I've wronged you and make it right. There's a huge difference between the two. The one who knows best about whether he had permission or not was him. He knows exactly what he had the right to copy and what he did not have the right to copy. And I have to imagine the vast majority he did not. 
I don't have proof of that, but that would be my guess from what I've seen. In fact, I haven't seen a signal photographer come forward and say, oh yeah, he had permission for mine. So why doesn't he do this? Well, I can't answer for him, but my guess is that he'd be taking down almost his entire collection, and he doesn't want to go that far. So he's kind of sort of trying to make this right without having to take everything down and also pay people a piece of what he sold it for in the past, especially he may not have the money anymore. So he's trying to do the minimum to get out of this. Now, do I believe this was an act of evil? No, not necessarily. He may really have been ignorant to this. He may really have believed that uh, if he could Google a picture of Daniel Negreanu, that he could either redraw it or, or filter it into a different format and release it as an NFT, and, and uh, that's fine. He may have been ignorant of the copyright law there, and I can't tell you if he knew it or not, but it is possible he didn't. So I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt there, but I cannot give him the benefit of the doubt when it comes to continuing to publish or sell these images, he needs to take down every single piece where he knows he didn't have permission. And if he doesn't, then he is not serious about doing this right. There's no such thing as, okay, I've stolen this before, but going forward, I'm going to be a good boy. And if I, if I messed up before and you're the victim, let me know, we'll make it right. But I'm not going to tell you on my own. That is not someone who's serious about making it right. But as I said, there could be a financial issue here where he just can't afford to give anyone the piece of what he sold so far. And he may be afraid if he contacts everyone, they're going to say, okay, well, how many did he sell? And he goes, ah, well, I sold three. Okay, well, let me have some of it. Ah, I don't really have any money anymore. Like, it could be something like that. So who knows? But this, this is a whole mess. And there's another problem here. He can say he's going to make it right going forward. He could even contact all the photographers and either take down the pieces that uh, they just don't want to give him authorization to use or come to some agreement with them that they'll get X percentage of whatever he sells and that he gives them money for back sales, blah, blah, blah. But guess what? This brand is kind of toxic now. I don't know if people in the poker community are going to forgive this. I don't know if there's going to be any excitement about poker paint. I don't know if people are going to want to get poker paint NFTs because the whole thing has a negative stench to it at this point, even if he makes it right going forward. And that's a big problem. So sometimes you've damaged the brand so much that it really doesn't have value anymore. And we may be there. Because it's not like this was an established thing that everybody loved. This was something that seemed like a cool idea that some people were excited about until this came out and then it became defined by content theft. And I don't think he'll ever shake that off because that's really all anyone thinks about now when they hear the words poker paint if they are aware of the story. So on one hand, I can see how this happened. I can see how a 25-year-old could get himself into this. I can, I, I can look at this in a way to where I go, okay, it's totally understandable how this could have occurred and the guy was just naive. And then he became overwhelmed with all the attacks on him and he said some stupid things, but, you know, he's he just a young guy who, who was trying to do something that he didn't realize wasn't legally permissible. But on the other hand, he is taking other people's work and he doesn't seem particularly serious about going through and removing it all when he knows he didn't have permission. And since he's not, from what I can see, that's not a good look. But either way, I don't think poker paint is ever going to be something people want 
to buy or promote or be proud of owning. So I, I think he ruined the brand by what he did here. And the sad thing is he had a pretty good idea prior to this. So I had he made his own original pictures, even if he didn't have 104 of them, he could have made a lot fewer. I think that people would have liked it a lot better and wouldn't have had this controversy and it actually could have become something big. So I, I, I don't know where this is going to go, but I, I have to imagine that uh, poker paint is dead in the water. I just don't see anyone wanting to be part of it at this point. Taking a look at their Twitter, they've gone quiet since this has happened. That was the last thing that he posted was that statement that I read you. But it's now been two weeks and he hasn't said a word. So I kind of think that this guy realizes it has no future. I think he realizes, regardless of what he was doing, I don't know if he was running these through a filter or if he really was doing his own art and just copying them. I don't know what the hell he was doing. Whatever it is, I think he realizes that this is just never going to get anywhere. That he's screwed it up and it's done. So I I have a feeling that uh, we're not going to hear from Poker Paint again. Maybe I'll be wrong, but that's kind of what it's looking like because he just hasn't said a word about this in the last two weeks. Okay, so moving on to the next topic. I want to give you an update regarding the Jenny Savage-Leong story and Andy Stacks. So every once in a while, I get a contact from Jenny Leong, a.k.a. Savage, and she directs me to something related to this situation. She and I aren't friends or anything, and I'm not taking any sides in this whole matter, but it is playing out somewhat on Poker Fraud Alert, as I mentioned on the last show. So, here is what's happening. On October 1st, 2021, she posted this on Twitter, which you can find at Real Savage Poker. At Real Savage Poker, exactly as it sounds. I don't believe the only way to solve a problem is to get court and legal authorities involved. Unfortunately, the situation has come to a place where seeking legal intervention appears to be the only option. Now, remember, she was the one accused by Andy Stacks, whose real name, I guess, is Andy Sai. He accused her on Live of the Bike during a live stream, which she was not on, that she owed him 16 k from a private game that they played and he loaned her while she was at the game, and that uh, she's been giving him the runaround, and that she just simply isn't paying him, and he was uh, putting out that statement that it's pissing him off, that she has been playing on high stakes live at the bike and not paying him. And then something happened behind the scenes back and forth, and then somehow both sides ended up with attorneys, and both are threatening to sue one another, and here's where we are today. She said, I don't believe the only way to solve a problem is to get the court and legal authorities involved. Unfortunately, this situation has come to a place where seeking legal intervention appears to be the only available option. That's the same as what she wrote in her tweet, but then she included the rest of the statement after that. I do not intend to take back what I said because I told the truth. Mr. Sai has not denied my allegations, yet has failed to apologize. I'm a reasonable person, and I would not pursue a last resort before giving a person multiple opportunities to fix the problem. I did not publicize everything because I wanted to give Mr. Sai a chance to make amends. Now, 
in a previous statement that I read on the last show, she made various allegations against Andy Stacks, such as that he was involved in uh, running an illegal private game that takes rake, such as that he was making uh, sexual advances towards her that she didn't want, and also that he was trashing her reputation and not giving her a chance to pay back. So these were her allegations back towards him. I'm not saying any of these things are true, but she's saying that he's not denying any of these things since she put out her last statement. She went on to write, I have offered several options for settling this case. First, I offered a mutual walk away with public apology for using extreme measures to collect a debt in exchange for the settlement of the debt. If this matter has been settled at that time, I would not have been even exposed to the truth of what happened, but he refused this offer. Thus, I felt that I had no choice but tell the entire story myself because it is the only way I can clarify what happened. So basically she's saying that if he just let her pay back at a more reasonable rate without uh, bringing this matter into social media, then uh, none of this would have happened with all the stuff she wrote about him. Next, I once again offered another chance to settle this issue with a public apology, with the apology addressing not just the improper way of handling the debt, but also all the mistreatment and abuse that he subjected me to, but Mr. Sai refused again. All I've asked for is an apology after Mr. Sai both abused and unfairly damaged my reputation. I've never denied the debt nor refused to settle it. However, Mr. Sai's abusive tactics and refusal to apologize and help clear my name after the damage he'd do to it is not acceptable. I'm not making these allegations to avoid a debt. I'm making them because they are true. I've made it clear that I will not drop the lawsuit or refrain from pursuing legal recourse, even with 16K now being forgiven. Now, I don't quite understand about the money being forgiven. Moving on, she says, I'm not letting go of what Mr. Sai did to me in exchange for him letting go of the 16K. I want and deserve a formal apology. If an apology is taking responsibility for that difficult... if if, if if an apology and taking responsibility is that difficult, then pursuing a lawsuit is my last resort. At this time, I have decided to proceed with all legal actions. I have confidence that my claims would be successful in courts and believe the truth matters. I believe in the end every wrong will be punished and justice will prevail. Lastly, I also want to take this opportunity to clarify a few things that were unclear in the previous statement. After Mr. Sai's non-consensual sexual advances towards me, I knew I would never feel safe at a home game with him again, and I'd never gone back ever since. The scam of the home game and the $200 rake is something I learned from other players at the casino about approximately one week after I rejected Mr. Sai's invitation, and it only solidified my position after uh, in never going there again. Now, let me stop here. She had said in her previous statement that she declined to go to the third private game because she heard the rake was $200 max, and that it's an insane rake, and that she refused to go to such a game, whereas the previous private games were not raked. The legal standing of home games in California where this took place is that it is legal to run home poker games if a rake is not taken. But if a rake is taken, then it is illegal. So she was saying that, number one, it's an illegal game. Number two, she was never going to pay that type of rake, so she refused to go. Which then made people ask her, if the only reason you weren't going is because of the high rake, then apparently your sexual harassment allegations against him either weren't true or exaggerated, because otherwise there's no way you would go to a game with him again after he supposedly sexually harassed you. 
There's no way that the only reason you would stay home would be because the rake's too high. You would say, no, I don't care about the rake. I'm just not going to be anywhere with you. But she didn't write that on the last uh, statement, and people called that into question. So this is her trying to clarify it, that she only found out about the high rake afterwards and that she wasn't going to go with him either way, which I, I don't know if that's true. It seems like kind of a bit of a changed story here. She said, Without the other players telling me and explaining to me, I would have never known how duplicitous these games were. Also, I only brought up Mr. Sai's invitation to the home game to the casino's attention when he brought up my debt to their attention. As for the wire issue, now this is that uh, she was having trouble getting a wire to him for the 16K, which is what kicked off all these problems in the first place. I have my own financial reasons for the way I handled it. After the bank rejected my wire, I contacted Mr. Sai too. I clearly told him that we ensured that the small transactions went through. I would send him money in larger transactions to avoid being flagged by PayPal. So basically she's saying that uh, instead of trying to send another wire, she was going to send it through a bunch of smaller transactions on PayPal because if you send too much money at once, there they ban you, which that part's true. But I don't know if she really had the money to send, but she's saying that she was trying to send smaller transactions on PayPal and he wasn't accepting that. Unfortunately, after the second transaction went through on September 7th, Mr. Sai decided to publicly attack me and unjustly label me a scammer on September 8th. I thank all those who have shown me support in this challenging time, and I'm sure the truth will reveal itself at the end. You know, I don't understand why this is like a lawsuit. I don't understand why that would be happening here. As I said on the last show, this whole thing can be resolved simply by her paying back the money and then them coming out with a joint statement that this was a misunderstanding, that there was an issue with the wire, that it's understandable that he would have suspected that it wasn't a wire issue, that it was just her not having the money, and that this caused him to make some allegations about her, which, while they seemed reasonable at the time, turned out not to be true, and then she responded in kind, and they went back and forth, so they're both accepting this is a misunderstanding because of that wire that didn't get through. She has made good on the debt. He agrees that she wasn't stiffing him, and that's that. No apologies, no admitting of wrongdoing, just the money's paid back, we had some misunderstanding back and forth, and that's it. And then they could both walk away, and it's not going to really kill either person's reputation. And what happened from this whole thing was that both people ended up having their reputations harmed. There's things about uh, Jenny Leong, a.k.a. Savage, that now people suspect or don't like because of stuff that Andy said about her. And uh, there's stuff about Andy now that people probably don't think very highly of him, especially with Gene Gluck coming out and claiming that uh, he harassed her at one point. So nobody's walking away from this better than what they started. So the least they could do at this point is try to walk away where neither side has to admit screwing the other. And regardless of what the truth was here, Andy can get back his 16K. Uh, She can be rid of the allegations of being a scammer. And they can chalk it up to a misunderstanding, which, as I said on the last show, really might have been somewhat of the case that it's reasonable that Andy was suspicious as he was, and it's also possible that she was trying to send him these wires and they really were failing and uh, it looked bad, but it actually wasn't bad. There really can be a situation where something looks bad, but it actually isn't. So that should have been the tone that they both came up with and put out there. 
And if people didn't believe it, tough luck. But all this is doing here is making everything worse. And I, I, I can't imagine a lawsuit about this really being successful because the whole center of this issue was that she owed him 16k and hadn't paid him yet. And that is true by her own admission. Now, if he made up that she owed him 16k and called her a scammer for slow paying him or not paying him, then yeah, she might have a case against him for defamation. But she owed him the money and hadn't paid it yet. That part was true. Now, maybe it wasn't through any fault of her own. Maybe it was bank issues, but the point is that she really did still owe him 16K and he was annoyed that he didn't get it back yet. And he had a right to be annoyed, even if she hadn't done anything wrong to cause it. So there shouldn't be a lawsuit over this. And sometimes, and this has happened to me, this has happened to me this year, where you will have people who aren't getting along that say nasty things about each other. And then you agree that um, you're going to go your separate ways. You're going to just let it go. And you're not going to continue to rub salt into both wounds. And often that's the most healthy solution rather than trying to seek a damaging confrontation that will hurt both sides. I'm not saying you should do this every time, but every time that you are in a situation like that, you should look and say, is it really worth it? Is it really worth pursuing? Or should I just find a way to end it, which doesn't involve completely giving in and looking like a chump? Is there a middle ground where both of us can just kind of say we're going to put an end to this and walk away? I think that's what both sides need to do here. Roland X is in chat now. I see he asked, uh, why did I not play the 10K Limit Tournament? That's because I'm not going to the first half of the World Series. I have not been there yet. I may not be there at all this year. But I have not been to the World Series yet. So therefore, I was not at the 10K event. Otherwise, I probably would have played. Okay, so uh, moving along, pretty big story about the Cosmopolitan that just came out. The Cosmopolitan is soon going to be an MGM property. That's not good. I guess if you have a high status at MGM M Life, it's good for you personally. But overall, it's not good because it reduces competition on the Las Vegas Strip. And competition is always good. Now, I understand some people like the consolidation in that one player's card club gives them status at a number of properties. Look at Caesars, for example. Caesars, if you have seven stars or diamond, that makes you seven stars or diamond, not just at Caesars Palace, but at Harris, at Paris, at Bally's, at uh, Planet Hollywood, at the Rio, at the Link, at the Flamingo. So you have status in a lot of places, not just one place. Same with these MGM M-Life properties. So you may say, well, great. Now if you have MGM status, you'll have it at the Cosmo. You don't have to earn your way there at the Cosmo, too. But the problem is you have a lack of competition, which means the games offered are worse. The odds are worse. The customer service is worse. 
they have to do less to win your business when they own more and more of the strip. And when it becomes more and more a situation where there's just two companies owning the major properties on the strip, that is not good. Another problem is if you are banned from one of these properties, then it stretches across all of the properties they own, and all of a sudden you're banned on half the strip when you've only done something to get banned at one property. You may say, well, just don't get banned. Well, that's easier said than done if you are a Casino Advantage player, or even in some cases where you're not a Casino Advantage player, but they wrongly take you for one. Keep in mind, I was banned from the Venetian for not even doing anything wrong. It was some kind of case of mistaken identity. So it can happen. And I'm just glad it happened there instead of something like Caesars or MGM where I'd be banned from a ton of properties. So what is going on with the sale? Well, on September 27th, it was announced that MGM Resort said it would acquire the operations of the Cosmopolitan, but not the land of the Cosmopolitan. So MGM was only going to be acquiring the ability to run the place, but not actually own the land and the building. Now, how much did they pay for the Cosmopolitan? $100 billion! No, but over a billion. $1.625 billion is what MGM has paid to have the operations of the Cosmopolitan. That means they will be running the hotel, they'll be running the casinos, they will be running the restaurant area, at the very least, uh, renting out restaurant space. Basically, anything that isn't the physical property ownership, MGM will now own. The actual hotel and property will be sold for uh, $5.65 billion, but not to MGM. So let's just focus on what's going to affect the customers, and that is MGM owning it. It will become an MLife property. It's not going to happen immediately, so you're not going to be able to go there tomorrow and use your MLife card. MGM is entering a 30-year lease agreement. Not three, 30. The transaction is expected to close in early 2022, which means MGM would have a 30-year agreement that lasts all the way to early 2052, which probably a lot of us won't be alive by then. It says there's also three 10-year renewal options in the partnership. I'm not sure if that's part of the 30 years or in addition to 30 years. The real estate, which is the physical land and the actual building, that will be acquired from uh, uh, the a partnership of the Chang, uh, the Chung Family Trust, Stone Peak Partners, and uh, Blackstone Real Estate Income Trust. So they're uh, acquiring it from Blackstone, which currently owns the real estate. Blackstone actually owns a lot of uh, casino real estate. And uh, you may notice they were also listed in uh, the buyers. So how, how can Blackstone buy from Blackstone? Well, this is the Blackstone Real Estate Income Trust group which is a subsidiary of Blackstone. And also it's a partnership between two other companies with this Blackstone Real Estate Trust. So a lot of this is on paper and uh, 
as I said, this part isn't that important because who who really cares from the standpoint of a visitor to the Cosmo who actually owns the hotel from the physical standpoint? It matters who's running the hotel, who's running the casino, and that will be MGM starting in uh, early 2022. MGM Resort CEO and President Bill Hornbuckle said, The Cosmopolitan brand is recognized around the world for its unique customer base and high-quality product and experiences, making it an ideal fit with our portfolio and furthering our vision to be the world's premier gambling entertainment company. We look forward to welcoming the Cosmopolitan's guests and employees to MGM Resort's family. The Cosmo is a tall hotel with a very nice view of the Las Vegas Strip and on one side... The Las Vegas, or not the Las Vegas, the Bellagio Fountains. And it is an upscale hotel. It's kind of a, a hip hotel. It, it took a lot of uh, the Palms business. And if you go to the Cosmopolitan on a typical night, you will see a lot of uh, attractive women. You will see a lot of young, attractive couples. And you also see some old dudes with young, attractive women. You'll see all of that at the Cosmo. There's a lot of expensive but good restaurants at the Cosmo. It's overall a pretty large property. It's one of the larger properties in Vegas, one of the larger hotels in Vegas. And uh, it's pretty expensive to stay there on the weekends. They have some pretty nice suites there that are not huge, but there's a lot of them. And they have actual balconies you can go walk out on, which is not that common in Vegas. Usually they don't let you do that because of suicide fears, but because the Cosmo was originally built to be a condo complex, which you may not know. That's why they have those balconies, decided to just go with it and let people uh, go out there. To my knowledge, nobody's jumped off one. But uh, we do have a suicide we're going to discuss later in the show at a different property. Why would MGM acquire it? Because MGM knows the Cosmo is still doing brisk business. It's by no means a has-been. Even though it was built, even though it opened in 2010... It is still one of the newest ground-up properties in Vegas, only behind Resorts World. It's the second newest property in Vegas, despite being 11 years old. In Vegas, meaning the Vegas Strip. So, it does have to get uh, regulatory approvals, but that is expected to go through. So it is highly likely that by sometime in the first quarter of 2022, Cosmo is going to be a, an MGM Life property. It's still going to be called Cosmopolitan. It's not going to be the MGM Cosmopolitan or some other name. But the Identity Rewards Program that they're using at Cosmo, which is their own independent program, will be scrapped and It'll become M-Life, and existing identity customers, I'm sure, will be rolled into M-Life in some way. So you're not going to lose your status, but it will be an MGM M-Life property. And if you have an MGM M-Life status at another property, then that will carry over to the Cosmo as it does with other MGM M-Life properties. But in general, for the consumer, this type of consolidation is not good, and more competition tends to be better. If you are from another market than Vegas and you have an MGM M-Life status in your home market, that you may like because you may be able to get cheaper rates at the Cosmo. You may be able to get uh, nice upgrades and comps at the Cosmo that you could not do before. It's just not a worthy trade-off for most people, especially for advantage players. 
who might find themselves banned at another property. What do I think about the sale price? I don't know. I don't know what it's really worth, the operations at the Cosmo. That's kind of a hard thing for me to figure out the actual value. So I don't know if MGM overpaid or underpaid. The sale does show that the perceived value of the entire Cosmopolitan between the operations and the physical real estate is a little bit over $7 billion, right? Like $7.3 billion. So that's interesting. It's a lot of money for one hotel. There are two towers, both very tall. They have a big casino. As I mentioned, they have uh, a big restaurant scene. And they, they have nightclubs. The Cosmo really became the place that uh, young people wanted to go in Vegas. And in the 2000s, that was the Palms, as I mentioned before. The Cosmo has had a lot of controversy in the past regarding its conversion from condos to hotels uh, before the 08 real estate crash. It was supposed to be a condo complex that was center strip. And then uh, when there was that huge real estate crash, they realized that was not going to be a good use of the property and it was converted to hotel rooms. But anyone who had put down deposits could still have a condo there. They just would have a condo at a place that most people are a hotel guest, which is not what people wanted when they signed up for it. And they were not let out of their deposits. So there was a big dispute about that, that the people who put down deposits were saying, you guys changed the terms on us. This is supposed to be a condo complex, not a hotel, and you need to let us out of our deposit. And the Cosmo did not want to do that because they wanted these people on the hook because these people wanted out of their deposit anyway because the real estate market had crashed and the amount they had agreed to pay was far more worth far more than these condos were worth even had it not gone to a hotel. So these people were left in the position, even without that hotel conversion, to either uh, buy it at the price they had agreed upon, which now was way overpriced, or forfeit their large deposit. And now they had the additional pressure in that it was also a hotel now, which they probably wouldn't want to live at. See, most people do not want to live at a hotel because... The guests are constantly turning over. People are noisy. People are rowdy. It's just not a good place to live. A hotel is a good place to visit. It's just not a good place to live. And the people who bought condos there didn't think they were buying in the hotel. I was very much on their side, but ultimately most of them backed down and took a a crappy settlement in the matter. And uh, a few people held out. And uh, I I don't know what ultimately happened to them there. I didn't bother to go look. This dragged out for many years. Anyway, that doesn't really have to do with this sale. MGM just got another property in Vegas, and we're going to see it change hands within maybe six months, maybe less. And people have wondered, is Cosmo going to change much aside from MGM MLife being their new rewards program? And possibly. I don't think overnight it's going to become a totally different place, but it will be under new management, and there may be things that they add or subtract from Cosmo, and it's possible that some things you liked about Cosmo before will be gone, and it's also possible that things improve in some way, or maybe in some people's opinion. So we'll have to see what happens, but I'm not very excited about this. I don't like to see it. Let me uh, move on here to the next topic. Speaking of 
Vegas Strip properties that are going through some changes, Bally's Las Vegas is probably going to make a change, but it's not going to be a sale. It's going to make a change, and that's going to likely be a name change, even though it remains a Caesars property. The Bally's brand is kind of weird. It's no longer a brand that is associated with one company. In fact, even with the casino portion of Bally's, it's not the same company with every casino. Most of the Bally's casinos now are part of the Bally Corporation, but not all. For example, Bally's Las Vegas is a Caesars property and has nothing to do with the Bally Corporation. However, the Bally Corporation does have uh, other properties that are part of the Bally's the, the Bally Corporation. There is uh, Bally's Arpaho Park, Bally's Atlantic City, Bally's Blackhawk, Bally's Kansas City, Bally's Lake Tahoe, Bally's Quad Cities, Bally's Vicksburg. Uh, and then uh, I guess that's it. There's some others that the Bally company owns, but are not called Bally's. But Bally's Las Vegas is owned and operated by uh, Caesars Entertainment and not Bally's Corporation. Then confusing this matter even more is the Bally Sports Network, which is, again, using that same Bally brand with that exact same logo. But Bally Sports, you've probably uh, seen baseball games, especially ones in other markets that uh, you've watched on the MLB network or whatever, that you see that familiar Bally B logo or just the whole Bally logo. And you say, hey, Bally's, this is owned by Bally's? And you think, is this owned by Caesars? And not really. So this is actually... uh, something different. This is called uh, Diamond Sports Group that owns uh, Bally Sports. And that's not the same as the Bally's that owns these casinos. So that's another use of Bally's. What happened is they entered an agreement with the Bally Corporation for the naming rights. So when you watch a Bally Sports Channel, which is a regional local sports channel. It's got that same Bally brand, and you're thinking it's the same company, but it's not. So to review, we have Bally Sports, which is a separate company using a licensing agreement for the Bally's name. We have all these Bally's hotels that are owned by the Bally Corporation, which is different than Bally Sports, and they actually own the Bally brand. And then you have Bally's in Las Vegas, which is owned by Caesars and has nothing to do with the Bally Corporation. But they all use that same Bally's logo and name. So this is very confusing, first of all. And Caesars is tired of this to some degree, that people will go to Bally casinos around the country and think they have Caesar status and don't, or vice versa, the people going to these uh, Bally's hotels everywhere else and then they come to Vegas and they try to go into Bally's Vegas and get their status there and they said nope 
we're different valleys, and they're like, what, what the heck? It's the same logo. It's the same name. How is it different? No, it's just different. So it's already confusing. Now, in Caesar's defense, they had the original Bally's Casino. In fact, when Bally's Casino started, there was nothing else other than Bally's Atlantic City and Bally's in Las Vegas. And uh, the Atlantic City one was a Caesars property at that point. So really, you could only gamble in Atlantic City and Las Vegas, at least casino gambling. And that was before gambling rapidly expanded through Indian gaming. So the Bally's in Vegas just doesn't really fit in anymore with what Bally's presently is, even though it's the same name and logo. It's, it's, it's very weird and confusing. So for a while, Caesars has been discussing changing the name for that reason alone. Also, the Bally's name doesn't really mean that much anymore, except for uh, either people remembering the hotel going a number of years back by that name, and also just people who knew the brand from back at that time. But nowadays, it's just more confusing than anything else. Bally's was originally called MGM Grand. And yes, that was the hotel where there was one of the worst high-rise fires in U.S. history, where 85 people died in November 1980. In 1986, six years after the fire, and it had already been uh, rebuilt by then, and it was called MGM Grand, Bally Manufacturing, which is different than the Bally Corporation, Bally Manufacturing purchased the resort from MGM and renamed it Bally's. And then Paris was a sister property that was opened next to Bally's three years later and was, uh, or uh, 13 years later, sorry, 13 years later in 1999 and was actually connected to it. And eventually this was uh, purchased by Caesars, both properties. So to this day, it's still called Bally's, but it has nothing to do with Bally Manufacturing or with the uh, Bally Corporation. Bally Manufacturing, which was later renamed Bally Entertainment, made pinball, slot machines, and video games in the uh, past, especially in the uh, 70s and 80s. They were sometimes uh, associated with uh, another company called Midway. And that's how I knew Bally's as a video game player. But uh, when I when I saw it was MGM converted to Bally's, I thought, oh, they're going to have a really cool arcade there. But no, they really didn't. <laughs> Just a typical casino arcade. Anyway, th- this is one of these things where the name is not what it used to be. It's not what people thought of back then. And it's conflicting. And when people hear Bally's, they kind of just think of, okay, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's the place that's connected to Paris. It's kind of an older hotel. That's all people really think. And anything more they think tends to be the wrong idea or some kind of confusing uh, concept. So there is something sorely missing from the Las Vegas market as far as a branded hotel. And it is a brand that Caesars owns and doesn't have to purchase from anyone because they already own it. That would be the horseshoe. 
Now, there are other horseshoes that are around the country that are Caesar's properties, but there's not one in Vegas. You may say, well, no, 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 there is. What about Binion's Horseshoe? No, no, no. Binion's Horseshoe is just Binion's now. It is not Binion's Horseshoe. Binion's Horseshoe ceased being Binion's Horseshoe when Caesar's sold the property. Caesar's made a very, very smart purchase of Binion's when it was struggling under uh, Becky Binion, who ran into the ground, basically. And Binion's owned the World Series of Poker at that point. And in 2004, Harrah's, which uh, became Caesar's, they bought the Binion's Hotel, Binion's Horseshoe, in Las Vegas. And with it, they got the World Series for free because that was something that was owned by Binion's Horseshoe. They did not buy it to get Binion's Horseshoe. They didn't want to go into the downtown hotel business. They wanted the World Series. So what they did is they bought Binion's Horseshoe, they took the World Series, and then they sold Binion's Horseshoe for a price very close to what they paid in the first place, minus the World Series. So they almost got the World Series for free, which is a steal. (laughs) Anyway, the new buyer decided to keep it as Binion's, but they could not call it Binion's Horseshoe anymore because the Horseshoe brand was also now owned by Caesars because they bought Binion's Horseshoe. They also kept that brand and did not sell that back. So all they sold was the hotel and the casino. They did not sell the Horseshoe brand and they did not sell the World Series. They kept those. So now there are other horseshoes in the Caesars portfolio. This is even before that merger with El Dorado. But there has not been a horseshoe in Vegas ever since Binion's ceased being Binion's horseshoe. And some people have said, why don't you bring the horseshoe back to Vegas and make it the home of the World Series? Not physically, but brand-wise. That's where the World Series began, was the horseshoe. So wouldn't it be cool if the World Series returned to the horseshoe? Not Binion's, but returned to a property called Horseshoe, which Caesars can do because they own that brand. So the rumor is that before the World Series 2022, whenever that's going to be, they haven't announced the date yet because we're still in the 21 World Series, but that sometime before the World Series 2022, they are going to do away with the Bally's brand and change it to the Horseshoe. And the World Series of Poker will take place at the Horseshoe. Because remember, it's moving to Bally's. That's going to be taking place at the Horseshoe, formerly Bally's, for the foreseeable future. And kind of like a nod to history. It began at the Horseshoe, and in the 2020s, over 50 years later, it's back at the Horseshoe, even though it's a different Horseshoe. That is the plan. That has not been verified. This has been reported by Vital Vegas. Caesars has not made any statements about this. But I don't think it's coming from nowhere. At the very least, they are strongly considering doing so. So it's very possible that the World Series next year will be back at the horseshoe. Just different than you would think when you hear that statement. A man has been uh, convicted of stealing casino chips and he has been doing this dating all the way back to the 1990s 
This guy is not exactly a youngster, as you might guess. But, uh, I mean, you could be stealing casino chips in the 1990s and be around my age. In fact, I was old enough to legally gamble at a casino dating back to 1993. But this guy is substantially older than me. The guy convicted of doing this is 66 years old, and he has a long history of stealing these uh, stealing chips from casinos. And even worse, he is stealing them from players. He's stealing them off tables. He's not actually stealing it from the casino itself. So this guy's name is William Ferguson, 66 years old, and he was convicted by a jury in April for stealing $20,000 worth of chips. He stole them from different roulette tables at uh, five different uh, properties in Nevada in 2019. took place at uh, New York, New York, Golden Nugget, The Palms, Binions, and Wynn. I guess it wasn't just Nevada, it was Las Vegas. And surveillance cameras caught him doing so, and it seems pretty clear that he was the thief. In addition... Since the 1990s, he has allegedly stole or tried to steal more than $150,000 worth of chips, according to the Las Vegas Review-Journal. And he also was being a jerk in court as he was interrupting District Judge Monica Trujillo multiple times when she tried to speak to him and used profanities and challenged evidence. He also said, you're an, you are very evil, evil, cold-hearted dogs. They fixed a way to get a guilty verdict on me. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it's not because he stole these chips. The judge said, this is a hard one because the habitual criminal statute proposes to deter repetitive behavior. And I'm not sure how much more repetitive you can get with steadily increasing your wealth from people and businesses of Clark County. Uh, They're going to tell him pretty soon how much he's going to have to pay in restitution but I don't think he's ever going to be able to pay so it doesn't really matter but he's been in prison multiple times and has been found guilty on nine different counts in the past for very similar charges dating back 26 years Deputy District Attorney Brianna Lamana was the prosecutor And she actually wanted him to get a life sentence, which is pretty interesting for a crime that is financial. She said, when somebody spends 26 years of their life living a life of crime, I do think that's appropriate. When you victimize tourists in our town, where tourists are our lifeblood. However, his uh, own defense attorney said that he often did not cash in these chips, that he would just steal them and let them sit. It said that uh, his attorney said that the amount he stole wasn't even a threat to the, quote, economic engine of Nevada, basically saying he was too small time to really have much of an effect on tourists, that he was just kind of like a a lower end thief. I agree a life sentence is too much here, but really any substantial sentence could be a life sentence since he is 66 years old. And he definitely deserves a long sentence if he just keeps doing this over and over. Like if just some if someone just doesn't learn, they just keep stealing every time you let him out of prison. It, it, you got to put him in for longer and longer if they're just not getting it. They're just going to keep going out and doing it again. So that those were the uh, 
statements back and forth from his attorney and the district attorney. He is expected to spend about uh, eight years in prison and not get a life sentence. I'm not sure what the actual formal sentence is, but I know they're expecting he's going to spend at least eight years in prison. Who knows if he'll even be alive at the end of those eight years when he's 74. Maybe a moot point. But yeah, this guy wasn't just swiping him from the casino. He was taking them from people's stacks. And I, I guess he had a talent for just distracting them and grabbing chips off their stacks. And got away with it for a while at five different places and has done it a bunch of times before. Mm. Pretty bad. What's also pretty bad in another uh, Vegas story here is that uh, there was a suicide that occurred off the stratosphere. The stratosphere is now called the Strat. I think it's a dumb name. I don't even know why they changed it. But the Strat was the site of a suicide at the end of September. A 30-year-old man jumped from the top of the very tall stratosphere. And he landed near an entranceway close to the sidewalk of Las Vegas Boulevard. And uh, it was about 9 p.m. at night on uh, Tuesday the 28th of September. And uh, Las Vegas Boulevard was closed in both directions while police were looking into it that night. The Strat said, First and foremost, we want to offer our sincerest condolences to the family of the deceased. We have measures in place for the safety and guests of our team members at the Skypod, whether they're riding our thrill rides or visiting the observation deck. This was not a safety lapse on any of our thrill rides, including Sky Jump, nor is it possible to accidentally fall from any area that is accessible to the public. So it's funny, uh, their concern was not that some dude killed himself, it was that they don't want you to think that their rides at the top were unsafe. <laughs> yeah, that's very warm of them. Has this happened before? Yes. In 2000, a 24-year-old man from Utah named uh, Mitchell Mayfield jumped off of the observation tech at the stratosphere and landed in some shrubs in valet parking. He climbed over several railings, barriers, and fences. He was also able to get through those barriers quickly enough before a security guard could stop him, even though the security guard saw it happen. Also, in 2002, a 16-year-old boy who was from Las Vegas jumped to his death from that same tower. There's a boy named uh, Levi Walton Presley jumped from that observation deck. And he landed on a hotel driveway near Las Vegas Boulevard. They had other attempts or near attempts of suicide from that observation deck, but in those other cases the security guards were able to talk these people out of doing it, and they uh, came back away from the edge, at which point they were probably grabbed and brought to a mental ward. It'd be really strange, like, you're about to walk into the Strat, and there's the there's this body comes slamming down. I mean, that would be pretty traumatic. And this apparently landed pretty close to the sidewalk. Someone actually did record this taking place, and uh, if you were discretion, or shall I say, uh, listener discretion is advised. Mm. 
Hmm. I guess if you want to be sure you're going to die, that is a good thing to jump off of. It's so high you're not going to survive that under any circumstances. I think that's why people choose it. They just go to the highest place they can jump off of in Vegas, and that's it. Now, truthfully, if you jump from something very high, you're very likely to die anyway, but that one makes it even that much more certain. Most people don't choose to die that way. They don't choose to uh, jump off of tall buildings. Most of the time, a planned suicide is done with something like pills or cutting the wrist or shooting yourself in the head with a gun, something like that. Uh, This is not a common way to commit suicide, but some people do it. What is interesting is that of those who have survived these jumps, not just at the stratosphere where nobody survived, but like I'm talking about any place where people jump, on the way down, they are asked what they were thinking. And a lot of them said they changed their mind on the way down, but realized there wasn't anything they could do. So I have to imagine some of these people on the way down just go, oh no, I can't believe I did that. In a few seconds, I'm going to be dead. So that's pretty sad. And apparently this wasn't covered on the news very aggressively, but eventually the story came out and this was covered somewhat. But they like to cover this up. They don't like to discuss this in Vegas about suicides. It really uh, ruins the fun atmosphere they uh, try to project. 775-4855-775-372-8355 is the number. 18 players were arrested. 18 NBA players were arrested for what was a uh, very dumb scheme to defraud their health care program that was provided by the league for reimbursement for medical and dental expenses they never actually incurred. You read about some of these things and you, you just wonder how people could have been so stupid to get involved in such a thing. But this was a $4 million healthcare fraud scheme. And it involved uh, 18 former NBA players, no current players. U.S. Attorney Audrey Strauss said the defendant's playbook involved fraud and deception. And according to the indictment that was in Manhattan Federal Court, they submitted fraudulent claims to get reimbursed for medical and dental procedures they just never had done. These were plans that were administered by the NBA, or at least they were funded by the NBA. I don't know who's actually administering them. But NBA teams, in attempt to keep players healthy after they're done playing, they give them these health plans. And some geniuses came up with the idea, hey, this is a way we can make extra money. We'll just uh, pretend we went to the doctor, incurred all these expenses, and we need reimbursement. In one of these instances, one of the former players was supposedly getting $48,000 of root canals and crowns on eight teeth at a Beverly Hills dental office in December 2018. In reality, on those dates, this player was playing basketball in Taiwan. (laughs) It's just stupid. At least 
be around when this is supposed to happen. Don't, when it's verifiable you were in Taiwan playing basketball, you, you can't submit reimbursement for dental work in Beverly Hills. I mean, these are boneheaded schemes. This all took place in a three-year period from 2017 to 2020. And there were about uh, $3.9 million worth of false claims. And about $2.5 million of those claims were actually paid out. I'm not sure what happened to the $1.4 million. Maybe they were uh, too high for what's supposed to be reimbursed. But whatever it is, they paid out $2.5 million. Each defendant made false claims or reimbursements that ranged from 65000 to 420000 So the, the minimum of alleged fraud committed by each of these 18 defendants was sixty five k, but uh, some of them were in the six figures as well, up to over 400000 Pretty dumb scheme here, to be honest, <laughs> especially if you're a somewhat high-profile player. And I'll give you the list of players uh, who were arrested in this scheme. Terrence Williams, Alan Anderson, Anthony Allen, Shannon Brown, William Bynum, uh, Ronald Glenn Davis, also known as Glenn Davis, Christopher Douglas Roberts, Roberts, Melvin Ely, Jamario Moon, Darius Miles, Milton Palacio, Ruben Patterson, Eddie Robinson, Gregory Smith, Sebastian Telfair, Charles Watson Jr., Antoine Wright, and Anthony Roten. Also, Anthony Allen's wife, Desiree Allen, was also arrested because I guess she participated as well. They all faced counts of conspiracy to commit health care and wire fraud, and 16 out of the 18 players were taken into custody when this was announced with the other two probably to happen fairly soon and probably already happened by now. The one who is probably among the worst was Terrence Williams. He was uh, apparently the ringleader of the whole thing. He was uh, supplying false invoices and uh, also was getting kickback payments from uh, these players when he would uh, direct them to do this, and then they gave him some uh, kickback payments. However, when one of the players did not want to pay William his, Williams his kickbacks, he then uh, called up the co-defendant and uh, tried to change his voice and pretended to be a plan administrator from the health insurance company and that they knew what was going on. And this was to uh, scare him into... Uh, into uh, paying Williams, who would then uh, supposedly uh, fix this whole thing. So, so basically, the he'd call me. Oh yes, yes. I, I'm the uh, plan administrator, and uh, we're seeing a problem with this claim. Uh, can you explain uh, what you put on this form? <laughs> so apparently, this player was not fooled by it. And, uh, he did not pay this player, and I don't know if he reported, but whatever it is, the, the feds are aware of it, and Williams is receiving additional charges due to that. How did they get caught, you may wonder? Well, it was because of those root canals I was talking about earlier that uh, I'm not sure what made them suspicious, maybe because he was uh, submitting for so much. 
Gregory Smith was the one who put in for all these root canals and crowns, and he submitted claims for IV sedation, root canal, and crowns that he supposedly got on December 20th, 2018 in Beverly Hills. And then they found right from the box scores that he was in Taiwan playing basketball at the same time. Also, um, these players were taking these sample forms too literally and filling out all the exact same information. So they were putting in the exact same claims for the exact same services taking place on the exact same date at the exact same offices. Uh, Davis, Allen, and Roten filed for reimbursement for root canals that were all performed on the exact same 16th on April 30th, 2016, in the same office. (laughs) And they had a number of other instances like these. In some cases, the fake invoices and other forms were not on the letterhead, had weird formatting, and had uh, grammatical errors on the forms themselves that made the forms look extremely fake. <laughs> so th- this wasn't even like a good fake of the forms. and I, not, It's not even like they took a real form and just copied it. Here, here they made their own form, and then the, the forms themselves had grammatical mistakes. <laughs> the, the, the company processing these must have been saying, what the hell's going on here? What kind of form is this? So these were former NBA players who clearly blew all their money and were desperate to find a way to make a bit more. They did something they thought was going to be easy, but things are not so easy in life when you set to scam and defraud. Many of these players were at one point projected to be stars or at least semi-stars and just simply didn't work out. For example, Telfair is the cousin of NBA star Stefan Marbury. And he was thought to be one of the best high school players at the time. He was taken as the 13th overall pick in the 2004 NBA draft. However, uh, he did not live up to expectations. That really is the case with a lot of these players who were thought there were going to be something pretty big and ended up playing a few seasons, struggling and being released after all the teams realized that they were a lost cause. I do wonder if that was also part of the motivation, that they felt they got a raw deal in the NBA somehow, and this is going to be a way that they could uh, at least get a little more money. The NBA is said to be cooperating in this investigation. Of course they are. They are trying not to talk about this very much. Some have wondered why the uh, why this is public, because uh, someone asked that. Someone said that uh, they're surprised this is being covered by the media, and that this is the type of thing the media would usually cover up. Well, the media can't cover this up because. The U.S. Attorney's Office, who's prosecuting this case, they love to posture when they make a bust like this. They love to posture about any bust. They postured a lot about the Black Friday busts in poker in 2011. Whenever they make any kind of bust that they're proud of that nets them either money or high-profile targets, they like to put out 
press releases because they want to brag about how effective their office is at uh, fighting crime. So obviously, they are proud of this one, of busting all these uh, famous or formerly famous NBA players. And at that point, there's no covering up or hiding, so the media just has to cover it and uh, not be concerned with anything else. It's one of these things they just simply can't uh, get away from at least giving some coverage to. Glenn Davis is uh, probably one of the better-known players that was arrested in this whole thing. He played for the Celtics, the Magic, and the Clippers between uh, 2007 and 2015. Pretty amazing how dumb some of these criminals are. There's tons of medical fraud out there, and most of it never gets prosecuted or even detected. But this was so egregious, they got caught pretty easily. It took a few years, but they got caught pretty easily, and they, they did not put any care into preventing being discovered. I mean, can you imagine several players saying they got the exact same root canals on the exact same teeth on the exact same date at the exact same office, and they don't think that's strange? Or putting together a form they're filling out that they're not basing on a real form? And they're making up just their own form with errors all over it, with grammatical errors. I mean, it's insane. How can you be so dumb? Most criminals are not the geniuses you see on TV that require a genius in law enforcement to take them down. That's not real life. In real life, a lot of these criminals are just stupid and reckless, which is, in some cases, why they are criminals. Okay, let's move on here. Got uh, one more topic before the coronavirus topic I'm going to do. And that is about a young poker phenom named Jean Rao, Z-H-A-U-N Rao, A-R-A-O. He's in a lot of controversy. So let me tell you what's going on with him. He did do some good things that probably were unrelated to uh, cheating. For example, uh, he won a $562,000 score at a 50K high roller event at Seminole Hard Rock. And he even beat uh, tough player Dan Smith in that event. Now, there was some controversy there involving their heads-up match, but we'll get to that shortly. But he did legitimately win the tournament. And only a few weeks later, he won uh, $1.6 million when he got third in the Super High Roller Bowl Europe event in Cyprus. And they wrote a lot of uh, very nice things about him in Card Player and kind of portrayed him as like another Fedora Holtz type because he was only uh, 20 years old. Wasn't even old enough yet to play in U.S. casinos. He could only play in casinos that uh, allowed 18-year-olds, such as ones on Indian land or ones in Europe. And it was really portrayed in this article that this guy is so young and is already doing so well that he's just a poker natural who's just only going to get better over time. But unfortunately, what this did for him is it uh, shined a spotlight on him and people started to think about him more and talk about him more with consequences he probably did not expect. And now he's in a bunch of controversy. 
first of all, what came back up was something that uh, Dan Smith had written in August, on August 6, 2021. This is what Dan Smith wrote. Heads up versus a 20-year-old in the 50K event. I have 1.6 million out of 3.6 million chips. He asked to chop. I say I'd only do an even chop, which means basically that Dan Smith was not going to give the kid more money just because he was 2 million versus 1.6 million in chips that he said, if we split it evenly, we'll do it. He says, yes, we divvy up the chips and flip for the trophy. Flip meaning they just deal out of hand and whoever, they both go all in blindly and whoever wins the hand gets the trophy. So uh, that's what he meant by flipping for the trophy. He wins, meaning he won the trophy and technically won the tournament. He realized even chop means split the money and asks for more. So we, we are playing it out. So that was considered kind of a dirty move the guy was pulling. Because uh, amazingly, the kid was claiming that he just misunderstood. So I think they backed out that last hand where they just went all in blind and uh, the kid won the trophy. That they backed it out and instead they just went back to playing the tournament normally and that they made no deal. So they basically backed out the whole deal. Now the problem here is that Dan Smith is pointing out that this is only after he won and then was only getting even money. So there is some suspicion that maybe what uh, Zhang Rao was doing was entering this deal and then if he won pretended not to understand and would demand more chips and hope that Dan Smith would fall for it. And if he lost, then he'd be happy to take half the chips. So Dan was not fooled by this and at the time just said, look, uh, you may have misunderstood, but we definitely agreed to this, but okay, the, the most I'll do from you is we'll, we'll just back out the whole thing and, and play the event as normal. So there's already some suspicion that the guy was a scumbag angle shooter, but maybe it was a misunderstanding. Well, then a user on 2 Plus 2 recently named Ryan W. Collins wrote, am I wrong or isn't he a guy who actually sold real-time assistance to people and was banned for using real-time assistance on one site? Then a user named Rom93 responded uh, that Rom used RTA uh, using a program called Vision, RTA meaning real-time assistance, which helps you play and basically tells you what to do uh, on high-stakes ACR using the name Weeb, among others as well, instructed and backed a large group of young players to use Vision when playing on all U.S. networks. Now, Vision, what they're talking about, is a PLO solver, and it can be used as an assistant while you're playing, and it's basically telling you uh, what moves to make based upon what's going on in the hand. It's almost like a bot that you're operating uh, the mouse for, but it's making most of the decisions for you. So then a number of people started discussing this and uh, there was a person named the Spork who was on 2 Plus 2 who said that he was once part of uh, Raw's stable. I'm not sure if it's uh, Rao or Ruan. I've seen two different uh, ways his uh, name is being spelled here. 
I guess it's Ruan, R-U-A-N. So his name is Zhang Ruan. I don't know why I thought it was Rao. This uh, stable he was running then came under a lot of suspicion because the spork said that Ron staked a group of players that he was coaching and then told them that they needed to use two solvers while playing, one being this Vision PLO solver, another one called Munker solver, and that uh, the stable played on Global Poker and Poker Bros. So not only were they playing on his behalf with his money running these solvers, but also they were getting him agent fees because he was an agent for these sites, so he was kind of double-dipping, too. They were not only giving him his share, uh, but he was also uh, getting the agent fees for being their agent on these private sites. And the Spork wrote, He got all of us to play on Poker Bros, where we aggressively pushed to play using Munker and Visions, those are the two uh, solvers, in real time uh, on an emulator to access the app. Anytime we had questions on hands, they were mostly met with check visions or run a sim, indicating he was either too lazy to teach, incapable of teaching, or some combination of the two. And then some conversations that people had with him were screenshotted and posted on the 2 plus 2 thread. These were dated in uh, 2019 and 2020. They showed him trying to push these people to use these solvers such as this Munker solver or Vision and points 4 and 5 said uh, follow Munker solver always and 5 use Visions in this uh, 6 point plan on how to win at poker the Spork also said that uh, Ron has been using real time assistance playing online for most of his poker career and that uh, he really doesn't have all that much skill. He's just basically running these solvers and winning that way. Furthermore, there was some suspicion that when he was uh, playing these events that he won, he was basically playing with money won through the cheating on the solvers and just got lucky in these live events, but actually isn't that good. So a lot of allegations about him. And a lot of people piping up here on 2 Plus 2 about this guy. And I don't think he's going to end up a lot of, with a lot of respect in poker, no matter what he does, if this is the belief as to how he is succeeding. I haven't investigated any of this personally, so I can't really tell you what's true or not true, but I don't know. It doesn't look good for him, and he's only 20 years old. And 20-year-olds don't always make the best decisions. Even... Justin Bonomo, multi-accounted in the same tournament with several accounts. He doesn't do that anymore, but even he was doing that when he was young. Not using that as an excuse, just saying that his age does make it more likely that he's engaging in unethical behavior. Okay, so finally, I'm going to do a COVID segment. And I'm going to talk about something that matters a lot to me because I'm a father. And number one, I care about my son. I care about him a whole lot. And number two, I care about my own health. And I care about my son's mom's health. So not only don't I want my son to be damaged by COVID, I don't want 
me or Benjamin's mom to be damaged by COVID either, especially because we are most likely to suffer damage from it uh, compared to him by a wide margin. So he's in regular school, and when he's at school, he has to wear a mask from the moment he gets there all the way up until he goes home. And I've been against these mask mandates because I don't feel that they are very effective. And I also feel that they are harmful to kids' social development. When kids can't see each other's faces well, can't see each other's uh, expressions, these are problems to where the kids do not develop the proper social skills and the proper ability to read people's faces and to understand expressions of approval and disapproval or make closer human connections by being face-to-face. Hiding behind a mask, even if it's to hide from a pandemic, can be harmful. And uh, for adults who are already developed in this way, it doesn't matter as much. But for kids, it can be very tough and can lead to social anxiety to depression, to suicidal feelings. I'm not saying if you wear a mask in school, you're going to want to kill yourself. But what I am saying is that it is believed that these masks that kids are forced to wear all day at school are doing harm to their social development. So if you're going to make them wear masks, then there has to be a damn good reason for it. Now, let's get to the reason why anyone, not just kids, wears a cloth mask. It is not to keep you safe from COVID. It is to keep others safe from you. It is to supposedly slow transmission of COVID, not prevent you from breathing in COVID. It has been acknowledged generally that these cloth masks are just not good enough at keeping out the tiny aerosol particles that will infect you with COVID, but they are better at preventing people from transmitting COVID as far as they otherwise would, especially if they cough, sneeze, or talk loudly. Now, again, I don't know if these are very useful at all, and I've explained on other shows, but we're not going to have that debate right here. What I want you to think about has to do a little bit with the cold that I caught from Benjamin two weeks ago. Despite all these safety measures in school regarding COVID, the distancing, the cleaning, the masking, somehow a cold still made it through the classroom. And it wasn't just his classroom. People have reported all over the country that colds are going around. Even Calwatt talked about catching a cold through one of his children. So cold spread around school very easily. And it's actually a lot easier to catch a cold than COVID, even though COVID's more contagious. And that sounds weird. Something more contagious should be something easier to catch, but not necessarily. Because colds, you can catch in a lot of different ways to where it becomes very difficult to avoid. Colds, you can catch by touching a surface that an infected person has touched. Colds, you can catch by eating or drinking food that has been infected by somebody. So if uh, you get takeout food and it was coughed on or sneezed on, then you can catch a cold by eating it. Or 
You can catch a cold by touching a doorknob that someone with a cold uh, had. Or you could catch a cold simply by someone breathing on you or coughing on you or sneezing on you. So a lot of different ways to get a cold, even though it is not actually as contagious as COVID. Now with COVID, you're not going to get it off surfaces. You're probably not going to get this from food that was contaminated with COVID. It looks like the way you're getting COVID is catching it as it's in the air. The tiny particles are in the air, and if you inhale enough of them that can get you sick, then uh, then you get COVID. So the point here is that uh, colds are very difficult to prevent, and therefore, even with these measures, kids end up getting them, and then they spread around the classroom. And indeed, that's what it did. It just spread to a lot of kids in Ben's class which you would expect, and that's what colds have done in previous years. I remember when I was in sixth grade, a flu went around, and more than half the class was out that week with that same flu. So flus and colds rip through classrooms and schools very quickly and infect a lot of kids, and then in turn the kids come home and infect their parents. Now we've known this for many decades, but COVID is something we're still learning about. And COVID behaves differently than the cold and flu when it comes to transmission. It has been theorized by many dating back to last year, but also presently, that kids just don't transmit COVID very much at all. In fact, there are some who believe that kids don't transmit COVID or very, very rarely do. Well, if this is the case, then why are the kids masking if they're not transmitting it? And if the point of the mask is not to prevent getting COVID, but to prevent transmitting COVID, but if the kids aren't transmitting COVID, then why are they wearing these harmful masks? It doesn't make any sense. Now, you may say to me, what do you mean kids don't transmit COVID? Who are you to say that? How do you know that? Let's see the data that kids are not transmitting COVID, you may say to me. And I will say back to you, here's my challenge back to you. Show me even one school in the U.S. where young children, and I'm not talking about 17-year-old teenagers, where young children, ones who are under 13, are transmitting COVID at a high rate to where it rips through a classroom or two. We don't see it. We are seeing kids catching COVID, In fact, a recent study showed that kids are just as likely to catch COVID from an infected person as an adult is. And you know what? That's not surprising. However, it is believed increasingly that kids don't transmit COVID. And what backs that up is that schools are simply not getting major outbreaks. Remember, Delta which is pretty much all the cases in the U.S. now, except for a tiny percentage. Almost all of them are Delta. Delta is very contagious. That's the reason other COVID strains can't take hold. So Delta is so contagious, so much more contagious than the original COVID, which was also very contagious. But Delta is like 10 times as contagious as the original. So if it's that contagious, how come when a kid shows up to school with COVID who doesn't know it yet, 
how come that kid is not infecting every kid in the class, or at least a quarter of the class, or a third of the class? Why are we not seeing that? Why are we seeing one COVID case here, one COVID case there, when there's COVID cases found among students at school? You don't see a massive number of pediatric COVID cases springing up in a classroom. Why? Because these kids aren't transmitting. They're transmitting colds. They're transmitting flus. And sure enough, when they're transmitting the cold or the flu, indeed, a lot of the class gets it. But how come COVID that doesn't happen if Delta is so contagious? Now, am I doubting that Delta is contagious? No, I know it's contagious. So given that it is contagious, and yet somehow it's not transmitting, and given that kids have already been proven to be just as susceptible to catching COVID, even though their outcomes with COVID are much better than adults, they're just as susceptible to catching it in the first place as adults are, then we should be seeing a ton of kids getting this very, very contagious Delta COVID, but we're not seeing it. We're seeing the opposite. We're seeing very few cases of kids that came from school. When kids are getting COVID, they seem to be getting it outside of school where they are exposed to adults who are transmitting it. So this is very, very important and this needs to be aggressively studied because if it is true, which I think it is, that kids are barely transmitting COVID, then they should not be wearing a mask because there's no danger from them. They're not going to get the teacher sick. They're not going to get each other sick. They're just not transmitting it. So we've got to stop treating COVID like it is the flu or like it's a cold. Oh yeah, that's a respiratory virus like the cold and the flu are, but it's different. It's behaving differently. And while the, a cold and flu, while they transmit in a similar fashion to one another, COVID is a different animal. It transmits differently. In fact, it transmits in a lot fewer ways. It's just much more contagious when it is transmitting in that way. But we have to stop acting like COVID is a cold and that the danger of transmission from children of COVID is like a cold. It is not. And that's why we are seeing big time cold outbreaks in schools as we do in other years, but we're not seeing big time COVID outbreaks. And so when people ask me, Show me the proof. I say, no, you show me a school that is getting a major COVID outbreak and explain why it's not happening. Explain it. And you won't be able to. Now, I have heard one BS explanation, and that is, well, the kids are they're all forced to wear masks. So this is proof that the masks work. No, that's not it. Number one, a lot of kids don't wear the mask correctly. Number two, we have never seen any evidence that mask mandates work. Number three, even the biggest proponents of masks, except for the most ignorant people, will acknowledge that masks are not going to prevent a major COVID spread, but just are somewhat helpful to prevent COVID spread. But that's not the only answer. But we're basically seeing almost no in-school COVID spread. And this is exactly what was seen in Israel and exactly what was seen in other countries that attempted to study it 
last year when they did not shut down schools. So kids were getting it, but they weren't getting it from schools. So then why are we masking them in school? Because it feels good? Because it feels responsible? Because it feels safe? Well, it's not. It's causing harm. And there are much higher levels of depression and anxiety and suicidal feelings and actual suicides of kids and teenagers since COVID showed up. There's a lot more of that than there was before because of the lockdowns, because of the mask mandates, because of the lesser social interaction. And if we have been doing this when all this time kids are not transmitting it to one another, And we're not putting out the effort to figure this out because it's going to destroy some political narrative, then that is harmful to our children and we should not be doing that. We should not mask our children so we feel good as adults. We should not mask our children for show. We should not mask our children to make it look like we are responsible. We should mask our children only if there is an absolute need to do so that outweighs the downsides of doing so. And the media doesn't want to ask these questions because the media does not want to give the right even a shred of a coherent argument as to why mask mandates in schools should not be taking place. So they just don't want to ask this question. They do not want to ask, wait a minute, are the kids transmitting it? We saw a few articles about this, a few odd articles about this in the media last year, and then they vanished. But think about it. If you have kids... Think of your kid's school. Are there any major COVID outbreaks? I'm not talking about where you get an email that one or two kids have COVID. I'm talking about where it rips through half the classroom. How come this hasn't happened at any school, to my knowledge, in the entire country? Go look it up. Why isn't this happening with Delta being so contagious? Especially in places where Delta is a big problem right now in the country. There's, there's certain states that are worse than others. How come even in those states, you're not seeing COVID transmission at school? How come? Hmm. This is where you use your head. This is where you forget what your political party is. You forget what CNN tells you to think or Fox News tells you to think, but you use your head and you go, you know what? If we're not seeing COVID outbreaks in schools, but somehow, despite all the masking and cleaning and social distancing, somehow we're seeing cold outbreaks and we're seeing flu outbreaks. Hmm. Why aren't we seeing COVID outbreaks then? Hmm. Might it be because kids aren't transmitting it? My, my, my. Now, I'm not 100% sure on this, but it's looking more likely. Now, on one hand, it makes me feel good that I don't think Ben will transmit it to me or his mom, even if he gets COVID. It also makes me feel good that him being in a regular school, he's not that likely to catch COVID because he's mostly around kids. Yeah, there's some adults like the teacher, but for the most part, Ben is with other kids who are probably not going to be transmitting it to him. So those things are good. The bad thing is not wanting to acknowledge that. The bad thing is trying to hide that or trying to just simply not discuss it because it will ruin the mask mandate talk that, uh, well, talk and action that has happened over the last several months. People do not like being told that their previous safety measures were useless. 
People like feeling that they're doing something to help. They're doing something that's effective. It's unfortunately human nature. What that does is it causes people to have a false sense of security. You got to think about the way the schools have been, even in places where Delta is rampant. You would expect it would be a disaster, and it's not. So I encourage everybody, when it comes to COVID, don't listen to Dr. Fauci, don't listen to the CDC. I mean, you can, you can listen to what they're saying, but don't just blindly listen to them. And don't listen to Fox News, and don't listen to uh, some right-wing YouTuber. Don't do that either, because you're going to be given the wrong advice. Look at the truth and make your own decision. And if you're not seeing COVID transmission in school, there probably isn't any. It's a big country, big population. So we have a large sample space. And if for some reason, it's just never having an outbreak in a school. And by the way, I, I had some person who was debating with me about this going, whoa, 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 look at this school in Arizona. It closed down because of a COVID outbreak. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. This closed down because of a COVID outbreak among the staff. And this other one closed down because a number of kids got COVID from other sources outside of the school, such as from adults. Like there's a big outbreak in the community that adults have COVID and give it to their kids. And then a bunch of kids have it and they decide they're going to shut down the school. That's not the same as transmitting it in school. That means the kids in the school happen to have gotten it from adults like their parents. Very different. So before you give your opinion on mask mandates, and before you slap a mask on your two-year-old, maybe you should understand what masks are actually doing, what they're not doing, and how much kids are transmitting. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. Sorry for the uh, two-plus week delay before this uh, show was done, but what can I do? I got a cold. That's how it goes. Will I be at the World Series? I bet you're curious about that. I am too. I don't know. I don't know. I will decide based upon various factors. But I will tell you, I don't plan upon selling any of myself if I do go. I'm not playing many events if I do end up showing up there towards the end. So I don't feel like selling off my action. But you're welcome to follow my action, and I will let you know in advance what I'll be playing if I play anything at all. But I may not even go, so who knows. This kind of sucks sitting here reading all these updates and going, that could be me, I could be there, I could be at that final table. But you know, places are always more exciting when you're not there. We will continue to cover and update the various stories we've been covering over time here. I always look back at recent stories I've covered to see if I have any updates. So I make sure you can stay up to date with the stuff that I tell you about. And if you'd like to co-host sometime, I will consider it. Only prerequisite I really have is number one, you got to familiarize yourself with the topics we're going to cover. 
And number two, you can't be drunk. We've tried drunk co-hosts before. It has not worked out. Well, that is it. Thank you for listening to uh, Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am happy to be back. Wow, I looked the ratings weren't bad tonight. I thought the ratings were going to suck tonight. They actually weren't bad. That makes me happy. Okay, good night, everybody. Good morning, actually. And shalom.